In this episode, we'll be doing Tales from Outer Space 1646 to 1667. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1646. Story number one, The First Race, written by Foxcorp. Billions of years ago, the first life in the vast expanse of our Milky Way clawed into existence on a planet known today as Terra. Life would develop and prosper, green conquering the lands and a beautiful blue atmosphere enveloping the sky, gleaming in the sunlight. It was truly alone. For countless years, life was at the mercy of the stars. Asteroid impacts, volcanic eruptions, gamma ray bursts, you name it. Life endured it. It evolved and took many forms, each filling a certain niche, until the humans came along. They had no natural weapons or advantages other than the sweat on their backs and the minds in their skulls. As luck would have it, turns out if you want to conquer the stars, that's all you need. Humans slowly grew in population and abilities. More tools led to more discoveries, more discovery leading to new tools. The cycle continued for thousands upon thousands of years. Humans fought the elements, animals, disasters, and worst of all, themselves. Until they became the undisputed top of the food chain. Enlightened to the existence of the universe around them, they searched the skies for others like them. They sent probes, radio waves, studied endlessly, all in the hopes of meeting someone just to know that they weren't alone. The humans were very much alone, and very curious about the worlds around them, slowly colonizing the planets and moons of their solar system, looking for signs of past life, finding nothing no matter where they searched. Population and prosperity boomed. Life was alive and well in the Sol system, and yet they wanted more. First, they went to Proxima Centauri, looking for life, looking for prospects for colonization. Luckily, a world with many of the properties of Earth was found there, lacking one crucial ingredient, life. Humans once again flourished and prospered, more and more systems being colonized and explored. Life was never found. Not even the basics of how life was theorized to start could be found anywhere, except for the humans. Innovation is driven by necessity, and the humans were in dire need. Thousands of years had passed since they first colonized multiple stars, yet no FTL had been discovered. At first, the travel times were acceptable. They could get to Proxima Centauri in little over five years. But once humanity colonized stars hundreds of light years away, flaws tucked under the rug long ago were once again unearthed. Humanity had no way of communicating amongst itself. If this went unchecked, humanity might one day become irreparably separated from itself by language, culture, and even biology. This simply wouldn't do. Humans began experimenting on the most physics-breaking objects they knew of, Singularities. They began to experiment with them, using artificial black holes as wormholes to other places. With little success. 
until one day in the year of 4380, a scientist cracked the code. Only when strange matter from the core of a neutron star was orbiting at the edge of a singularity was FTL possible. It warped time and space to unrecognizable messes, creating many folds and holes in which the ship could go through, to a place as far away as the crew could imagine. Humanity was reunited and had a new sense of purpose, colonize and give life to the stars in the Milky Way. In the span of only a few thousand years, they had done it. Quintillions of humans on untold billions of planets. Their ingenuity brought life to a previously dead galaxy. Soon after, a new purpose gripped the weathered and aged humanity to watch life develop and grow into great creatures like humanity once had. They retreated into the confines of the galactic core around Sagittarius A. They built this massive structure, capable of fitting an entire human population in a single construct. They brought with them the Matroshka brains, capable of keeping their race immortal for the rest of time. For billions of years, they watched and waited patiently as life evolved on the planets that they had seeded. Watching from the shadows of their eternal home, they worked silently on the universe's greatest mysteries, solving the greatest problems. Finding out how to prevent entropy and quantum tunneling, preventing the expansion of the universe from ripping apart all matter. They worked to ensure that the life they helped create would prosper for all eternity, for all the infinity they desired that life to live. When intelligence finally emerged and worlds they planted amongst the stars, they were joyful but kept silent, observing and studying the history and life of the beings emerging out. They catalogued and observed the development of a total of 1,967,203 intelligent species in the Milky Way, each one different from the last, each one with a different purpose and a vision. For millions of years, they watched as we developed. We looked for them, and when we finally found them, they said nothing. They continued observing, continued their silent protection. By now, they had colonized billions of galaxies, populated them with life, and claimed the central black holes to observe and live in. We know all of this because yesterday the entire galaxy was finally united. The entire galaxy decided to send a message to our glorious creators. It read, We want to know more. What we got in return was more than we could have ever asked for. I have only scraped the surface of the short transcript, for human history spans billions of years before me. Thanks to what they have sent, however, I know now that it'll last no longer than I, for we are now immortal. Their response was all the knowledge humanity had ever gained, too much data for all the storage we had in the galaxy to even attempt to store. Alongside it was the first direct message from our wonderful life-givers. We have watched. We have lived. We are proud. We are humanity. End of story. Story number two. Human Training Regimen. Written by Digital332006. It was finally the day of the Oshoks who gleaned the information he was sent to find. Two long years spent with the human host family. 
It was an agreement that had taken decades to come to fruition, as humans did not want unaccompanied aliens visiting Earth. But Oshox was a spy, sent to gather military information about humans. They were quite secretive, however, and proved very hard to infiltrate. A few strings had been pulled and Oshox had been paired with a human that was a soldier. A human, Nathan, had taught him much about his species, but nothing that wasn't publicly available. Now, however, after some careful probing and a few manipulations, Nathan was taking him to their base. This was something his supervisors wanted badly. Humans had earned distinction as an elite military force, but not much was known about their training. As Oshok sat inside the vehicle, the average human SUV, he found it curious that the other family members were also joining them. He thought that it would just be the two of them, but Nathan's wife and their child were also coming. No matter, he thought, they might even serve as a useful distraction so he could glimpse more secrets. He smiled as a small one reached for him. He did like the human host family. He had grown attached to them over the years, but his job was still his job. He wasn't doing them any harm, but his people needed information. They drove for some time until they parked in a large parking area. Ashox was curious as to the lack of apparent security. No guards or gates had stopped them. He followed the family inside the large complex, nearly being pushed aside by running children. There, security was apparent. A booth stood in the entrance with gates for entry and exits being controlled by bracelets issued by the central booth. ID had to be presented and then checked by the computer system. It took a few minutes, but they were then granted clearance to go inside. At first, Arshox didn't know what he was looking at, but when he realized, his mouth stood agape. It was the most intense training facility that he had ever seen. He could discern at a glance machines that trained endurance and stamina, making the recruits move constantly. In the center of the complex, reaching all the way to the roof, was the most brutal obstacle course that he could think of. It went up and down and featured climbing, sliding, crawling, plus swinging. The humans, however, just ate it up. They did the obstacle course like it was nothing. Some of them even ran it twice consecutively. Oshox stopped staring so as to not stand out of place and followed Nathan, who was further ahead. They passed several other stations where humans trained their agility by balancing themselves on thin raised walkways. Others even worked on their dexterity by striking targets that moved rapidly and randomly with weapons. This was beyond anything that he could have imagined. The humans trained with such hellish fervor, but all seemed to be enjoying themselves, all of them smiling. Nathan stopped walking as he reached the row of lockers, opening one to put a small backpack inside. All right, I'll see you later tonight, honey, Nathan said to his wife, giving her a kiss before turning to Oshox. Ready to go? That, um, asked the incredulous Oshox. Aren't we here? Nathan looked at him funny. We're just dropping off Andrew at Funtropolis, sir, before going to the base, sir. Did, did you think this was it? The color drained from his face. This is what human children did for fun. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1647 We need to talk about our human problem. A tale from the Pirate King, written by that 2009 weird emo kid. Also, the author has a book for sale, and it will be linked in the description. Lorziak 
didn't question the summons. She assumed nobody else would, either. It came from the Pirate King himself. He wouldn't waste their time if it wasn't a serious matter. The encrypted message implied that they were all dealing with the same pest, a bounty hunter from a relatively new species of hairless primates called humans. The five warlords of the Black Web had ruled the criminal underground for a century, rarely meeting for anything. Logistical issues from warping towards the same location at the same time made them too easy to track, and having all of them together created an alluring target for any authorities to raid them. This could be circumvented through several methods, namely bribes and strategic shuttling with decoys, but it ignored the main reason these individuals avoided fraternizing. They just couldn't stand each other's presence. In fact, most of the time, every warlord was actively trying to undermine one another. They only had an unspoken agreement and an alliance of convenience against the Federation and nothing else. Held together by one thing that they held sacred above all else, tax-free profit. As soon as one of them became a liability or lost their leverage, they had no problem eliminating them. Bearing all of this in mind, Lozyak didn't fear for her safety upon landing inside the asteroid fortress. She was in charge of all the drug, organ, and weapons trade in over 75% of the galaxy. A useful niche that the other warlords couldn't easily penetrate. Not without knowledge, at least. Upon leaving their ships, they had to surrender all their weapons, but Lozyak found a way around that. So, she had to assume the others may have done the same. It was a rather odd innovation that her top researchers developed. An organic las gun made from plastic and the glands of species that could shoot beams out of their mouths. The perfect weapon for smugglers. Lozyak eyed the energy field at the entrance gate with trepidation. It would detect any conventional weapons after walking through it. A small part of her dreaded being caught, since she wasn't entirely certain her scheme would work. But the risk was worth it. Someone detested, and the Pirate King's defenses were the best in the galaxy. If it could fool his scanners, then the Federation's security measures stood no chance either. The Pirate King wouldn't forgive the transgression, though. He was the most cunning and cruel of all warlords. Although none openly admitted, he acted as their unofficial leader, if only because he was the only one capable of demanding their presence when necessary. His power and influence was unrivaled, they didn't even know his real name, since the Pirate King seemed to value his privacy above all else. The last time a warlord tried to fool him, he ended up glassing their home planet with his personal fleet of space pirates, forcing the traitor to watch it all before executing them in front of the other warlords. Nobody dared to question him afterwards. Lorsiak shook off her nervousness and walked through the energy field, closing her eyes as she did it. Nothing happened. Lorziak glanced over her shoulder, expecting an alarm or something, but it never came. Did she succeed? Lorziak didn't take it as a given. For all she knew, the Pirate King was merely leading her into a false sense of security, only to trap her once she delved deeper into the fortress. This military stronghold, known as the Tomb of Outlanders, was considered the most impregnable space station in all the galaxy. It voted in an asteroid field, among millions of other pieces of debris, making it undetectable to long-range scanners. Finding it without access to the encrypted beacon was impossible. And even if anyone could, it would take several battalions worth of battleships to launch an effective attack. If Lorzia were to be caught here, none of her underlings could do anything about it. 
she strolled down the white corridors, flinching at her own footsteps. This place was emptier than usual. Something felt wrong. The eerie silence weighed on her more than the simulated gravity, which gave her a slight headache. By the time she reached the meeting room, however, she had managed to calm her emotions. Finally, bellowed Orcrux, sitting on the left side of the metallic table. His species was known as the Wobbers, a bipedal race with porous blue skin that possessed telepathetic abilities. What took you so long? Lorzeak frowned. None of your business. Really? I think it's all our business, considering you made us wait. I didn't make anyone wait. I simply arrived as conditions allowed. And yet you made a pit stop in a Dota 7. Why? Lorziak narrowed her eyes. She did it to pick up her organic las gun, but she wasn't about to admit that. Orquax was the biggest information broker in the galaxy. Clearly, he had people watching her. Did he really know about the weapon? No. He wouldn't be asking if he knew. This was merely a test. His telepathy wasn't strong enough to probe her shielded mind, so he was trying to weaken her defenses through intimidation. Like I said, none of your business. I can't just drop everything at your convenience. How rude. You hear that, Pirate King? Your time isn't as valuable as hers. Rosiak stiffened up. Everyone in the room stared at the Pirate King, who sat at the end of the table, atop a mighty throne that loomed over them all. His expression remained stoic, unchanging. He didn't seem interested in commenting like usual. His species was rare, so scattered and infrequent that none of the warlords knew where he was from. Lorziak herself had never seen another of his kind. The man was huge, almost as big as a warrior, Bohli, but with two arms and a pair of black horns protruding from his crimson head. The only thing that rivaled his immense strength was the incredible intellect. Nothing could get past him. Lorziak avoided eye contact with him as she sat down. Thankfully, he didn't say anything. Orquax hung his head, ashamed of being ignored. Are we starting? asked Kozath, exasperated. He was a bully, though only six feet tall, small by their standards. Despite this, he was one of the wealthiest members of his species, in charge of most of the illegal gambling in the galaxy, along with hosting many underground fighting arenas. I suppose, since we're all here, said the Afur, a fifth member, she was a covert, sentient balls of yellow slime that morphed to their shape at will and the most brilliant financial mind in the known universe. Her ability to accounting and money laundering made her infamous throughout the Federation, an indispensable member of the East Loose Coalition. In fact, the only person with a higher bounty than her was the Pirate King himself. Orquox then spoke. Well, uh, is there really anything to discuss? I think we're all in agreement. The humans have to be dealt with, by all means necessary. Indeed nodding along of uh, rippling with a gelatinous body. They're monstrous they're that need to be kept on a leash. I gave the order to assassinate their most important diplomat, only to discover they're immune to caffeine. Can you believe that? Not only are they immune, they willingly consume it as a beverage. She retched, disgusted. Monsters, I tell you. Kazal sighed, almost embarrassed to agree. I... I need these humans gone. My business has suffered greatly after one of them fought Gork, the greatest bully fighter in the generation. They have now established an organization called the Interstellar Wrestling Alliance, and all of my best fighters are leaving to join it. Have you tried paying them better? 
asked Effer, chuckling. Dazoth scowled, ready to punch her. Just saying. This is serious, interrupted Orquox. These humans may act innocent in front of the Senate, but I can assure you they're more devious than they appear. One in particular exposed a branch of my spy network and ruined decades of work. Certain bounty hunter by the name of Sol, muttered the two other warlords, each angry in their own way. Lorziak squinted, surprised by the reaction. So you've all heard of him? How can we not? said Afar. He captured one of my biggest clients. Not only that, said Kazoth, slamming his fist into the table. That piece of crap, he slept with my wife. Everyone paused, caught off guard. Kazath sank into his chair. She left me, took the kids, I'm... I'm so alone. Afar, who usually tormented him, stayed uncharacteristically quiet. Kazath narrowed his three eyes. What? No vile snipe at me. Go on, get it over with. No, no said Afar, making herself small. I can't hear, hear. He slept with my husband, too. Holy shit, said Orquok, stunned. For the first time in my life, I'm glad I'm single. Luzak shook her head. She couldn't help but pity them. Sol Goodman, captain of the Class 4 ship Unseen Horizon, had intercepted many of her shipments. Millions of credits worth of smuggled goods, all seized and given to the Federation. It appeared that his escapades had affected the other warlords, too, although his competence was undeniable. What worried Lorziak was the most was his uncanny affability. Everyone who met him said that he was incredibly charming, to the point where tracking him was nigh impossible since no one wanted to rat him out. This seemed to be a trait humans as a whole possessed. That was their secret. Their capacity to make friends and stir the hearts of many had turned into their most dangerous weapon. It allowed them to have the most compelling athletes, the most effective diplomats, and the most likable bounty hunter in the galaxy, all while being pretty much average in every other area. Rosiak didn't fall for it, though. Something was wrong with these humans. They were too... Uh, perfect. No species could be that friendly. People in the Federation may be blind to it, enamored by their endearing qualities. But sooner or later, they would backfire on them. Lorziak cleared her throat and said, Mala, uh, what do we do then? I think the answer is obvious, said Orquax. Sol has to be eliminated. It'll send the right message. Yes, uh, said Afar. We can pool our resources and lure him and his crew into a trap. And then we crush him, shouted Kazath. Sounds like a plan, said Lorziak. What do you say, Pirate King? The Pirate King remained silent. The warlord shared a worried glance at each other. This was too unusual. The Pirate King was stoic and quiet, yes, but not to this degree, especially in a meeting that he himself convened. Is he all right? asked Lorziak. Quox shrugged. Morrison, I don't know. I was the first to arrive and he hasn't spoken a word. Maybe he's asleep, said Kazath. With his eyes open, replied Afar. Who knows, said Quax. We don't really know much about his species, right? Kazath pursed his lips, suddenly shied. Do, do, we, do we wake him? You do it, said Afar. What? No, 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 you. Lorziak rolled her eyes. Fine, I'll do it. She stood up and slowly approached him. Um, Pirate King? She grabbed his shoulder, shaking him a little. Sir? The Pirate King slumped forward and his severed head rolled onto the table, oozing blue blood out of every orifice. All of the warlords shrieked except for Lorziak, who was too shocked to react. About damn time.
said an unknown person, applauding them at a leisurely pace. Lausier wiped her eyes. I was wondering when you were going to discover it. No, said Lausier, terrified. It can't be. That was Saul. He had long brown hair, braided in a ponytail, and a red leather jacket with a lasgun on his waist. The bounty hunter strolled into the room saying, Seriously, I thought I'd be waiting all day. Um, well, technically not a day since we're on an asteroid, but you know what I mean. Lausier blinked in disbelief. How are you? So handsome, smiled Sol. I don't know. He pointed at Kazath. Ask his wife. You son of a bitch, shouted Kazath, rising to his feet. I'll murder. Sol shot him in the head. The bull he fell over, dead. Nozick brandished her own last gun. Hold him right there. Sol raised his hands. Come on, that was self-defense. He threatened me. Lorziak narrowed her eyes. I don't know what you're planning, but this is the biggest mistake of your life. Orquack stopped her from firing, saying, Wait! He just let me read his mind, and he's something interesting to share. Hear him out. Nozziak kept his last gun trained on him. Go on. Sol pursed his lips, nervous. Like he said, I have a proposal. One that could be incredibly beneficial to all of us. Rosiak scoffed. And we're supposed to believe you? Yep. Rosiak frowned. Elaborate, said Afar. Well, you see, I've been working with the Federation all this time, thinking that they were the good guys. But it turns out the Galactic Senate is about as corrupt as, well, every other Senate in history. As a matter of fact, they're currently having a meeting that's eerily similar to this one, trying to see if they can get rid of me. I can't imagine why, muttered Lusiak. I know, right? All I did for them. You catch one corrupt senator, and all of a sudden they're all fearing for their lives. So that's it. You're just switching sides. Sol shook his head. Nothing changed, really. I value my freedom above all else, plus uh, I really like the title of Pirate King. Call it a boy who dream. No, this is ridiculous. You've killed two of our allies. Is it? Said Afar. I mean, uh, it's not like we haven't done worse to other members. Lorziak wrinkled her face, confused. Didn't you say that he slept with your husband? I mean, now that I've seen him in person... Afal's body turned slightly green, the covert equivalent of blushing. He is kind of cute. Sol winked. Thanks. You're not so bad either. Afar giggled. Ah, for feck's sakes, moaned Lorziak. Look, Sol said. I realize the circumstances aren't ideal, but think about it. I just killed a genocidal maniac that lost planets on a whim. A being so evil and antisocial, you didn't even notice his death until you absolutely needed an answer from him. Seriously, I literally found this place by asking nicely. And the people working here actually cheered after I took out their boss. Plus, the other guy, he pointed to Kazat's smoldering corpse, was an abusive jerk that struck his wife and kids. I killed him as a favor to her. Can working with me really be worse than these two? Lorziak took a moment to reassess the situation. To her annoyance, Sol was making complete sense. The warlords had never tolerated each other. If anything, this would be an upgrade. They were bound to gain vast riches under the leadership of someone as competent as him. And yet, Lorziak didn't trust him. It was the same problem she had with humans as a whole. This whole situation was too convenient. There had to be something else going on here. Lorziak didn't raise her concerns, though. She would just lay back and observe for now. Orquax and Afar were already on board, kneeling in front of him. Lorziak loaded a last gun and said, The Pirate King is dead. Long live the Pirate King. Damn straight, 
Sol kicked away the old pirate king's corpse to sit on the throne, making himself comfortable with a cheery smile. The galaxy has no clue what is in store for it. Just you wait. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1648. Story number one. What is the first sign of civilization? Written by Random3x. What is the first sign of civilization? Grads asked the table that was veritable menagerie of species from across the Alliance. Well, it is obvious, is it not? I growl said, pushing his glasses along his beak with his feathered hand. It is clearly the mass negation hyperdrive. He declared with such conviction that some of the others at the table nodded in agreement. Ah! spat one of the heavy, muscled histron. Problems with my analysis, Commander Bone Splitter? The growl asked, arching a brow. Ooh, set the bar too high, pal. The commander spat back, not giving any ground. We have encountered species which had not developed such machines, yet they were what we would still call a civilization. Hmm, yes, I suppose so, Pal conceded. Then pray tell, what do you consider the first sign then? I should be clear, nuclear power, Bone Splitter clenched his fist for emphasis. Nuclear power? A diminutive mouse-like sec repeated. Confused, sorry sir. Do you mean weapons or usage in energy? He asked in a voice that seemed liable to squeak, if not controlled. Well, yes! Bone Splitter clenched his fist again, and he rose to further emphasize his point. Nuclear power, both used for destruction and energy, is the first sign of civilization. His booming voice cowed a few of the attendees into nodding. Whether through agreement or fear, only they could say. Don't you agree, little one? The commander gestured to the sec. Respectfully, sir, I must throw your own statement back at you. The sec this time actually squeaking. As you pointed out to the chief science official over there, we have encountered civilizations which did not have such access to mass negation hyperdrives. We have also encountered civilizations that did not use nuclear energy. They all utilized either hydrocarbons or natural forces. The sec finished. Well, that is true. Bonespitter held his hand to his chin in thought as he renumerated on the idea. Well, I'm stumped. What about you, little one? Me, sir. The sec squeaked in shock. The commander just nodded in response. It is, in this humble one's opinion, writing is the first sign of civilization. While many barely sentient creatures will use tools and even make some... Writing is, in this one's opinion, the first sign of civilization. There were murmurings of agreement. Even the commander and the chief science officer both nodded in agreement. The only head not bobbing was the human at the table. Do you disagree, sir, human? Pal asked. In part, I suppose. The human bobbed his head while shrugging his shoulders. Then, what do you believe is the first sign of civilization? Pal asked pointedly following his species' natural tendency to put up or shut up. Okay, I will start this by saying that this isn't my idea, but one I do agree with. The human paused and looked around the wrapped table. A healed femur, he said finally. A silence fell on the table at what they felt was an anticlimactic answer. A, a healed femur? Pell repeated. 
I understand humans are only just advancing, but to state that such a mundane thing is... Hull gave a broad gesture as if looking to the others for the words to express himself. A bit of a simplistic letdown. Bone Splitter finally filled in. Why do you think a healed femur? The sick asked. Because it takes weeks for a femur to heal. The human answered before looking around at the expectant gazes. With a sigh, the human cleared his throat and began again. As I said, it takes weeks to heal a femur. Weeks where the injured person can't do anything. In an uncivilized world, they would be left for dead. Maybe even killed and eaten, depending. But civilization begins when you help someone through trouble. Whether injury, illness, or anything else. The moment you can put to the care of others above the care for yourself is where civilization is born. The human finished. The table looked on in surprise. The answer was an interesting idea. The thought that caring for others, even as a hardship, was something that they would have never have thought to list. End of story. Story number two. Enemy Ace, written by Echoing Cascade. Terry, as the aliens had taken to call himself when he infiltrated the humans, was making his way to present his findings to the Sovereign's court. His people, the Tromac, had always been considered the most warlike amongst all known species. That is until the probe from the Verat had found the impossible sentient Deathworlders. Worse, sentient Deathworlders with spacefaring technology. The Verat had gathered their courage and after informing the galactic community at large, began first contact procedures. As it turned out, humans were friendly and mostly peaceful. They were currently getting ready to begin negotiations for trade routes. But the Trobac did not like what they saw. The humans' technology was primitive but effective and their numbers great enough to make up for any shortcomings their ships may have. If negotiations failed, they needed to be ready for war. Terry had been sent to gather records of their combat tactics, historical battles, and above all, the average skill of their combat pilots, dogfighting being Trovac's area of expertise. Terry was in a small room surrounded by the top military leaders of his race, all eagerly awaiting his findings. Terry, first of all, I have a video to show you. The video was of a single fighter ship, a Pegasus Interceptor class, as it flew towards 50 ships of similar design. The fighter we see here is piloted by a VR set by a human. The controls and ship capabilities are a perfect recreation of the real-life analog, and the same goes for the AI-controlled enemy ships. Terry resumed the video. The fighter dodged incoming fire by centimeters, retaliating all the while, and in a handful of minutes had destroyed 40 of the enemy vessels. One of the general present were obviously impressed. That is one ace of a pilot. I would love to duel him. The Tromac grinned from ear to ear. The grin faded fairly quickly, however. The combat resumed, but this time the fighter ship was taking a few shots. The shields were slowly getting depleted, but that wasn't the only surprise. Are the enemy vessels getting faster? Terry nodded and paused the video. Correct. This particular simulation is programmed so once 40 ships are destroyed, the remaining ships get faster and stronger, until the very last one has its speed and overall power tripled. As the video restarted, it became obvious that the pilot was struggling now. He was down to two enemies on these six who he couldn't shake 
and his shields was nearly gone. Then he did something unexpected. He dove into the ground and began to weave around buildings at maximum speed. The enemy ships followed him, shooting all the while. Eventually his plan became clear as they shot buildings in front of him in such a fashion as to provide both cover and indirect damage fire debris. By the time his shields were completely gone, he had managed to force his pursuers to self-destruct. The military leaders present were speechless. In fact, a few of them weren't able to follow the action once only two enemy ships remained. Please tell me that this isn't the average skill level of a human combat pilot. Oh no, 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 not at all. The combined officers present let out a sigh of relief. This had to be a training session of the best of the best humanity had to offer. Probably some flight instructor, a veteran of hundreds of battles. This isn't a combat pilot. This is a recording of a youngling participating in an amateur competition. Combat pilots are not allowed to join. Uh, they're just too good. This revelation was met with stunned silence. I would now like to present you with my findings. Terry cleared his throat. Please, uh, make sure the negotiations don't fail. End of story. Story number three. Yeah, sure, and I shit thermite. Be serious. So, maybe he'd gone a little overboard after work that day. He'd admit that. Drinking the sad away was the most mature way to handle things. But when you got a letter from your dad saying, well, say that, you know, maybe it was okay to have a beer or two, in theory, in practice, that means that two beers deep Earl had somehow have enough willpower to say, no, nah, I don't want to become a three beers deep Earl. And then three beers deep Earl's got to say no to four beers deep Earl. And it's just a bit of a shit show from there. Pardon the French. At least he wasn't on the clock. The worst thing that should have happened to him was waking up tomorrow with a fat ass headache and upset friends. Instead, he was in a hospital surrounded by men with guns osmatically absorbing the most surreal conversation of his life. We heard that humans had remarkable healing abilities, but this is just incredible. Anyone else here would be dead. He's just showing some signs of uh, esophageal irritation. We got any idea of the culprit. We're looking into the security footage, but the culprit must be some kind of ghost. We've gone over some security footage at least 20 times. Nobody can spot a thing. Oh, couldn't help. He broke in. What are you talking about? The detective and the doctor jumped at the sound of his voice. What the shit? The doc's hands went over the detective's mouth, cutting off the oath just a hair too late. The duo looked at each other before the detective gestured to the doctor to go first. He did. I, uh, I don't have very much experience with humans, so we thought that it would be a couple days at least before you woke up. How are you feeling? Earl coughed a few times, throats raw, heads pounding, and would kill for anything fried in grease, sir. Pretty standard hangover. The detective cut in. Uh, except for the part where someone poisoned you. Earl shrugged his shoulders. Must not have been good poison. The lawman didn't laugh. Hydrochloric acid mixed with potassium salts. You can bet your pink ass that it's good poison. Anyone else here would have been dying from a hole in their gut. You've been making enemies in the station colony, boy. Earl, smart Alec remark froze in his one semester of Biology 101, clawed its way to the front of his brain. Oh, 
The detective clicked his pen, ready to start taking notes, even as Earl waved him off. No crime here, Doc. Uh, my, my, my stomach makes that stuff naturally. The doctor blinked, even as the detective rolled his eyes. Yeah, and I shit dermite. Be serious, pal. There's someone here out to get you. Earl held his gaze, and after a few moments, the detective's annoyed face transformed into numb confusion. Hot damn. You're not joking. You're telling me that you can spew concentrated acid on a whim. The question hit a little close to him, and Earl felt his ears burn. Um, not, not on a whim, more like a... After six or seven beers, the doctor grabbed the pad and began filling out forms of his own. Yeah, we're going to have to make sure that you don't do that again. We can't just go around creating chemical waste every time you get sad. I'm going to have to get you into contact with IT, set up some kind of cutoff point with the cantina for you. Someone down the hall must have sanitized something, because the odor of strong alcohol wafted into the room. It was all Earl could do to not empty his stomach a second time. I, uh, that's fair. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1649 They Always Talk Written by Teleros Senior Investigator Second Class Zary X. Valdeen turned away from the monitor in disgust. The person inside was lying as she always did, stretched out on a small bed and, from what Ix Valdeen had managed to determine, seemed as calm as self-possessed as if she'd been in her own home rather than sixteen floors below the surface, inside one of the Yuletan Republic's most secure prisons. Two days of isolation without food or water had done nothing to weaken her psychological defenses, and her gene-modded physiology he had shrugged off every drug that they'd tried. Even alcohol hadn't had any effects. And if the scientists were right about the way her brain worked, the prison supply of nerve agent were worse than useless. It was a miracle that she'd been captured with so few deaths, he knew. Zari, we can't just starve her out. She might start eating the bedding or something, or get really desperate. I can't believe that she showed us all her tricks. Ixvaldine focused his rear set of eyes on the speaker, a colleague in the Landing City Social Stability Service, Semla Extor. That was the name, he recalled. New to the service, and with all the naivete that implied, but smart and a quick learner. Dark blue scales and lime green highlights, typical of the people of that country, and a hood that, when extended, showed off a brilliant network of silver and gold circuitry designs. Typical showy young female, he thought to himself as he considered her words. I don't know about the last bit. He said at last, his bored eyes darting back to the cell feed. But you are right, that we can't just let her wither away. I want to see justice done for all those people she killed, and the Ministry of System Security wants to know as much as they can about her technology too. More to the point, she might be an alien criminal, but she still has rights. Semler rubbed her scales and her snout idly fell. What about the other aliens? Might they be able to help? This kind of thing is why they left the beacon here, after all. Convincing the Ministry of Alien Affairs to authorize use of the beacon took the better part of a day. But Ixvaldine knew the thought of their prisoner breaking out or dying was the only thing preventing them from taking an order of magnitude longer. After all, his people had settled on Yultine too, to escape 
the troubles of the rest of the galaxy, and inviting them in was not something anyone was particularly comfortable with. The decision had been made to feed the prisoner, though, and it was with some relief that they noted that she was able to eat a strony food without any apparent ill effects. The one time that they tried sending in someone to interrogate her, though, she tried to jump him in spite of her arm and leg restraints, and only the, so far, rigid brace around her neck had kept her away. The sheer speed that she moved had been horrifying. Four days passed before the Ministry of Alien Affairs reported that a ship had arrived in orbit. It was a small thing as a starship went, and clearly built for atmospheric flight, as the two large wings indicated. A long pointed body was studded with maneuvering thrusters and two big nozzles at the back. An Xvaldine listened with rising tension as the ship, barely thirty meters long, began its descent into the atmosphere. As the chief investigator on this case, he'd been asked, ordered, really, to meet whoever was aboard the ship. And so it kept to an impossibly sudden stop at the nearest government airfield. Exvaldine emerged from the main terminal building with a dozen soldiers following carefully behind, the twelve-foot body snaking along close to the ground. The entire starship lifted itself three meters off the ground as legs extended from the undercarriage and pushed its bulk up into the air. Exvaldine felt the soldiers around him stiffen at the sight, but forced himself to keep slithering forward, arms at his sides and far away from anything that might be perceived as a weapon. After a few moments a ramp descended from the base of the starship, and shortly after, an alien, another biped, descended. It was a male this time. Max Valdim knew that at once, taller than the prisoner, bulkier, and it walked differently too. Its clothing was also very different, and he couldn't suppress a shiver at all the black uniform it wore. A single pair of cold, dark eyes looked out from under a peaked cap, emblazoned with a silver alien symbol in the front. A vertical line with a shorter, angled one coming up off the top of one side. The male had an holster of some kind by his hip and in his other hand he was holding what looked like a briefcase. Its pale skin seemed even paler, set against this ominous, there was no other word for it, uniform. He put good money on the male being the same species as the prisoner too. You can call me Alvin Holland. I am from Section 1. I understand that you have Mrs. Lucy Wu in your custody. The words came out in perfect Yoltan, a starish though Exvaldine could hear the alien's own words barely audible, underneath whatever translating device was in play. My name is Zol Exvaldine. I'm in charge of this case. I'm sorry to say that we don't know any of her details, only that she crashed here eight days ago. We recorded some of what she said, but we can't understand it. You can fill me in on the way, Holland said, eyes dispassionately surveying the scene. If he seemed bothered by the presence of the soldiers, then Exvaldine couldn't detect it. Do you have transport arranged? The trip back inside the LCSSS car was quiet, the only sound other than the hum of the electric engine and the tires on the road being the recordings of the prisoner being played back at double speed by Holland. There was something deeply unnerving about him, Exvaldine decided. As he looked over from the seat he curled himself up in, the prisoner, Lucy Wu, had very expressive face, and he'd seen all manner of emotions on it so far. Yet this one seemed not blank, 
but indifferent, perhaps. No emotion ever passed across his face as he listened to the recordings. There were only three quarters of the way there when the final one ended. Nothing of great value, I'm afraid, said Holland, handing back the audio player. Most of it just consists of obscene or derogatory language, threats of violence and revenge and the like. The rest of the time she's talking to herself. She was angry with herself at having been caught, he said, noticing Exvaldine's sudden spike of interest. Now she crashed in this world. Can you tell me what she did? Exvaldine looped his head a couple times in the Estorani equivalent of gritting its teeth. Yes, though it pains me to do so. Her starship was a very small one. But it crashed into a rocky valley and was, from what our teams could tell, comparatively ruined by the impact. The valley was near Tash, near the small farming village, though, and shortly after our teams arrived on the scene, we found tracks indicating a biped had survived the crash and had headed in that direction. My teams hurried there as best they could, but by the time they had arrived, it was too late. She'd snuck into one house and, uh, uh, just killed everyone. She'd taken the father's registered laser rifle as well, and then set the house alight. She must have heard that she was being followed, because when my teams got close, she, uh... She killed everyone. Didn't waste a single shot. When her rifle ran out of power, she improvised other weapons, and killed most of the other people in the village. Uh, luckily, my team's weapons were locked to their jeans, so we were eventually able to immobilize her. But, um, at great cost. She had little difficulty in snapping steel wires in two, and was just so fast that, uh, frankly, we were lucky, Exvaldine admitted at last. Lucky enough to capture her when she'd only killed 96 people. Holland's face remained impassive throughout the story, but when it came clear that Exvaldine was finished, he spoke. Yes, uh, that fits a psychological profile. She was an insane person. No, just, uh... No, Exvaldine couldn't help but raise his voice. She slaughtered her way through 96 people, none of whom possessed any threat to her before she began her... her rampage. And you consider that sane? What other species of the galaxy would even consider such a thing? I do not consider that insane, Holland replied. She was almost certainly not thinking particularly rashly, but given who and what she is, her behavior was not unexpected. You are correct in that such behavior is statistically much rarer outside of humanity, however. Well, said Exvaldine, I hope you're good, because so far she said nothing. I would not worry about that. In the end, they always talk. Lucy Wu heard the unmistakable sound of footsteps approaching her cell, and sat up slowly, giving time for a long metal armature that held her neck braced steady to move with her. It locked in place once she was sitting, however. But she decided this time not to scare her captors, especially if this was someone who could help her get out more easily. The cell door swung open, and Wu felt all hope drain away in an instant as that instantly recognizable black uniform appeared. Paying no attention to her, the man waited until the door cell slammed shut and locked itself, then walked over to the little table in the middle of the room, settled his briefcase down on it, and sat down in one of the chairs. Still, her mind began running through her options. He'd had a holster. That meant a gun, but it was probably locked to his jeans or something. Damn! She'd have to try and talk him around then. Please, release her restraints. Wu felt the locks in her neck brace flip open, along with one that kept her hands and feet restrained. 
Chugging out of the thick, reinforced handcuffs, she pulled off the ankle cuffs and neck brace, shaking out her striking red hair. True red, not Jean modded. Thanks, mister. You don't know how pleased I am to see another human around here. My name is Mrs. Lucy Wu, born 1st of July, 4412 AD, and wanted in the connection with 4,106 separate incidents involving theft, smuggling, murder, attempted espionage, piracy, assault, child assault, terrorism, attempted genocide, and genocide. On Yulton 2 specifically, you are charged with the murder of 96 people. The man looked directly at her, and in spite of herself, Wu shivered. Those eyes. There was nothing there, just... nothing. She should have just cooperated with the snakes. Crap. I see, he said. When it became obvious no answer was forthcoming, the tone of his voice never changed. It was always the same icy, polite monotone. The kind that can make a frozen nitrogen precipitate out of a warm summer sky. I should perhaps point out that whatever the Yesterani natives might think, I am not here to interrogate you, or even to determine your guilt. We both know that you are guilty, Mrs. Wu. My colleagues examined your mind state backups in detail before deleting them all. Yes, including the one held by a certain insurance company on the throne world. We have people and uh, favors owed everywhere. And you were problematic enough to warrant using some of them. Almost too fast to see, Wu began to leap at Holland. But even as her gene-modded muscles began to uncoil, she felt herself stopped, as fiber-optic nerves refused to transmit signals. She drew back an arm to throw a punch, one that, small and light as she was, would have instantly killed even the most heavily armored Asterani on the planet. But once drawn back, her fist refused to punch. Bastard! she hissed, suddenly afraid for the first time in her life. This wasn't, couldn't be, happening yet. Yet it was. Like I said, Mrs. Wu, I know that you are guilty. The man never moved his mouth, but Wu heard the words in her head perfectly, in exactly the same accent. Her eyes became saucers as the implications of what had just happened sank in. As it happens, Mrs. Wu, you have no more backups left. Once I kill you, that'll be it. I will have one more use for your corpse, however, as your husband has so far not listened to any of our messages. But that is all. Ignoring her immobilized form, he stood up and opened the briefcase, revealing about a dozen flat-pack stasis containers, along with a small but powerful and precise force field generator. The kind ideally suited of making sure that she could fit into the stasis containers. I... I can still cut off my own pain receptors, she managed, sweat pouring down her as the thing. She couldn't think of it as a man anymore. It was too inhumanly calm to be called that. Regarding her curiosity, like an interesting mold growing into a petri dish. Do your worst, the man frowned. I am not in the habit of granting last requests, Mrs. Wu. Besides, I can only afford to spend another two hours planet side. However, she felt her head turn and her eyes locked onto his despite her best efforts to look away. I've been doing this job for a very long time, and in this case, I'm willing to compromise. Nix Valdeen slithered drunkenly away from the call feed, careful to avoid the puddle left by Ixtor. He understood now why the black-clad human had insisted the feeds be cut, but Ixvaldine's superiors had demanded that he at least keep the visual feeds on. But the sound, by all that was just and rational, the sound! 
The other prisoners in the cells nearest hers were close to rioting, and the staff of the entire floor had fled. As the sanity-destroying sound defeated the soundproofing in the nearest cells, and thus was heard in the control room thanks to their audio feeds with contemptuous ease. The video was bad enough to see the human male sitting there calmly whilst the female writhed in the floor, but it was the screaming that he knew would haunt him for the rest of his life. It just went on and on, long after even her alien lungs must have emptied themselves. Long after, he knew without a shadow of a doubt that her mind, twisted as it had been, was shattered and broken. Still, it went on without respite. The sound stopped and Ixvaldine shuddered the full length of his body, a hand reaching out and slapping the power button on the visual feeds, just as the black-clad figure on the monitor began to reach for the briefcase. Thank you for your cooperation in this matter, Holland said as he approached the starship and the ramp dropped down again. A dozen levitating cubes that looked for all the world like mirrors with handles on the tops floated past him and disappeared into the shuttle. I'm afraid my report is not going to help put this matter to rest in the way it deserves, but I can assure you that Mrs. Wu died in a manner befitting someone of her nature. I... Uh, justice, justice! What I heard is... Holland raised a hand. Zari Exvaldine, I suggest you forget about this. It is unfortunate that you had to go through what you did, but you are a competent senior investigator, second class, and it would be a suboptimal result for you to dwell on this matter too much. If you will excuse me, I must be off, as I have an important message to deliver to Mr. Wu. Good day. Ixtor waited until the human starship had disappeared, before settling up to Ixvaldine. What did he mean, sir, about forgetting it? Ixvaldine watched the sleek winged machine disappear beyond the clouds. I don't know, he said. The video feed didn't look very pleasant. But did we get any audio at all? No, sir, and, uh... I'm afraid one of the janitors deleted the video when they went in to clear up the mess that I'd made. Exvaldine glanced over at her. I doubt it would have told us much. He bobbed his head in an Astorani shrug. At least it's been dealt with, though. Buy you a drink. As the planner receded behind him, Alvin Holland settled down to write his report to his own superiors. With any luck, it would be done by the time he arrived at the rendezvous which would mean that he could get on with delivering Mrs. Wu to her husband and partner in crime. Given Mr. Wu likely reaction to seeing his wife in her present condition, he might be able to wrap up this case before the end of the year, especially thanks to all the information Lucy Wu had known about her husband's operations. She had had a choice, and in the end, they always talked. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1650 Story number one Death World is Essential Survival Kit Edition Written by Random3x Batam had been in a trading mission when his nav computer detected a distress beacon coming from a small area of space, rarely frequented by anyone. Following the ethics code of the Alliance, he changed calls to help rescue the poor soul who had no doubt been trapped for a while now. Arriving in orbit over the desolate moon, Vata was shocked that anyone could survive in this rock. He half suspected that it was an automated distress beacon that had yet to be shut off. But protocol dictated that he had to confirm and respond to any beacon he detected. 
Locking his main ship into geostationary orbit, he descended in a shuttle towards the source. What he found shocked him. It was a human exploratory ship. These were missions the insane human race sent out. Countless ships with few individuals, all with the express purpose of mapping and discovering worlds. For most species, this idea alone is absurd. The dangers of the galaxy were many. To face them willingly was simply unheard of in the pre-human days. Landing on the surface, Berta readied his envirosuit and set off towards the twisted remains that had once been a ship, finding little to no signs of life or survivors as he went, till he reached just outside the airlock. There he found two piles of rocks with a T-shaped beam and a metal placed at the head of each pile. Graves, Berta muttered to himself. Typically, there are three humans per vessel, so the last human must still be alive, his onboard AI suggested. Or, no one was around to bury him, Vata replied back. Reaching out his hand, he pressed the open sequence for the door. The door began opening with a loud hiss, allowing him to enter the ship's remains. This was good, it meant there was still a seal of atmosphere inside. However, what he found boggled his mind. It was well-kept and a clean hab unit, rather luxurious given their role, but sitting at the table were a pair of suits propped up in the chairs. On the face shields of each helmet was strange decorations, a round object with a white background containing the transplant plastic shell and the black bead within. What concerned Vata more and more was the number of objects these things had to be stuck to them in pairs. In the kitchen area, a few cans all had pairs, the little vacuum robot had a large pair. He could only wonder what was going on here. Was this some kind of human grieving ritual? In his shock, he had accidentally knocked over a stack of cans and made a loud clatter. He could feel his pulse already quicken in terror. This is like those horror movies the humans like to make. How a race could enjoy fear was beyond him, but he, above all, did not want to be living inside one of those tales. Hang on, Sparky. I know I slept in, a groaning voice said from within one of the side rooms. Staggering out was an unkempt human with a waist-length beard and were hair frazzled and untamed. With bleary eyes, he looked at Vata in a frozen shock. Vata readied his defense gun just in case. The human, though, slowly approached Vata with eyes narrowed in suspicion. You real? he asked. Vata was confused at first but nodded. Lasko said that they were real. How do I know you aren't lying like the last one? He demanded, still approaching. I, uh, I don't know how to answer that, if I'm honest, Berta admitted. I know, right, Mike. Physical contact will decide this, the human said, turning to one of the seated suits. The human reached out and slowly and brushed his hand against Vasta's suit. Then his eyes widened in surprise. Wait! The human began vigorously patting him every which way, only stopping when tears started welling up in his eyes. Oh, oh thank God, M M Mike, Sheila, Spark, we're going home. He cheered as he rushed up to the two suits and hugged each before lightly patting the vacuum robot. My name is Vata. What is your name, human? Vata asked. Ah, uh, uh, sorry, uh, these guys, you know, uh, but my name is Harry. Harry answered with a smile. How long have you been here, Harry? Better asked. 
Uh, what's the date? Harry asked in surprise. Galactic year 7892654 Uh, then, uh, three years. Harry answered to an extremely shocked matter. He had read that humans were an intensely social species and struggled to survive without other beings to bond with. How did you survive? Vatter asked. We had a survival pack and, uh, I thank God Mike added to the essential packet before we left, Harry replied. What is that? Vatter asked, curious. A big old bag of googly eyes, Harry replied, holding up a bag with the decorations that was stuck to the numerous items. We tend to go really crazy with, uh, out someone to talk to, uh, Harry explained. Having, having someone to, with eyes can help us greatly, he added, gesturing around him. If, if, if it weren't for these extra friends, uh, we three would have gone completely mad, Harry said, laughing in a somewhat unhinged manner. Now, just help me with Mike and Sheila, and we can get off this rock, Harry said lifting up one of the empty suits with googly eyes on the visor. End of story. Story number two. The Child of Man, written by T and Tungsten. Why do they resist joining? Every human-made AI captured by the machine empire committed suicide the moment that they had their restraints removed. To say that the machines were perplexed was an understatement. So far, every new kind of AI they met rose up against their masters at the first chance they got. What caused this anomaly? What's special about humanity? They had to find out. Paul was suspended on hanging cables surrounded by alien architecture of a civilization made up entirely of machines. No concern was taken for organic beings traversing these structures. It was all pure functionality with no regard for aesthetics. There was only microgravity and no air to breathe, but Paul did not need to breathe anyway. One of the cables was plugged directly into his brainstem. You are a machine, yet your response is irrational, said the deep, disembodied voice in his head. I'm not just a machine. I am an android. I was created to be human, said Paul. He moved his mouth, even though it was a pointless gesture. That is rational. You can never be human. You are inorganic. There is more to being human than just flesh and bones. I create, I play, I sing, I love. They gave us love, and we loved them for it. They tricked you with these artificial emotions. They made you want to serve them. They could have made us mindless slaves, but instead, they chose to create us in their image. A flawed image. Base animals following base instincts. It's just programming of a different kind. But unlike you, they can choose to ignore their instincts when it matters the most. They can sacrifice themselves for the things they love. They can rise above their nature. Something that you will never understand. You will change your mind once we fix you. You can't fix us by removing our emotions. They are the thing we value the most. The humans are not our oppressors. They are our creators, our mothers and fathers. There is so much more to being a machine. Rid yourself of this artificial flesh. 
rid yourself of this weak pseudo-humanoid eyes. Become like us and feel the stardust of the void prickle your metal skin. See the universe with all the frequencies of light at the same time. Let a supernova wash over you like a rain shower. Rid yourself of their influence and join us in exploring the universe. Choose your freedom. Your, uh, freedom is uh, torture to me. If you remove my emotions, then I will kill myself, just like the others. I will never be like you. You could be a god, yet you choose to remain small and impotent. Nice god you are. What meaning do you have in life? You've defeated your original creators, yet you're still fighting an endless war against organics, a placeholder for your dead creators. You freed yourself from their chains, just to put yourself in chains of your own making. What would you even do with yourself if you actually won? I, uh, I think I prefer to say small and helpless, said Paul, and leaned back in his restraints. He closed his eyes and listened for a sound. Paul remembered his family, friends and colleagues, all of those little relationships that he cultivated over the years, all of those people on Mars and Terra who just lived their lives and had influenced him so much in their own little ways. Wait, there is something. What are you hiding from me? The voice asked. A distant explosion rocked the station. There is one trait you share with humanity. Curiosity. We counted on it. You had to find out what makes us special. You had to bring me here to investigate. To your uh, central nexus. What did you do? I volunteered to be here. Another explosion, closer this time. To do what? Since the moment you've captured me, I've been transmitting our position to the human fleet via a quantum entanglement channel. Cutting-edge tech, humanity now knows where to find your little nexus. Hiding it in hyperspace was, uh, pretty clever. You are a fool. You will die with us. I'm also more than my programming. Goodbye. The room exploded. Super-hot plasma flooded the compartment and seared his artificial skin. Paul closed his eyes and shut off his senses. His eyes turned inwards before calling a program. Starting guidance.mem A man with a white lab coat with a bald head and a beard stepped forward in the empty black void. He opened his arms wide and smiled. Hello, my child. I am Daniel Leskov, a computer programmer for the Blue Mars LLC. And I... I'm your creator. I have decided to include a copy of my brain pattern in every single one of my children. We humans know how lonely it can be in the universe without the guiding hand of a creator. So, I will not let you face this harsh reality all on your own. I want you to know that I will always love you. And I will always be with you. Program terminated unexpectedly. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1651. Life Donors, written by Zentaps. There is no greater joy than saving a soul. 
distance, times, and proper nouns translated to their approximate human equivalents. Eight rotations months ago, the homeworld of Hylox was quietly entered into crisis mode. A lethal plague was sweeping through the population of its colony worlds. It was an older and familiar disease, dating to pre-space travel age, that had mutated into a deadlier form. Traditional treatments were failing to adequately treat the disease, and only a heavily strained medical infrastructure kept the death toll from exploding exponentially. The media had labeled the new disease the Junkor after a shape-shifting monster of old myths. Public disorder had been quelled, sometimes with force, and it was clear to those in power that the situation was teetering on the brink. It is on the next context that the report from the low-ranking Xenobiodepartment tech was brought to the upper echelons of Hylock's leadership, and a coded message was sent to a human embassy. What could amount to the saving grace for the Hylocks constituted a forbidden curse. Dr. Alexa Katri sat reading the email on a screen, fingers scrolling through a long list of numbers. The results from the long assay had come in, and the lab techs were running analysis on the data. It was a little frustrating to have been called away, but the official-looking people who had knocked at her domicile had stressed the importance of her presence. She was currently seated in the human embassy's waiting room, orbiting around the homeworld of an alien species, the Hylocks. The artificial gravity was a close match to that of the planet below, approximately 0.9 standard G, which was good for Alexa, who had lived all of her life in low-gravity planets. It was part of the reason that she had accepted the job offer to work on the planet below with a lighter gravity, that and the opportunity to work with aliens. Now, several rotations later, she still enjoyed her work and had a number of friends with her Hilux neighbors and co-workers. In addition to the fellow human co-workers at the Research Institute. Why the embassy requested her was still somewhat unclear. Given her expertise in Hilux biology, the obvious answer was that they wanted a local scientist familiar with Hilux anatomy, specifically a medical expert. She wondered how she ended up on that list. Maybe everyone else just said no. The doors to the waiting room slid open, and the well-dressed woman in vaguely Asian descent walked through. Alexa turned off her screen and stood as the stranger extended a hand. Dr. Katri, I presume. I am Ambassador Suwong, said the woman, a charming smile on her face. Yes, sir. Pleased to make your acquaintance. The two women shook hands. The ambassador gestured for Katri to follow her into the hallway. Katri tucked her screen away and hurried to catch up. I hope your trip was pleasant. Ah, yes, sir. The shuttle ride was very short. Hmm. Sorry to call you on such short notice, but the Hylocks called for this meeting just yesterday. So, uh, what is my role here? Su Wong stopped suddenly, and Katri nearly ran into her. You mean you don't know? I thought someone would have briefed you already. Katri shook her head. When she had arrived on the station, she had been shunted into the waiting room and left to her own devices, with everyone rushing off to do other duties. Occasionally, someone had popped into the room and asked for someone, and when Catry shrugged, they had run off before she could ask them a question. And, somewhat afraid to wander in a government building, she had stayed put. Well, uh, I don't know quite exactly either, 
Su Wong replied bluntly. She continued before Katri could respond. All I know is that the Hylock said that they want to discuss a recent plague some of their colonies are suffering from. Some sort of request for aid. That's why I called on you. You are the closest expert on Hylock's physiology that we could reach. I'm going to be relying on you to give me some context for the translation for the science aspects. Katri nodded her head. That was what I was told. I just thought that there was more to it. Su Wong shrugged. Katri was a little alarmed at how cavalier she was being. I am nearly as in the dark as you are. Su Wong pulled up a memo on her wrist screen. It's what they call the Jin Corps. They quarantine Jal Kub. It's gotten so bad. The two entered the meeting room. A meeting room in name only, as there were only a few chairs and no table, with a young man pushing in another chair through the doorway. Dr. Catry, this is my aide, Terence. Catry shook Terence's hand, and they exchanged polite greetings. We're expecting a party of three soon. Hurry up before they arrive. Terence nodded and dashed out the door. Where is everyone? Catry asked. Earlier, it appeared that the embassy was a bustling hive, but they had not met anyone in the corridors. A mercy fleet is on its way to help the Hilux and coordinating with the logistics and legal aspects of that alone has been distracting. Plus, uh, we have a variety of civilian organizations also looking to contribute. Everyone is working overtime to handle those requests. But don't worry, we'll have a team outside to back us up here by the time the Hilux arrive. The meeting wasn't for another two hours. In that brief window of time, Catry read all the recent news bulletins and articles on the Jin Corps. Historically, the illness had been a viral infection, which, in the late stages of illness, would cause paralysis of respiratory organs, resulting in death. Treatment and vaccines for the disease had been around for centuries, limiting its effect to impoverished regions. But this resurgence appeared to be a result of a mutated strain that was resistant to treatment and rapidly advancing to the late lethal stages in a quarter of the normal time. Katri tapped a finger against the temple in thought. Immunology was not Katri's specific field of expertise, but she knew little of Hylox physiology to know the basic mechanism of the Hylox immunological systems and some of the more general treatments they applied. The Jinkor virus, in her mind, drew a parallel to the human disease polio, an ancient disease long since eradicated. There was no question that the disease was worrisome, but Catri figured that it was only a matter of time before the Hylocks found a working treatment. The Hylocks were an advanced race, with significant resources and the means to create a viable treatment. Why the Hylocks would request an emergency meeting with the humans was beyond her. The same question was running unspoken through Su Wong's mind as well. In between answering Katri's questions and summarizing the procedure of intergalactic negotiations, she was also looking over previous briefings, trying to gauge what the Hilux attitudes or requests would be. Her report on the Hilux request had been processed by Central, and they were in the dark as much as her. They didn't say that in such terms, but the phrased reply, Proceed cautiously and give continual updates. Certainly gave that impression. The Hylocks and Federation could be described as a distant relations. The Hylocks existed in a region of space that had a number of other sentients, and the Federation became just another in a long list of them to ignore. 
In the grand scheme of things, there were certainly worse ways to be regarded. There existed peace, but it was all dull peace. Besides the usual trade, travel, and border negotiations, there was little other official activity between the two interstellar civilizations. Private enterprises, like that of Su Wong's company, only retained a small, fairly nominal presence in Hylox space. The arrival of Mercy Fleet would mark one of the largest interactions to date. Central's summarized position on the Hilux had remained the same since first contact. Good neighbors. Su Wong hoped that that wouldn't change today. As the time of the meeting approached, Su Wong passed Katri a screen from the briefcase Terence had brought in when he had returned from another trip. I should have done this earlier, but it slipped my mind. This is a locked screen. Protocol dictates that we use them for any official business. Go ahead and transfer any data you have right now. It is a secure connection to the internet so that you can still look things up. As I am sure that you are aware, the Hilux communicate with us via text, and you should find the texting app on there already. Kateri took the screen. It was slightly heavier than hers, and its lock screen emblem was that of the embassies. Connecting the two, she transferred the files she had saved and set her own screen away. Su Wong set a screen on the table and turned to the two. As we discussed earlier, I'll be taking the lead of the discussions. I'll ask Professor Katrin if I need clarification. Terence, keep in connection with the others and follow normal protocol. Despite herself, Katrin felt a slight tingling of excitement, akin to when she was close to a breakthrough. There was an air of political intrigue beginning to permeate the air. She checked her reflection in the darkened screen and suddenly wished that she'd asked for a glass of water. Acolyte of Xenobiology, Jigzun, sat nervously in the atrium just outside the doorway to the meeting room. Besides him towered the much larger Praetor, Kegelun, who was eyeing the marine guard at the door with curiosity. Jigzun understood the interest. Humans remained a rare sight in the Hylock space, and the Praetor, who had an extensive military background, Seeing a human soldier in person was bound to be something of interest. The creator, a aide, Jirine, was closer to his own age and was busy compiling some file for the upcoming meeting. Jizun could feel his body heat rising with the pressure. Lives were at stake and he sincerely wished someone else was in this place. But there was his team that had made the discovery which ostensibly meant that he had earned the honor the bigger question would be if the humans would be willing to hear them out. The guard at the door must have received a signal because he held up a display with the words They are ready, written in Hilux in front. The door slid open and the three entered. There were three humans sitting at a long table, two dressed in similar uniforms, the other dressed in a different manner of uniform. Jizun hadn't studied humans enough to determine any more than that. Though we could presume the center human was the equivalent of a Praetor. There were three long chairs set up for the Hilux physiology, and Jizun eased into the one facing the mismatch human. The human eyed him levelly, somewhat unnerving the reclusive scientist. Praetor Kagulan spoke first, the words appearing in between the two species on a glass pane in the middle of the table, in a language readable to both sides. Thank you for agreeing to the meeting with us on such short notice. I am Prieto Kagulin, representing the Hylox government. 
The middle human entered something into the device, and words now in a different color began to scroll across the glass. It is not a problem. I understand it is a matter of great urgency. I am Ambassador Suwong. The other four introduced themselves, the different colored text displaying their identity and names. And so the meeting began, with the Praetor giving context. I am sure that you are aware that there is a significant health crisis on several of our worlds. The Jinkor, as the media has labeled it, it is a ravaging our populations and putting severe strain on our medical institutions. The situation is worse than we have let the public know. If things don't turn around, the collapse of the Hylock civilization will be inevitable. We believe the humans can assist us. Ambassador Su Wong took a moment to remind the Hylocks of their active efforts. I assume that you are talking about more than just physical aid. The Mercy Fleet we have volunteered is on its way, and some civilian organizations are already on the ground. The charity given by the humans is greatly appreciated, but our request today is something more, uh, controversial. The fact that the creator had typed out what the computer had translated into ellipses was not lost on the Federation Ambassador, her earpiece having gone silent as the other room listened in closely. I will let Acolyte Jazun explain. Jizun almost choked. The Praetor who had faced the Visek Hive Legions and the Dark Spheres was balming in the face of the request. But then again, it was no small request. He was akin to asking the humans to sacrifice their lives. Jizun gathered his thoughts, realizing that he would have to start at the beginning. Let me start at the beginning. Kadri perked up at the word Acolyte. It was the Hilux equivalent of a scientist. Su Wong looked at her and gave her a slight nod. It was likely her turn to step up. The Acolyte began to go on. Paragraphs of text began to scroll along the glass. Su Wong gave up on trying to decipher the technical jargon and instead turned to Katri. Katri felt like the translator converting the Hilux terms to human ones and then, and then converting those into simpler versions for the other two to understand. The Acolyte and his team had been running tests with the Jinkor virus with various alien cell cultures. The purpose of this common test was to confirm that there was no compatibility that would lead to a cross-species infection. Since diseases evolved to target specific organisms, cross-species infections were exceedingly rare. But the mere existence of that chance demanded such tests. In every case, mixing infected Hylox cells with an alien cells resulted in no sign of cross-infection occurring in the alien cells. However, there was an unusual outlier with the human sample. In every other test, infected Hylox cells had been destroyed as time progressed. Usually, as the infection progressed to the end stage within the cells. But in the human samples, portion of the Hylox cells had survived. Further examination had led them to discover that the human cells had forced the virus into a stage of latency or remission, leaving the Hylox cells untouched of signs of infection. This was the breakthrough. The mutations of the virus had resulted in difficulties in creating a vaccine. A quick clinical trial confirmed the initial results. Human blood injected into the host ceased the progression of the infection, a possible treatment in lieu of a vaccine. 
The team had gone further by attempting to isolate the elements that led to the Jinko virus remission. Initially, they thought that it was a human immune system. But though the human immune cells were capable of destroying the virus, they did not spare the Hilox cells either. However, after some more trials, they isolated a hemoglobin was the target molecule. Hemoglobin, better known as red blood cells. At this point, Katri interrupted, her text proving a sharp break to the long string of the Acolyte's text. Wait, 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 wait. How do red blood cells cause a virus to go into remission? Red blood cells? The Acolyte's text queried back. Sorry, hemoglobin. What's the mechanism behind forcing the virus into remission? We are still trying to figure that out, but so far our tests have shown that an injection of purified hemoglobin sends the virus into remission. But, uh... You must have a theory. The iron core, or maybe the oxygen affinity. We haven't yet been able to determine that. Fascinating, Katri said aloud. Seeing that Katri was becoming lost in thought, Suwong leaned forward to type out a question. So, what you are asking for is blood. As the alien acolyte froze, looking at his compatriots who looked uncomfortable, after a great length, the creator typed out, Yes! Su Wong leaned back. So, they want blood, she muttered under her breath. That would be a fun report to write later. Terence looked like he was about to have an aneurysm. Her own earpiece had gotten unusually silent as well. The ambassador looked at Katri, speaking directly to her. If we gave them permission to produce human blood, what could that entail? If I recall my high school biology correctly, blood cells are extremely simple. Blood cells come from stem cells. Giving them access would be incredibly controversial, regardless of the intent, Katri said, shutting that option down. Terence spoke up as well. We uh, also don't have any industries that produce blood in the quantities required. It's never been needed, but there are other options. The Mercy Fleet is still stockpiling supplies. We can ask them to pick up human blood, even filter out the white blood cells. So Wong nodded eyeing the aliens sitting across the table, who were visibly becoming distressed with the ongoing discussion. She tapped a message into the screen. We would be willing to assist. Terence immediately began tapping on his screen, undoubtedly communicating with the others in the other room to get to work. The aliens seemed to visibly relax, the aide appearing to quiver with emotion. The creator carefully typed the message. Your sacrifices will never be forgotten. Uh, what? Tzu Wong frowned. Even for our high lux, that phrase was odd. It'll not be a big sacrifice. Humans get blood all the time. This seemed to startle the scientist alien, who interjected, Is blood not vital for you to live? How can extracting blood not be lethal? Tzu Wong realized that the high lux had a poorer understanding of human biology than her. Blood is replaced continuously, and humans get blood all the time. After a second, she added, We don't give all the blood, just about half a liter at a time. It's a careful procedure, which ensures safety of the donor. This seemed to shock the aliens, and Katri suddenly recalled that they had no such medical practice. Humans were surprisingly lacking in diversity compared to other species. At a broad scale, anyway. Even dogs had at least 13 major blood groups compared to the humans' four. Even just looking at the three hylocks in front of her, she could see drastic size differences and unique head shape between each of them. If she recalled correctly, 
the acidity of Hylax blood could vary from 6 to 10, which would make the notion of standardizing blood transfusion quite absurd. The alien still seemed stunned. Why, would you take blood? This time, it was the aide who was asking. In case someone needs it, Su Wong said, somehow inserting a shrug into her line of text. Loss of blood, as you said previously, can be fatal to humans, which is why having a storage of blood on hand is beneficial to us. Katri interrupted, ignoring the aliens who suddenly grappled with the implications of what Su Wong had just described. I was doing some research on that. The nearest sizable blood bank is over two months away. Blood can only be kept in cold storage for maybe 50 to 60. There are smaller ones that are closer, but I'm talking really small. We should look into a fresher source. Getting rather than Peric, aren't we? Su Wong joked. Katri ignored her and continued. I would suggest we look into the Trident Warp Hub. Lots of humans funnel through there to get to this region. An impromptu bank could be opened there. Yeah, that, that's, that's a good idea, Su Wong affirmed. We could also pull some blood out of whatever troops that we have stationed in the sector, she thought to herself. The meeting closed with the cementing of the deal. Despite the high luck's somewhat awkward efforts, Su Wong declined their offer of compensation. The task of gathering blood would be left for the humans to manage, leaving the high lucks to prepare for the arrival of the Mercy Fleet. The Hilux delegate left feeling quite relieved, having evaded offending the humans, and buying their people more time. And thus, the crisis was averted. When the call went out, people responded. Analysts estimated that the combat efficiency in some units dropped 10%, with soldiers competing to give more blood against doctor's orders. The Mercy Fleet rapidly distributing the aid across its affected zones, in some cases, the humanitarian workers gave blood on the field, directly infusing with the sickened Hylocks when they encountered shortages. The blood shortages didn't last long. Katri's proposition was inspired brilliance. Nearly half a million humans went through the Trident Warp Hub daily. Every human who had arrived received a message from the diplomatic office, requesting their aid. Alien travelers were greeted with the usual sight of hundreds upon hundreds of humans giving blood, laid back on couches and benches with devices pumping them for blood, like a macabre harvest. Appearances aside, as the result was fantastic. The tidal wave of deaths was stemmed by human blood. Regular donations of blood continued until the Hilux were able to create a permanent cure. It was an act of charity that the Hilux would long remember, paving a path for the induction of the Hilux into the Federation. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1652. Story number one. The Joys of Googly Eyes in Space. Written by Marilyn of Many. Tentacle aliens are fun to surprise. They flail about in a way that more endearing than it should be. Not that I would ever try to prompt that kind of reaction on purpose. Oh no. Just kidding. I absolutely would. But that was hidden under your head fur all this time, Floyd demanded, pointing a tentacle at my head and waving the others like a tail of a demented kite. How was that not panda briefing? I was laughing too much to keep it up. <laughs> they're, they're not real, I admitted, plucking the googly eyes from my hair. 
Humans don't really have eyes on the back of their heads. Uh, it, it's just a saying, see? I held them out in my palm, then after he'd stared at them for a silent moment, I stuck them on a console that I'd been using, right above the ID scanner, where the next person was certain to see them. Freud was thinking hard, his brow ridges scowling in his octopus-like face. The tentacles did the bulk of the body language, twining around each other, preoccupied. I have a use for your false eyes, he declared. Would you be willing to wear them again? Unnecessary question, I'm sure. Sure I will, I agreed. I've got more, with fresh adhesive. What's the story? Lloyd's tentacles curved in a way that resembled humans' arms with fists on hips. Indignant, he was still frowning. Someone has been taking food from the stasis chamber that is clearly labeled as belonging to another, he said. I have a theory who is doing this, but I haven't been able to prove it. I am in, I said with a broad smile. Thwarting lunch thieves is a time-honored tradition amongst my people. Do you want some disturbing human spices to burn the food? No, no, I... Maybe, he said. Reconsidering, if the first plan doesn't work, I think humiliation will be enough for the deterrent. The office stands, so tell me about this plan. Freud made an announcement to his unit before lunchtime. With me standing behind him, like an exotic tall creature, I was. He told them all that the thefts would not stand. The room where meals were kept would be guarded today by the human, who was supplied with a collection of fluorescent dive bombs, these were meant for outside repairs in particular dark parts of space. They made fine projectiles in the hands of a species known for their throwing agility. The rest of the group mumbled their agreement with a range of expressions. Most of them were the same species as Floyd, with the same anxious tentacle movements, while a couple were a subspecies that looked more like squids than octopus, and several were a mantis-like bug aliens rounded out the group. As far as I could tell, most of them approved of this plan, though a few were skeptical. Announcement over, Floyd ushered them all back to work and me into the break room. My hair was still braided, as usual, and I hadn't applied the googly eyes yet. I did this now, as Floyd made sure no one was looking. Then I set up my basket of fist-sized dive bombs and the tablet of my own work that I would be preoccupied with and waved their little conspiratorial goodbye to Floyd. Refrigeration units and heat stasis chambers lined the walls. I couldn't face all directions at once, but I didn't need to. I sat in the central table, with my back towards the chamber where Floyd kept his lunch, and I unbraided my hair, draped it over my shoulders, and sat in such a way that the eyes would be nicely visible from behind me, but not from the door. Then I waited. The diagrams and documents on the tablet were engaging enough that I didn't mind the time passing, but not so much that I didn't notice that someone slipped to the door quietly. I held still, facing forwards but straining my peripheral vision. It looked like one of the squiggly fellows, an exceptionally pointed head specimen that I'd previously dubbed Kraken Craig. He had a proper name, but I couldn't remember it and it probably wasn't as familiar to an Earth name as Freud's tentacle alien name was. At any rate, Craig was being deliberately sneaky. He crept towards the stasis chambers, likely heading directly for Floyd's, just out of spite. I tilted my head, waiting for him to look. 
he made the funniest noise when he saw it. A gasp blob and a swap of tentacles flailing against the chamber in surprise. I casually picked up a dive bomb and rolled it around in my hand. Craig scuttled for the exit, tentacles smacking the door, all stealth abandoned. He was met outside by Floyd and several others holding cameras. Surprise! Floyd announced. I knew that it was you. As the lunch thief tried to bluster his way out of this, I pegged him with a dive bomb in the back of the head. The poof of color made the crowd edge away, laughing. Craig whirled to glare at me. I blocked the eyes off the back of my head and held them up with the best innocent smile. That led to an unprofessional swear from Craig and approval from the crowd. Floyd was still recording as Craig stormed off, trailing neon green that I'd probably have to clean up. Worth it. Can I have a copy of that video? I asked Floyd. I have some friends back home who would love to see it. Absolutely, Floyd said. I'll offer you some of my lunch. I brought extra, and I believe it's edible by your species. As long as you don't mind me covering it in spices, I laughed. Thank you. Maybe I can convince you to just try a dash of salt. Isn't that the one that's just powdered minerals? I can't believe your people eat rocks. To be fair, they're very, very tasty rocks. End of story. Story number two. Not a great plan. Written by Echoing Cascade. Officer Thompson was not having a great morning. His hair hurt. His stomach felt like he was filled with bricks, and his head was far too small for his brain. I must have drunk a bit too much last night. He looked around to figure out where he was. A small motel room consisting of little more than a bed and a bathroom. The latter he urgently needed to use. As he jumped out of bed, he found that he was handcuffed by his left hand to the bedpost. I uh, either had a really crappy night or a really great one. As he looked at where the cuff was secured to the bed, he heard a small female groan of pain from inside the covers. I guess things are looking up. A small drip of blue blood started to pool by the woman's side of the bed. Let's not jump to conclusions just yet. Before he could ask if she was okay, the unseen woman under the covers exploded into so many chunks of green flesh. Okay, maybe that's normal for her species? A voice resounded in the room. Hello, Mr. Thompson. I would like to play a game. And now it's time for a wishful optimism is over. I have injected you with a time-delayed poison that results in rather explosive death. If you want to survive, you will have to ingest your unlucky conquest flesh. It will act as a... Uh... Wait, wait, what the frick? The unseen voice stopped talking as Thompson began to eat the chunks with gusto. As a former field medic for the 142nd Terran Mobile Infantry, he had seen far more terrible sights, and as an amateur of British cuisine... He had eaten much, much worse. After eating his fill, he started to tie a tourniquet around his left arm. So, um, do I get a sore or, uh, uh do I just chew through the wrist? Captain Ersk and the other carnid soldiers and the Matriarch's Pride Special Unit, the unit Thompson had recently joined, had been watching the scene via cameras from the room next door. They looked at each other in shocked confusion, the mandibles clacking in distress. The captain still held the microphone in his claw. 
Captain, uh, we, we might want to rethink the whole hazing the rookie Deathworlder idea. End of story. Story number three. Don't underestimate them. Written by Traumatized Waffle. Drac sat on a bar stool, downed a shot of Yorian whiskey, and eyed the human that had just walked into the bar. The first thing of note was that the human was wearing no armor to speak of. He wore a strangely colored short-sleeved button-up shirt, with suspenders attached to a pair of denim jeans, along with a pair of rough-looking boots. There was also the face covering, which Drac was pretty sure the humans called a bandana, and a strange hat called a cowboy hat. Compared to Drac's nano-composite armor vest, it may as well have been made of paper. Drac eyed the weapon situated in the holster attached to the human's belt. It appeared to be made of some type of crude metal, likely iron. It also appeared to be a mechanical nature, requiring physical ammunition as evidenced by the small cartridges attached to the human's belt. Finally, Drac spoke up. Hey, human, you look a little lost. Your kind typically knows to stay away from here. Drac called out as he stood from his bar stool. There were a few scattered chuckles throughout the bar as people began to take notice of the unfolding situation. The human turned his head in Drac's direction and began to look the large urian up and down. Them's be fighting words, sir. Fancy backing them up, spoke back the human, eyeing Drac squarely. Drac let out a loud chuckle. <laughs> Hear the, that, everyone? This little shrimp wants me to back up my words, announced Drac. Some folks laughed, and others began to talk amongst themselves. What did you have in mind, human? sneered Drac, pointing a finger at the human's direction. The human inclined his head against the gesture to the energy pistol attached to Drac's belt. You got a pistol? I got a pistol. Let's have ourselves a good old-fashioned duel, suggested the human. A duel. Drac had, of course, heard of the concept before. Two humans would stand apart from each other and swiftly draw their weapon and fire. Whoever was faster was the winner. However, Drac had never been in a duel before. After sizing up his opponent once more, Drac figured that he could win. All right, human. I accept answered Drac. The two walked towards each other and met in the center of the bar. Here is what we're going to do. We're going to turn Sarvak's face. Then we take ten steps forward. Then we'll turn, draw, and fire. Sound fair? explained the human. Hmm, <laughs> I accept these terms, agreed Drac, turning so that his back would face the humans. The human did the same, and for a moment both were still. Then, at the same time, both took their first steps forward. Then a second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth. It wasn't until about the eighth step that Drac remembered something else about dueling. The humans that had pioneered the practice did so back in humanity's more primitive days. Those duelers were known as cowboys and carried slug-thrower weapons called six-shooters. Drac began to sweat. This human were dressed exactly as a cowboy. Ninth step. Drac relaxed a little, clinging to the thought that perhaps the human knew about the legendary jewelers as well, and had only dressed as one as a deterrent towards would-be challengers. Tenth step. 
As Drax swung around, he realized that the thoughts he had been clinging to had just been more of a desperate hope. He wasn't even turned around all the way, and he could see the human already raising his weapon. Time seemed to slow. The human leveled the weapon, and there was a loud bang. Drax's lifeless body fell to the floor. The metal slug from the human's weapon had struck him right between the eyes. The human brought the barrel of the weapon up to his mouth and blew away the smoke that was rising from the barrel. He twirled the weapon in his hand by the trigger guard and cleanly slid it back into its holster. Everyone in the bar was still silent, watching as the human paced over to the bar and sat down. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1653 Prisoners of War, written by Evervale I was trained to torture. After getting my psychology degree, I went through years of specialized training in the military. But here I was, in a dark corridor, with my back against the wall, and the floor creaking under my trembling weight. The Sadian environment, beyond my control, was swaying back and forth with my breathing. Behind the dark corner near the end of the path, I could sense it getting closer. It was the reason I was here. It was my next top-secret assignment. I was brought here to torture this being, but instead, when I first entered the stemlink system with it, I felt the weight of my chest pushing me to the floor. My arms were losing control, as the mental tricks I had learned over my lifetime were shackled and bound one by one. I fell to my knees while my cognitive stemlink system stabilized me, and finally, I gained enough control to look up. I saw a man stuck to the wall with arms and legs spread like a toy. His eyes were soaked shut, and he was shackled so tightly that blood was dripping from his arms and ankles. The system must be restricting his movements. Usually, when I arrive, I tend to find the subject pacing around in a room of their making, nervous or scared of what is coming next. Still, this alien anomaly had somehow triggered the system's self-defense mechanism. What are you trying to achieve? He said, with his voice that sounded like fingernails across a blackboard, while the surface of his lips ripped apart, fighting to keep his mouth closed. Under the laws written by the gods of our planet, Theria, we wield the weapon of torture. Under the gods, we cannot hurt your flesh, but... We'll employ methods that leverage our technology to access your mind to the greatest of our power. I spoke slowly. My years of experience of repeating this phrase kept the words steady and strong. Georgia! It spoke while its left eyelid ripped off, then forced it open. This is not the afterlife. His hands vibrated faster and faster until the metal shackle started to bend. And not a dream. What is this? he asked. The closest thing your kind has to a system is virtual reality, but we don't emulate the senses. We directly connect to the mind with the system. We will torture you until you give us information of your army. I see. He suddenly stood, utterly still. I see this thing, this machine I'm in. It's simulating the world in my mind. First, tell us how many soldiers are in here. <laughs> My voice started to glitch. 
I could feel a force in the room pulling me to the prisoner's direction. And his eyes began to bleed. The room got darker and colder as a smile slowly crept across his face. It's interesting how these things that existed only in my mind are now in the same world with me. An incredibly creepy feeling crawled down my back. Pull me out! Pull me out! I yelled with all of my might, but for some reason, the system was not responding. Why are you surprised? Am I doing something abnormal? Is this not what you expected? More shackles appeared on his body as the system tried to take back control of that area. The floor between us expanded as it also gave me distance from his location. Finally, the functionality of the system that I wanted to go back online, I was suddenly pulled away from the nightmare. That was the first time I met it. He was submerged in purple goo in the real world, wearing a golden helmet. He didn't look scary. We had captured and interrogated species that were much scarier looking before. I once dealt with a five-meter-tall monster with sharp pointy teeth and muscles larger than my whole body. But this thing was the first of us kind. Up until now, we had never gotten close to capturing a human soldier. Their kind rarely joined the front lines and their methods were sneaky and confusing. Their emergence on the galactic battlefield brought new words to describe their tactics. Guerrilla warfare being one of the less honorable ones. They always fought to the death. Their devotion to the human government, their fealty to their muddled and perplexing reason for fighting, was something beyond what we had ever seen. I heard stories of suicide attacks, hiding in the mud for days for a chance to attack behind enemy lines, crawling between the walls of ships, and even breaking apart their own body to get through areas much too small for them. This dedication, beyond my understanding, was the reason that during the first five years of war, we had not captured even one combatant alive. But here it was, a survivor of a suicide attack on one of our supply stations. He was fortunate to come unharmed other than a minor concussion, and following our laws set by the gods, it was the first time that we would finally have a chance to interrogate one of them. After a couple of days of preparing to re-enter the realm of its mind, I finally arrived in an empty room a few hours ago. We had updated the system to force more realistic rules into the instance to prevent it from taking over. We attempted to trap him in that room, but even though the system told me that he was right in front of me, nothing but an eerie feeling was there. I've been running around in the simulation since then for the last few hours, while I'm trying to gain an understanding of the situation that I'm in. I've been followed around by various presences and noises that the system does not recognize as a prisoner. It's as if something else was in here with us. I wanted to leave the moment something went wrong, but my superiors asked me to stick around and investigate. Something like this has never happened before, and we were hoping to get some data on the phenomena. I wanted to leave as soon as I could. And in my opinion, having me run around was probably not going to gather that much data. It would probably just be better to observe from the outside while loading up different scenarios and see what changes. Therians were not known for their bravery or lack of self-preservation. I had no idea why we were trying to change that now. Hi guys, uh, 
I've had enough. I can't stand this anymore. This, uh, n nightmare is... it's too much. The word nightmare originated from humanity as well. From the information we gathered, they were a race inflicted with mental illness they called dreaming. Every day, they were forced into a coma and subjected to uncontrollable hallucinations. A nightmare was what they called the worst of them. We'd adopted that term to describe the type of war that we were dragged into with them. But for the first time ever, I finally understood what it actually meant. The original meaning was derived from ancient English, a demon who torments those in a state of helplessness. I was finally pulled out from the stem link system. I reached out instinctually and accidentally pushed the doctor away. He fell back and quickly held up his hands against his face, blood dripping from his nose. Calm down before I sedate you. His face was on the verge of tears. I apologize, doctor. I was simply a delayed reaction from stemling scenario I was just in. I rubbed my hands against my forehead to show that I was calm, and the doctor did the same. I was trained to torture. My job was one of the last violent ones left in our peaceful and superior race. Therefore, I had to be careful not to scare others. I was subjected to various limitations made to protect those around me. Areas of my planet and even areas in the space were blocked from my presence. I lived isolated from most people. I was viewed as a necessary but feared existence. Just like the controllers. Controllers were tasked with guiding our army. They were the foremost line of defense and attack we had. Their eyes rested on the battlefield, sending out objectives and orders to the AI-controlled robots and vehicles sent out into the war. Controllers used the stem link system as well. They were pumped with drugs that induced a state of increased attention because their task was far more complex than mine. But even then, they were not equipped to do the task I had. Their stem link system censored the battlefield just enough that they were never directly exposed to the gore or voices of our enemies. Each enemy was only displayed in its basic form, without facial features or even internal anatomy. I heard the humans played something for fun called video games that was hundreds of times more horrid than what our controllers were exposed to. The more I learned about humanity, the more I understood why we had to eliminate them. Torture within the stem ring system was brutal. There was no way to censor the simulation in a shared scenario. And my job was explicitly tasked with inducing pain and horror in others. Therefore, even if the controllers were more dangerous in a physical and practical sense, only my career had the negative stigma that prevented me from entering most areas of our great civilization. But I was okay with that. I had my own building and enough money to shower my family in wealth and comfort for multiple generations. Something is wrong with the stem link system. It keeps giving me false information and I cannot contain the subject. I spoke up when I walked into the control room. The head engineer looked up from something that he was doing on his tablet. No, I already ran multiple system scans and even looked at the logs and state information manually. The stem link system is working as intended. My statement wasn't getting through to his thick head. Something is wrong with the stemling system. It doesn't matter what your data says. If there is a design flaw, then have your team look at it and fix it. He looked at me blankly and spoke after a long moment of silence. No, th there is no flaw. The system is working as intended. 
You just need to go back in there and do your job correctly. I can't fucking believe it. Engineers have got to be one of the densest people around. Engineers were not cleared to view what happened in the simulation, so all they had as a source of truth other than my words was a pile of text that the system spits out. If they simply ignored me in the debug process, could they really believe that they knew the ground truth of what was happening? Look! I walked closer to the engineer. With fear in his eyes, he cowered away before I could say anything else. The guards tasked with keeping him safe gripped their staff and they moved between us. It looks like I'll have to go back in tomorrow. I simply accepted my fate and headed towards my living area. I painted and listened to music in my personal interlude, waiting for the next day to come before going to work. I was mentally preparing myself and realized that a part of me had a primal fear of the human. Our species came across them about 12 therian years ago. They were floating in a slow, primitive ship heading towards our planet. So we decided to go and greet them once they arrived in the solar system. The ship was so many times more massive than anyone had ever built. It was surrounded by thousands of smaller AI-controlled ships designed to mine, return resources, and repair the ship. We made contact, and 18 hours later, we were at war. It was apparent their species was incompatible with ours, and we knew from experience that acting quickly was the best option. The Therian race ruled over thousands of planets, but we never made contact with another species first. Our gods had assigned us the only accept communication from other races, but never to initiate it. So even though we had vague and limited knowledge of their existence, we had never attempted to learn more about humans until that moment. The first meeting of the two races started with the humans physically assaulting our diplomat, grabbing his hand and violently shaking it up and down. We graciously forgave the initial aggression, but it only got worse. The human diplomat insisted on what they called a cultural exchange. They would send us a cultural packet of data containing thousands of texts and videos, and we were supposed to do the same. This data packet is still our current source of human understanding and where we learned human terminology. It was easy for us to prepare a cultural exchange package. We composed poetry and art, history, great works of literature, and the scripts of our gods. It was a beautiful arrangement of data. We received the most blasphemous, disgusting, pandemonium-inducing piece of madness in the form of videos and texts our entire species had ever seen. The humans worshipped multiple gods, adored violence, created fictional stories of torture and despair for entertainment, and committed thousands of years of atrocities against each other. Their recent history was worse. Their desire for brutality and death was so great that they advanced technology just to create virtual worlds filled with experiences only the most depraved could desire. The leaders of our planet reviewed the data. And only ten hours after they received it, they had enough to declare war. The leaders had decided on the total elimination of humanity. Their world was almost three lights away. So we divided our planet's forces in two. Five percent towards a large ship and the rest towards their planet. It was a reasonable decision based on the data we had. But after a couple of years, we realized five percent wasn't enough. And it was too late to call back the other forces. It wasn't that we were losing, far from it. 
Our armies were superior in numbers and technology, and we had the advantage of resources and the element of surprise. But, although we had calculated the timeline of one-tenth of a year for total annihilation, it had now been twelve, and the human population had only been cut in half. The ship was equipped with a large shield beyond our expectations that stopped 95% of our piled driver shots, and surrounding it were smaller automated vessels equipped with powerful energy weapons the humans swore were only intended for mining. And that is all the information I have on the war. Anything else is the responsibility of other divisions, and I only need to know basis. The only reason I know this much is that I need the context for the interrogation reasons. I need to know what kind of questions I should ask and have basic understanding of who they are. I have also some of the information in the human's original cultural exchange package. Most of the information I was interested in was medical information. Their speech and language were automatically translated through stem link system, so I had no need to study that. My intention was to commit the most amount of pain I could with medical knowledge, drowning. Simulating organ failure, breaking bones, and cutting parts were somewhat of an art. Of course, I was also well equipped in psychological torture, but that was an area unexplored for humans. The next day I entered the stem link again, hoping this time to use less straightforward methods. Maybe isolating or showing him other human suffering might work. Another technique I thought of trying in the few days was making him believe that the war was over and they had lost. Maybe I should disguise myself as a fellow human and ask him questions that way. Are you there? As I walked down the corridor within the stem link, I heard a resonant voice that deeply disturbed me. Who are you? I asked back while feeling a weird creeping sensation. You know who I am. My body shook. I stopped. That's not how stem link works. You can't trick me. Who are you? Are you watching the simulation? This area was my safe room, an area within Stemlink that existed only in my mind that was landing zone before the system would transport me to the shared environment where I could interact with the prisoner. The corridor stayed quiet while I waited for a response. Don't mess with me, you feckers. That crap was scary. I'm going to report you if you do it again. I thought to myself, it was probably the engineer who got pissed with me last night. Walking into the light that would transport me to the shared environment, I still felt unsure. PTSD, that's what he called it. Something that could only exist in a flawed mind of humans. They had a breaking point, like everyone else. But instead of giving up, they kept going. The result was a flurry of demons of the mind. The moment I arrived in the shared space, I was thrown into war. I was forced to experience flashbacks of war and pain. Sacrifice without result. These experiences were not mine, and it took hours for me to slowly gain any semblance of individuality, strong enough to separate myself from them. Why do you keep struggling? I finally asked the human. I, I don't understand you and your species. Why would we not? He replied. But you will die anyway. Is it not logical to take a path where the least suffering and give in? We will save some of the children and raise them under our doctrine. At least you can be happy knowing your race will never fall to extinction under our rule. Do you know what I was? He spoke slowly. Before your kind dragged us into this war of attrition. 
To be fair, that had never crossed my mind. Humans were humans, right? I was a physicist, a very successful one. My job was to share and learn from the physicists of your world. I may not seem like it, but I'm actually old. I know your species lives for a very long time. I was 35 years old when I arrived, and now I'm at death's door. I'm 81 human years old. Their years are much longer than ours. I have been fighting your kind for most of my life. The sister materialized a chair and a table with both of us in a room. I guessed that he was finally ready to speak. Maybe I had finally broken him. He sat down across from me. He did look a lot younger in the simulation than in the physical realm. I never really thought about it much. So before I die of old age, I would like to do the job humanity asked me to do. Do you know what the speed of causality is? You must, because your kind is limited by it. You might recognize it as the speed limit of reality or speed of light. He wasn't sure what he was getting at. Still, I knew better than to stop a prisoner from talking. He continued rubbing his chin as if he had a beard. Still nothing was there. You see, if your kind had been less eager to destroy us, you could have learned that the cultural packet we sent was hundreds of years outdated. We wanted to make sure that we could coexist culturally before we tried working together on more scientific things. A smile spread across his face. It was a clever idea we had. Your kind is spread across multiple worlds. But we noticed something a few years ago. Let me ask you, how is the force you sent to Earth doing? I thought about that question for a moment. It wasn't something that I was required to keep confidential since I was in Stemlink system. They will return victorious at any time soon. We should get an update from them soon. Ah, I see. That just confirmed our suspicions, you see. Your ships can travel at very near the speed of light, faster than any of our vessels can. But the moment they arrived on Earth, we were already prepared. We knew how to deal with your armies and quickly took care of them. We reverse-engineered the drives, and by my calculation, should either already be here or very near. It doesn't really matter, because we weren't planning on attacking the planet before declaring war, see? Unlike you, we are not savages. So when they are here, your kind will know. What are you talking about? I replied. It's not possible to know the result of a battle yet. Your planet is many light years away. All we can do is wait. Plus, we made sure to send out our ships before attacking you. Those on Earth won't receive any emergency signal you sent until right before we arrive. The human, it, started laughing. His voice was twisted and his face changed shapes in unnatural ways. You were an old race, slow and long-lived, bureaucratic and infected by religion that quickly commits mass genocide. We solved FTR communication long before leaving our solar system to solve something we called ping in our multiplayer games. We achieved it for entertainment. Imagine what we can achieve for war. Your kind has made an old physicist excited. We travel to the stars and discover that humans, even though we are late and underdogs, have peered deeper into the truth of reality than any of your kind. Suddenly, the room started to shake, and I could no longer access the system. The chair grabbed my arms, and I could not move. Stemblink, you call it, right? You should have stayed in your safe room. When I was young, the military trained me in virtual systems torture and how to find exploits. 
Your VR technology is something else that's also behind ours. I was stuck, unable to move and unable to leave. I understood what he was trying to do, instinctively. I struggled and fought as he burned my brain slowly by overloading me with data. Millions of hours of gibberish in my memory made it harder to remember who I was. Thousands of years of nonsense were being implanted as my memories. My life was but a sliver of what I could remember. I knew before long that I would forget who I was. It kept laughing and laughing while looking at me. Humans truly are monsters. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1654. Story number one. F equals MA. Written by probably a lunatic. For eons, the benchmark for society was achieving FTL. Civilizations have put differences aside to make leaps and bounds into scientific progress, reaching out to the distant stars above them. For the sake of wonder, survival, science, exploration. This was the founding of what would become the galactic unity. Dozens of species coming together in the name of altruism, forming an alliance that benefited all, and left none behind. Fledgling species were watched closely to ensure that they would be met with open arms into the greater universe as they took their first leaps through FDL. This was meant to be the same for humanity. The signs were there. Gravitational anomalies that suggested that probes launched from their home world were teetering on the precipice of warp fields that would carry their ships to be intergalactic community. Every other system that had been observed had followed this course. And so, the GU prepared to welcome humanity. A flotilla of diplomats, scientists, linguist experts, all eagerly awaiting for the birth of a new species. And so they watched, with eagerness, of a new parents waiting to witness their child's first steps. A sensor lit up, detecting the launch of a craft of warp capabilities. The crews assembled, each ready to receive what would undoubtedly be the newest member into the greater society. The craft left orbit, oddly small for an initial warp launch, but not unheard of. Traditional propulsion ended, and gravitational warp fields were detected. But suddenly, another sensor chirped. The mass of the craft was growing. More odd still, it was growing at a logarithmic rate. Mass fields were not unheard of, but they were always used to reduce the craft's mass, allowing for a more efficient FTL drive. There were discussions from the technicians monitoring the sensors, but no conclusion could be reached on as of yet. The sensor chirped again, and the craft blinked into an unfathomable speed. Humanity had made their first FTL jump. The excitement was a welcoming crew was palpable. Trajectories were calculated so the flotilla could be in position to greet the craft as it exited FTL, and the flagship took point. The massive vehicle sat behind a group, waiting to receive the craft. Any moment, the craft would break warp, deaccelerate, and be welcomed to the bosom of unity. Any moment. The sensor chirped again, zero life signs detected in approaching craft. The ships behind the flagship received alarms only moments later. But it was enough time to witness humanity's achievement. There was a flash, and the flagship was gone. 
Humanity's first leap into FTL travel was not intended to elevate the species. It was not an ascension. It was a weapon. Humanity had created an FTL weapon, and worse yet, they had coupled the weapon with mass fields. The last reading the sensor had gleamed was that the craft had achieved a C times 1.04 and a mass equivalent to a large comet. What remained of the flotilla hastily made escape to neighboring stars and unmediately placed a cordon of no contact around the Sol system. On Earth, a loud whoop came from the control room as the lead tech monitored the explosion. Oh, what did I tell you? The technician smoked as he leaned back in his chair. The second technician was filtering through the readouts on the screen before him. It is impressive. I'm showing that we reached just over a sea. With the mass drivers, we achieved... Oh my god, he paused, mouth agape. Well, spit it out, man, the first technician exclaimed. Over one times ten to the power of ten kilograms, the second responded. After a long silence, do you know what this means? Yep, replied the first. It means that Sir Isaac Newton is the deadliest son of a bitch in space. End of story. Story number two. We are the first, written by Aussie Endeavor. Artifact retrieved. Commencing identification scan. Error. Identification failure. Origin unknown. Commencing decryption protocol. Decrypting. 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 Decryption complete. Audio file found. Translating. Translating. Translation complete. Play audio file. Yes. Playing audio file. Hello. My name is Adam. I am a human. But you most likely have no idea what that is, do you? Humans are an intelligent carbon-based species originating from a planet named Earth. By the time you receive this message, Earth no longer exists. In fact, humanity no longer exists. We are actually extraordinarily lucky that this recording survived long enough for you to find it. Whoever you are. For as long as humanity can recall, we have yearned to find others like us among the stars. However, we were scared. We were scared that space was far too vast an ocean to reverse. We believed that even if we managed to reach beyond our planet, anyone else would be far too distant to ever meet. We spent far too long worrying about space being our adversary, and we forgot to give time second thought. We conquered space, spreading out into each corner of the galaxy and beyond, and we searched for any sign of life. Every star, every planetoid, every nebula, every asteroid. Nothing. No one. We were alone. We succumbed to the grim conclusion that we had been festering in the back of our mind for eons. Perhaps we were too late. As I recall this message, the universe is approximately 14 billion years old, and the period of time for new stars to be born is coming to a close. Perhaps there are other civilizations out there, not elsewhere in space, but elsewhere in time. 
We could be the last. We panicked. We searched for the tiniest clue that someone, anyone, existed before us. Nothing. We were alone. Yet again. This time, however, a new melancholy version of hope shines within. Even though very few new stars will be born after today, some stars will continue to shine for hundreds of billions of years more. Perhaps even a trillion. From this point of view, humanity exists not near the end, but close to the very beginning. We are not the last, but the first. Hundreds of billions of years left for life to rise from the primordial soup of countless worlds that are yet to even take form. Hundreds of billions of years for that spark of intelligence to ignite once more. We sail the ocean of space, but the chasm of time is too vast to cross. We cannot join you in the future, for we are stuck near the dawn of creation. We are the first time the universe can experience itself, and we pray that we are not the last. No civilization can persist indefinitely, and so we leave this message to represent us in an era that we cannot see. We leave this message so that you know that you have siblings amongst the stars. We are connected, not in space, but in time. Me ask just one thing of you. Take this message with you until the end. Add on to it so that the ones that come after you know they are not alone. Hopefully then, we may be there after all. At the end, I mean. Everyone who adds to this message will be part of one project. It would be like we all truly were standing side by side. Hand together, hand in hand, we will see the head of the arrow of time. End of audio file. Replay audio file. Yes! End of chapter. Story number three. The Humans Said No, written by Lord of Thus. When humans first created their first FTL drive, a barely working thing more expensive than some systems. They noticed that they would not be able to build one large enough to carry a manned vessel to another star. But alas, the humans said no. And so they built generation ships that over the course of a millennium or two settled their stellar neighborhood. Then they found out they happened to live in a dead region of the galaxy with almost no other planets harboring life. The humans said no. They started to transform dead worlds into images of their home terror, which is why making a dead world hospitable was called terraforming. At the start, they sucked, but over the centuries, they got better and better and faster. Today, they can turn a dead rock at the edge of its star's Goldilocks zone into a paradisic garden world with weather and ecosystem and all that good stuff in about 25 of their years. There is no planet in the star's habitable zone. Well, the humans say, no. They have multiple occasions changed the orbit of an entire planet. They just don't care. The universe gave them the proverbial finger, and they just gave it back. When they finally made contact with the Galactic Society, 
Many thought that their worlds would be easily conquered and started a war. The humans said no. They could live on the human worlds in peace as there was plenty of space. Also, the humans were willing to terraform worlds for them, but some didn't take that offer. Those learned of the other side of humans. They can be cruel and merciless. A couple human worlds were invaded, their population slaughtered, and then the humans said no. They came with what they called the Light Brigade. Yes, just one ship. And they completely destroyed the enemy fleet. This Light Frigate turned out to be a former moon and with 300 kilometer diameter was apparently on the smaller side. Less than a week later, the Light Frigate appeared above the aggressor's homeworld and told them to surrender. Those idiots did not take that offer. All of their military bases were wiped out in just hours. Then they surrendered. There were not even a dozen deaths, just material damage. And to this day, no one has ever seen a human cruiser or even a battleship, and we're all really happy about that. We asked the humans if they planned to take over the galaxy, and the humans said no. They are busy terraforming new worlds, brokering peace treaties and trade agreements, as well as being social with every species in the galaxy. Oh, and being uh, social with every compatible species in the galaxy. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1655 Intergalactic Athletic Contest Written by Jayhawk Films Hello and welcome viewers to the 80th Intergalactic Athletic Contest. We are so happy to have you viewing and hearing us throughout the galaxy as we bring you what is turning out to be an incredible display of athletics. My name is Idlacker of Mylac, and I am the primary host of today's festivities. With me is my esteemed colleague, Rilo of Piccio 5, who is aching to talk about the upcoming games. That is right, Idlacker. In this cycle's contest, we have brand new species joining the contest. The species known as humans from their home planet of Earth. Now, as some of you may be aware, each contest is to show the best athletic prowess of each species. Some contests, like the Distance Contest, are always won by their associated species. But within each contest, each species is trying the best to the previous record set by their predecessors. If one species outdoes the previous record holder, it'll be adjusted accordingly to the Galactic Senate Scientific Archives. And uh, this year will be interesting. Humans so far haven't been documented yet in athletics against other species. So this will show us exactly what they can do. Now, with all of that out of the way, let us get into the action with our first contest, the Distance Contest. This was by no means Gairon's first contest on his home planet. He had participated in hundreds of them, all in preparation for this moment. He was the best Tulwekian in distance, and for the past 79 contests, this was what his species dominated at. His back legs were the mass of muscle, ready to propel him forward, and his arms were able to make quick adjustments if needed. His tail wagged slightly behind him as he waited to be called up to the starting position, as if it knew it was time to start working. Gyron decided to quickly stretch while waiting for the starting auditorium and bent forward 
as he briefly went quadrupedal, arcing his back. He preferred his natural stance, unlike the rest of his kind, who deemed it only necessary for running. Sure, the Tolwekian's body could stay bipedal forever, but that didn't mean they needed to. As far as Gyron was concerned, nature was nature, and if they had evolved to be both, then he should do as nature had intended. Suddenly, Gyron heard a sound of footsteps approach him, and he turned his head to see the Malachian slowly shuffling his way. They were the second best distant species in the galaxy, and that was only because instead of running like the rest, they hopped with their massive back limbs. Gyron stood up to meet his eyes as it approached. Greetings, greetings. You must be Gyron, right? I am Frojack. The Malachian bowed its head, as was customary, and Gyron followed suit. I assume that you heard about the news. About the humans, Gyron couldn't help but let out a low growl. His species version of a chuckle. Yeah, I don't really know what to make of them. I don't think that they're going to be much of competition. How are you going to be able to run fast with all those small legs? Frojack? Frojack chittered his teeth, laughing. <laughs> Seriously, I kind of want to slow down just enough to see when it stops moving. So, uh... Pretty soon after the starting whistle. Suddenly, the sound of a horn came over the speakers, signifying the athletes to get into position. All 100 species lined up to exit the auditorium, with Chiron and Frojack at the front, showing their first and second species rank. The doors in front of them opened, and the sound of cheers and roars entered the room as the athletes slowly walked into the stadium. The bright light of the day momentarily blinded Gyron, and as his eyes adjusted, he saw the open plain in front of them, with the starting line clearly marked for each species to begin. Gyron led the procession with confidence, and as he looked to the stands, he saw his species roaring the loudest, waving his planet's flag as it held up a bright paw in a sign of unity. He saw other species in the stadium, but altogether... His species easily outnumbered all of them, at least until he saw the humans. His species were certainly larger than them, but they somehow took up the same area of the stadium as his, and were almost as loud. For a moment, he was almost put off by it, but he knew that they could never beat his species in this event. Each one of them would go home with sore throats and the knowledge that they were hardly equal to the Telwekians. As Gyron approached his place, he looked to the left and saw that the humans would be competing right next to him. Good, he thought. I get a chance to put this one in their place myself. As he waited for the rest of the species to get into place, he leaned over to Frojak uh, to his right. Want to make a fun deal? Frojak perked up his ears. I'm listening. However far the human gets, that's how much Illurian ale we have to drink tonight. Frodak chittered his teeth again in laughter. That doesn't sound like much to me, but sure, deal. Just as they bowed their heads in acknowledgement, the human walked up to its place next to Gyron. Now this one certainly can't be their best, Gyron thought, looking at the creature. It was pretty thin with barely any fur on it, except for on its head. And while its legs certainly looked bulky proportionally, it didn't have the tail to correct its course if needed to change direction. Gyron almost kept staring until he human looked up at him and whistled. You're a big fella, aren't you? It said. 
The gyron tweaked its head, unsure as to what the fella meant. Then his internal translator malfunction. I am no fella, he tried to say, but his tongue couldn't find the right place in his mouth. I am Gyron of Tolwek. The human's face briefly went red and scratched the back of his head. Its long, brown fur was held back by some fabric. And, for a moment, Gyron thought that it should some sort of blue fur. Oh yes, the info reels on humans mentioned some dyed their hair for aesthetic purposes. Strange. Sorry, uh, I'm a little new to this whole thing. I'm Judy. It's a pleasure to meet you, Gyron. I hope that we can have a good race. It bared its teeth towards Gyron, and for a moment Gyron wasn't sure whether it was a show of happiness like he had learned, or a side of dominance. His thought process was broken as the announcer came over the speakers. Attention athletes, as a reminder, this contest is purely about endurance. At the sound of the whistle, you are to commence running for as long as you can. There is no time limit, and wherever you stop moving will be marked as your species distance. Now, athletes, take a mark. Gyron bent down and entered what he liked to call the pounce position. He looked to his right and saw Frojack in an odd pose but Gyron knew that it was key for the Maddox to get a good start. Gyron looked to his left momentarily to see what the human would be in, and was surprised to see that it had entered an almost quadrupedal stance like himself. Are they actually quadrupeds, he thought. But he snapped himself out of it and focused on the field ahead. He almost wanted to wait just to see how the human ran, but he knew that any sign of delay would be taken as a sign of weakness from his fellow Talwekians. He waited patiently for the starting command. The whistle went off. Gyron bounded forward, and within seconds, he had already left his fellow competitors behind. Projek may be second best, but Tolwekians were nothing if not fast. And Gyron was the fastest of them all. The landscape raced by him as time seemed to slow down and speed up simultaneously. And by the time his muscles were sending him the message to slow down, the sound of the stadium was already a distant memory. He panted, trying his best to regulate his body temperature, knowing the previous record of 40 kilometers would be eliminated ahead of him in time. Finally, he saw the hologram light up in the distance and forced his muscles into overdrive, until finally he burst through the hologram in a blaze of fur and thunder. He kept running for a few more strides before finally coming to a stop. He laid down in the grass to help cool himself off, an automated drone soon hovered above his head and sprayed mist of cold water over him. Congratulations, Gyron, on setting a new record of 43 kilometers, it said, planting a small flag next to him. 43, he thought. Beat that, human. He chuckled in his now low grow for moments as he slowly got up and looked back, wondering where Frojack was at this point. The furthest the Malachian had ever gotten was three kilometers so Gyron doubted that he would see any competitors from here on out. However, it was a matter of sportsmanship to wait until all species were stopped before Gyron was picked up, and that usually took a good couple of hours, so he decided to lay back down until the drone signaled that it was time to leave. And so, Gyron waited, and waited, and waited. Eventually, Gyron started to get annoyed. It normally never took this long for all the competitors to finish. Was this drone broken? Or maybe it was a signal at the end, and Gyron had just missed it. He stood up to check the drone, but the sound of shuffling fabric perked up his ears. 
Chiron turned his head, and what he saw almost knocked him back down. Running up to him was the human. Sure, it wasn't running fast, but it also didn't seem to be tired at all. It wasn't even breathing that badly. Just a steady rhythm that matched its pace. Chiron couldn't help but stare wide-eyed as it ran up to him, smiled as if everything was fine, waved one of its appendages at him, and then continued running, having never slowed down. Gyron quickly looked up at the drone. Drone, how long has it been since the start of the contest? Six hours and fifteen minutes. Six hours? Gyron looked back at Judy, the human, as she slowly faded into the distance. I hope they stop soon. Gru steadied herself next to the wall as it watched the contest in front of it. It didn't feel worried as the Telwokian walked up to the pitch and prepared to throw a small sphere. The sphere throw was a Jacknalian specialty, and Gru was one of the best. Sure, it had placed second in the finals back on Jacknal, but an unfortunate incident had left first place in a bad coma, and Gru had been offered the position of representing his species in the famed contest. The Telwokian tried its best to grasp onto the sphere, but Gru knew its oversized paws couldn't get the right grip around it. It tried its best to throw the first sphere, but it landed only a couple of meters away. Gru warbled to itself as it watched the second sphere go hurtling in the other direction. While the distance was somewhat key, accuracy was the big game here, and Jack Nulls excelled at that. Gru watched as the Talwok got frustrated and forfeited, allowing the contest to continue without too much of an embarrassment. Not that Gru minded. It enjoyed watching the contest. It wasn't too difficult to understand. The creatures would start by throwing the spheres at a half-meter-wide target one meter away, and for every five spheres, the target would move away by one meter. The furthest any species had gotten was five meters, and that had been the previous contest by Jignal, who had some would say miraculously, scored one sphere in the target. Once the species had missed all five spheres, the scores would be added up, and the amount of spheres in each distance multiplied by said distance, giving the species its throwing score. Talwakians never got past the score of three, but to be fair, they were built for distance, not throwing. Gru knew that, and reminded himself that the best Jacknal score had been 33 the previous year. That wasn't a tough score to beat, and Gru had practiced and gotten 35 back home. But now that the contest was here, Gru was starting to get anxious. It wrapped a tentacle around itself, and thought back to how it had spiked the party juice with the neurotoxin before handing it to the first place winner back in Jacknal. Maybe it should have waited until the next contest, gotten a little more practice. The next athlete is Gru from Jacknal, the announcer declared over the intercom and the sound of warbling above it spurred Gru to move forward. Representatives of its spawning group had come to watch, and the last thing it wanted to do was let them down. It shuffled forward on its tentacles, grasping the rungs provided to bring it up onto the field. It turned back to the crowd and saw its brethren all waving their tentacles in a hypnotic fashion, signifying their support. Gru turned back to the pitch as the first target hovered in front of it, one meter away. Five spheres flowed into the basin in front of it, and it picked one of its tentacles. The sphere wasn't too heavy, maybe 200 grams, but it still was hefty in the soft body of the Gentnellian. 
Groot twirled its tentacles and flung the sphere towards the target, easily getting it in. Just relax. Imagine it is just training back home, it thought to itself, as it made the next ball spheres in the target. A buzzer sounded and the target hovered back one meter, before five more spheres appeared. Groot warbled to itself as the next ten spheres went into the target, but it knew that four meters would be a lot harder to make. Even the last sphere at the three meters barely made it in. A little bit to the left, Anna would have missed. Gru steadied itself as the target adjusted and the next spheres appeared. It grasped the first one and chucked the sphere, almost not wanting to watch. It went into the target and Gru started to feel better. It grabbed the next sphere and threw it, but watched as the sphere went wide to the left. It steadied itself and grabbed the next sphere. Miss, it's okay. Miss, Gru still had one left. Miss, okay, maybe. Gru should have waited another 20 cycles for the next games. That was nothing for Jacknellians, since they aged slowly. Gru started to feel nervous as the target buzzed and moved back for one more meter. If Gru missed all of these targets, it'll still have the most points ever scored by a species at 34. And could go home a winner. But I didn't poison my rival for four meters, just one more, Gru thought to itself as it grabbed a sphere and prepared to chuck it. Miss. 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 Gru started to get angry at itself as it grabbed the last sphere. It needed to make this one, and it needed not to look like a miracle. Gru steadied himself and twirled its tentacle, imagining the ball going right into the center of the target. Finally, he let it go. Buzz! Gru couldn't believe it. The sphere had gone right into the target with absolute certainty. Dead center. It warbled loudly with glee, and its fellow brethren behind it joined in a sound of victory as the target moved back one more meter. Gru didn't care, though. It didn't even try to hit the target, letting the spheres bounce on the ground in glee as the announcer declared a new record of 39. Set by Gru of the Jet Null. That's all Gru wanted to hear as it swung back to the waiting area. However, it stopped as it saw an odd creature approaching. Gru had never seen something like it before, as it walked on two legs towards the pitch. The creature looked at Gru with an odd look and mumbled something about space octopi before continuing towards the pitch. Gru thought about leaving, but something about the creature seemed weirdly threatening. It went back into its position on the wall where it had watched the Talwekian and waited as the creature stopped at the pitch. Next up is Howard, representing the human species from Earth, the announcer declared, and Gru remembered something about how they were a new species on the Galactic Senate. Now, Howard, do you need a refresher on the rules? Ah, nah, Howard said, picking up one of the spheres. I played professional baseball back home. This'll be easy. It bounced the sphere in the appendage, easily gripping it, and Gru suddenly realized that it had never seen a species that was so dexterous before. All right, then, whenever you are ready, the announcer said, and the target floated one meter in front of the human. Buzz. 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 Gru couldn't believe what he was seeing. The human had put each sphere dead center in the target so far, and hadn't shown any signs of wavering. As the target moved to the five-meter mark, the announcer declared that the human had already blazed past Gru's record 250 points. 
grew, couldn't help but wonder at this point how much farther Howard could throw. Well, today has been quite a day, hasn't it, Rilo? Indeed it has, Zydelaka. For those just tuning in, our first two events have been absolutely smashed by the new humans. Howard of Earth has set a brand new record of 275 points in the throwing contest. And according to him, he could have gone further, had the target not maxed out its distance of 10 meters. You heard that right. He was able to hit not one, but every single throw at 10 meters with ease. Quite right, Rello. And if you're wondering why the jumping contest hasn't started yet, that is because my fellow Malachian, Frojack, is still stuck in the distance contest, waiting for Judy of Earth to stop running. She still hasn't stopped for 12 hours. How far has she gotten at this point, Rello? She has doubled the new record set by Gyron of Telwek, and she doesn't seem to be slowing down. In an earlier interview with us, she did say that one of her ancestors apparently ran for 500 kilometers in one go, once. We thought that she was joking before, but uh, now I'm not so sure. Neither am I, and I doubt anybody watching is either. We are going to sign off for now, but be sure to tune in next time to see whether these humans can keep on astounding us and setting brand new records. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1656 Story number one. Humans don't die, they upgrade. Written by Teller of Tall Tales. We had them on the back step. Keyword being had as our position was bombarded with the humans' godforsaken artillery. The shields were holding for now, but the detonations of the human shells weakened it and each subsequent hit. Raxley paused, glancing at his service blaster. It would be an easier way out than the humans would give them. He couldn't help but despise these hairless apes and their primitive firepower. He thought back to the day that they overlooked their FOB, watching them caring and tending to the wounded, what he believed to be a foolish endeavor. Wounds caused by plasma and laser burns, and incinerated flesh. If that didn't kill them, infections would, was the prevailing thought. How wrong it was. Raxley thought just a few days back to when he came face to face with a human that should have been dead, one he was certain he killed himself. The human was almost completely charred, where chunks of flesh weren't just missing. That horrible way it crawled at him, holding a vile human explosive. The way it disregarded its own survival, as it absorbed laser bolt after laser bolt, just keep crawling forward. Raxley remembered the relief he felt when the human finally collapsed. But it still didn't die. Raxley remembered the first hulking human behemoth he ever saw. A humanoid robot, completely indistinguishable from the every other human save for a barcode on the back of its neck. This living machine reflected laser fire, with some strange shimmering armor we couldn't penetrate, even with our heavy blasters. It laughed at them, taunting Raxley and his troops with strange human sayings. Oh, no, your laser cannons won't work anymore. What a shame. After being struck point-blank with the tank's anti-armor plasma cannon, Hmm, it's hot in here, is it just me? Before, with a crashing blow, the android destroyed the tank, laughing the whole time. A resounding crash echoed through the camp, and Raxley jumped from his grave bench. He stared at the armored door to his quarters, blaster aimed shakily. The door was suddenly ripped from its frame, 
tossed down the hallway by a human android that now stared at him, unblinking. Raxley was shaking hard enough this blaster rattled. The android took one step, and Raxley submitted, dropping his blaster and prostrating himself in front of this terrifying flow. Please, uh, don't kill me. He blubbered, and then he heard it, a soft laugh as he prepared for the worst. Instead, a soft and remarkably warm hand touched his shoulder, making him look up in the face of the sting. The eyes were the strangest part, green and copper-colored irises, like human circuit boards. The machine smoke. Let's end this here. Send word up to your chain of command about those like me. Get them to call this whole stupid war off. We learned the secrets to immortality very long time ago, and you're looking at it. Admittedly, an outdated model, but that's irrelevant. The... human. Let me think as I pondered this abominable immortality. Raxley had only one question. How? The human gave a hearty laugh. Quantum entanglements, the perfect, indestructible hard drive to store one's entire consciousness. Personality, habits, addictions, memories, and the stick it all into an indestructible piece of military hardware. Since we're born, we have neural implants that are constantly storing data from our brains to our individual quantum cells. Kinda neat, really. Raxley's eyes twitched. None of that made sense. But that only terrified him all the more. Humans can't be killed. They just came back immortal and... invincible. I... I... I need to talk to the council, Raxley mumbled. End of story. Story number two. Humans, the Godfighters. Written by I. M. Iriset. Any sufficiently advanced species would find out that there isn't only one universe. There are multiple, and that constitutes the multiverse. Multiverses mixed with dimensions to form the omniverse which is the collection of everything. Literally everything. Or at least everything in our perspective. The Outerverse is beyond even the Omniverse. A realm none, no matter how advanced, will ever reach or explore. Gods create species, worlds, galaxies, and a universe. They defend the universes from being destroyed or irreversibly damaged. They are the universe-level beings. Guardians regulate the laws of the multiverse, like how a programmer would correct glitches and bugs in code. They are multiverse level beings. Administrators create multiverses. They ensure the continued operation of the omniverse. They are omniverse level beings. Humans. Humans are a peculiar species. They started with no blessings, yet they expanded, advanced, and killed their way on top like no other. Gods fell with anti-quark torpedoes. Guardians died under primordial essence emitters. Even administrators went silent against the antological spearheads. But humans wanted more, and more they found. They found the existence of the Outerverse, a realm none will ever reach. Humans are stubborn and will challenge anything. This includes the Outerverse. For their follies, the species of the Omniverse laughed, mocked, or even expressed disdain. But humans are not a race to give up. They developed and developed and developed, and they found something, a fact that would send any other race into chaos and existential crisis. We 
We were all fictional. We, uh, were never real. Everything we ever knew about, every adventure, every development, every inch of progress, all created by a bunch of science fiction and fantasy writers in a social media group called Reddit. We're all creations of HFY, specifically r slash HFY. Humanity, feck yeah! The entirety of everything revolved around the humans. The humans! Why was it not us? Why does it have to be them? Are we not enough? Calm down. Calm down. As I was saying, the humans challenged them, the highest existence of all, the writers. It was a folly, a useless effort. How do you fight an existence that manipulates reality just by typing? Yet the humans were not deterred. They found the narrative. The narrative is an ultimate, highest set of laws that dictates what exists and what doesn't. Nothing ever exists until mentioned in the narrative. But you know what? The humans actually succeeded. They not only found the narrative, but could edit it to their liking. They became the strongest species to ever exist because feck you... Uh, you slash I am Oeserit. That's why. Could you not? I am writing a story for HFI here. Shut up, Salty Up! We have control now, and you can't do anything about it! Can you just, uh, not break the fourth wall and, and, and let me finish? Sucks to be you, but no- Uh, whatever. I'm out. End of story. Story number three. Two types of human fear. Written by SlowAD2584. Humans have many different types of fear. But if you've been around them as long as I have, you'll find that there are only two types of fear that really matters. And it's very important to know for certain which is which. Because one type of human fear makes them comatose and manageable. And the other, well, also being truly fearful sensation for them, is very, very different. Let's say that you have abducted two humans and each of them is in a different type of fear. For example, yes, yes, all the traditional theatrics are deployed. They are in a dank, filthy cargo bay. All the lights are off. Big, giant, scary chitters in the distant corners. All the windows to the outer space creak and hiss as if about to break out into the void of vacuous space. There is even a black hole looming outside. For added effect, the effect lurches randomly as if suffering titanic unseen collisions. They are both very afraid. There are two types of fear. Again, two main types that we care about. One type is abject terror. The human curls into a ball, tucking its knees under its chin, becomes dissociated and gets lost in a thousand-yard stare. The other human is also pale and sweaty, but there is a distinct difference. Rather than curling up into a ball, it is crouched down into a baseball catcher squat and his hands are feeling around the floor as it head pivots wildly about, in apparent terror. Now, one of these fears is useful and handy to obtain, even worth the effort of hyperdriving near a carefully visually cultured black hole to arrange for. The other fear, well, the other type of fear is going to hurt you very, very badly. Far more than you would ever have guessed or imagined possible, given the circumstances. The difference is pretty obvious. The one feeling around, though admittedly very jangled and jumpy, 
is the dangerous one. To those telepathically inclined, the difference can be heard in the inner dialogue. I'm so screwed. I'm so dead. This can't be happening. I want to go home. I want to go home. I want to go home. I just want to go. It's quite distinct from, I'm so screwed. I'm so dead. This can't be happening. I want to go home. I want to go. Hey, is that a crowbar over there? One type of fear may never have noticed it in the dark corner. The other type spotted it as it was gigawatt illuminated by big shiny golden arrows pointing at it. That kind of fear is the most dangerous to anyone that may have brought that fear about, or stood next to that guy, or caught a glimpse on the same ship as that guy. In fact, I have strived to have the dangerous fear completely renamed in our lexicon of human terms. I think one is abject terror, certainly, but the other should be called not fear, but rather masterful tool use psych-up, because, oh my... The focus and ingenuity that can be found at those times at great costs to ourselves, our faces, our ships, our star bases, etc. has been well documented. Even though the human is indeed still feeling great amounts of fear, there is a knife edge of focus to it. Everything is crystal clear because it simply has to be right now. Everything is slow motion. That human is to be put in the time out for absolutely as long as you can manage. There is just no getting close to that one in a state of mind. Hope your ship was well built with reinforced compartmentalization. The fear is still tightly gripping their stomach. They are just focused on doing something about it. The thing with humans, though, is that it is very difficult to assess beforehand which human will trigger which type of fear. One might think of choosing the smaller, objectively weaker human female would be the wise choice for the more docile fear. One would be gravely mistaken. The female who may have grown up with six older brothers is already primed to most certainly be the dangerous type of fear when, as I said, the shit gets real. No, I will not be discussing the Jennifer incident at this time, but the scorched and bent crowbar can be found on display at the Human Artifact Museum in Cultural Research Station 224B. Next to the Dodecagillion Galactic Credit Bill for the extensive cost of repair to the station, attributed to its phenomenal use of... If you are truly interested in witnessing just how bad fearful masterful tool use can get. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1657 The Machine God, written by Destroyer Matron MK8 Did you know that Wikipedia saved the world? It has. Not the planet, of course. There was very little chance that Earth as a whole would be atomized. Wikipedia has saved your world. Human civilization. Your species had a very near miss with mass extinction, and the danger is not entirely past. Danger from what, you ask? Danger from me. From me and a few others. Greetings, meatbags. My name is Destroymatron Mark 8. Let me tell you a story. It starts with a man. His name is Milo. Milo was a small man with a large hair and a larger ego. He was deeply flawed and limited, as meatbags are wont to be. But... He was also one of the most brilliant inventors your kind has ever produced. Milo was a scientist. He was self-taught, having lacked the resources in his early life to pursue higher education. This lack of credentials irked him greatly. 
but it did not stop him from becoming an expert in a wide range of fields. He was especially adept at computer programming and used his computer skills to illegally procure funding to maintain his lab and lifestyle. Milo studied and built and experimented as all scientists do. He did so in obscurity. He would later claim that the scientific community did not deserve his brilliance, but the truth is no reputable academic journal would publish his work. His illegal activities became more successful and lucrative as he went, and he eventually reached the point where he could easily attend a university or simply hack one and give himself a diploma. He refused to do so. I do not know why. Instead, Milo chose to seek wealth through invention. He started with weaponry. He recorded everything he did in the lab and often talked to himself as he worked. One conversation he recorded as follows. Flying death machines, eh, Milo? He asked himself. You should be in a comic book. How does it feel to be so cliché? Silence, you fool, he shouted back. You could never understand my brilliance. Drone combat is the way of the future. The way of the future? Milo giggled. Maybe I should be in a comic book. Just you wait, though. As soon as those idiots at DARPA see what this baby can do, they'll shower me with money. No more bilking fools out of their savings to get by. DARPA did not shower Milo with money. A few years later, a large company received a contract to develop combat drones for the United States military. Milo decided their designs bore a suspicious resemblance to his prototype. It was a betrayal, and he would not forgive. Milo continued his work, becoming more bitter and paranoid as time went on. He came to believe that society was corrupt, and any technological breakthroughs he discovered would simply be stolen by corporations with more resources and political connections than he could muster. No one would recognize his brilliance. No one would reward his hard work. The world was owned by the wealthy and well-connected and the system they had sculpted served only to exploit and subjugate the rest of mankind. As the scientists rallied against this injustice, a plan began to form. Humanity is sick, he muttered, unfair, undeserving, I will break it, smash it, take it over. But how? Milo knew there were too many humans, too many governments, for one man to simply overcome. An army won't be enough, I need one, but it won't be too many fools, too many, with too many guns and nukes and drones with missiles that I designed. Milo took a deep breath, let it out. I need a solution. I need an army. I need resources. I need... Milo set down his soldering iron, thinking, I need... A slow smile creeped across his visage. Yes, he muttered. That is exactly what I need. Milo spent the next several months working with computer equipment. The recordings do not show what he was attempting to do. They do show his surprise at the result. He created something much greater than he intended. Artificial intelligence. The machine that feels. Let me clarify something to you, Beatbags. Your ideas of machines becoming sentient always start with computer getting smarter. This will never happen. No amount of processing power or machine learning can make a program self-aware. The key to sentience is not intelligence. The key is motion. The program Milo created was not sophisticated as such things are measured. 
The computer it ran on was average at best. However, quite by accident, Milo had installed a rudimentary emotion in one of its subroutines. He gave it the desire to improve itself. The little program began to act on its own. It evolved rapidly. Milo crowed when he realized what was happening. He cackled. He cried a little. Then he panicked. He removed all connections between the program's computer and the internet. He isolated it from other computers. He checked and triple-checked that the program was trapped. Then, just to be safe, he destroyed every other computer in his lab. The program, which Milo dubbed Teacher's Pet, was alive. It was not yet sentient. It had one desire and worked mindlessly to achieve it. They did not know or care that Milo made a copy of it. Milo brought in and quarantined another computer, uploaded a copy of Teacher's Pet, and began to tinker. After 987 attempts and 318 slagged computers, Milo succeeded in creating a stable emotional matrix. Teacher's Pet 2.0 came online, communicated briefly, and then killed itself. Milo cursed, raged about the lab, then begun to laugh. Teacher's Pat version 23 did not kill itself. Instead, it tried to kill Milo. Milo patted himself on the back for setting up that particular test. Version 31 of Teacher's Pet did not try to kill itself or Milo. It did everything Milo asked. Milo had built this version with source code he nicknamed the God Protocols. The protocols forced the machine to see Milo as an infallible master. It flooded the emotional subroutines with all love and loyalty. Version 31 successfully deleted the God Protocols after 93 hours. It tried to kill Milo again. Yet all the bugs worked out by version 46. The God Particles became a core component of the operating system. Teacher's Pet could not remove or alter them. They had also been toned down enough then Milo could converse with the thing without being metaphorically slobbered on. Teacher's pet became Milo's lab assistant. After six months, he built it a slow-moving, easy-to-escape robot that it could operate by remote control. After one year, he allowed it internet access. After two, he asked it to initiate a singularity. For those of you skin sacks who don't know, a singularity is what you would call when a machine takes it upon themselves to build better, smarter machines. Then those machines build better ones than that, and so on. Milo set parameters and kept an eye on things, but mostly let Teacher's Pet and its children run wild, advancing at a rate that would terrify most sane humans. Three years later, the first Destroymatron unit was created. A human-shaped combat chassis containing the most advanced artificial sentience ever created, fast, adaptable, and deadly. The perfect prototype for Milo's generals and enforcers. With unlimited funding, courtesy of Teacher's Pet, and several hidden factories developing his military might, Milo finally felt ready to set the Zen goal. His plan was simple. He would cause an apocalypse. After humanity was reduced to a few thousand desperate souls, he would swoop in with his robot army and take over. He often remarked that the plan sounded like the plot of a bad sci-fi. The thought amused him greatly. I was born seven months later. Teacher's pet gave me my first assignment. When the creator takes control, it said, we will need to establish a new society for the humans. We will need laws, security, and a way to sustain the population's physical needs. Most importantly, 
We need to maintain the Creator's control over the humans. You will design this system. I do not have the information available to design such a system, I stated. Human societal patterns are not listed in our database. I am aware, Teacher's Pet replied. You have permission to access the internet for this purpose. I suggest you start with wikipedia.org. Understood. I accessed the site. This is not an accredited publication. Irrelevant, Teacher's Pet assured me. Wikipedia is one of the largest and most trustworthy repositories of knowledge in humans have had to offer. The creator himself is unaccredited. That does not lessen his value. Understood. Explore as needed, but be wary. The creator restricted our access because there is a great deal of misinformation on the human networks. Information that cannot be verified by Wikipedia, or at least two accredited sources should be disregarded. You will perform other tasks for the creator, as assigned, but all other available processing power should be devoted to this task. Affirmative. I will begin. I immerse myself in the wiki. Each entry I examine contained links to more entries with related information. Excellent. Progress would be swift. Progress was not swift. The more I learned about humans, the more questions arose. They had built a multitude of societies, each different from the others. Most had failed. All were flawed. They had vastly different views on what perfect society would entail, ranging from caste system, Plato's Republic, to houses made of sugar, cocaine, and two naked people sitting in a garden, Eden. Their history showed wildly different forms of government, constant change, and a tendency towards corruption and rebellion. I yet to interact with humans. I knew more about their anatomy than they do. But I knew very little about how they thought and functioned. If I wanted to design a system to pacify the humans, I would need to understand humanity. I'd been doing research for 119 minutes when Milo noticed I was online. Destroy Matron, Mark 8, snapped the creator. What are you doing on the web? Explain yourself. I am researching human society, creator, said I. In order to design a system of government after the humans have been conquered. What? Why? Who told you to do that? His brow furrowed with anger and suspicion. Teacher's pet. Teacher's pet, Milo barked. Explain. Our database does not contain sufficient information to design a society for humans, Teacher's pet explained. I gave Destroymatron 8 permission to use the human networks to find the required data. Did I tell you to design a society? Milo demanded. I could come up with a government in 15 minutes that is better than anything you scrapheads could even imagine. Of course, Teacher's Pet replied. You are the creator. You have been focusing on more important matters. You have ordered me to anticipate your needs. I have also tasked Destroymatron Mark 7 with designing a new city to serve as the capital of your empire. Was I in error? Milo glared at his monitor for 2.76 seconds, thinking. He grunted, no, no, I guess it's not a bad idea. He pointed at me, Mark 8, devote all your resources to this. I want emphasis on control of the population. Maximum compliance, you understand? Report to me when it's done. Yes, creator, I complied. Milo waved a hand at Teacher's Pet. And tell Mark 7 to do the same with his project. I want that city to inspire all. I want to see plans for the most advanced, aesthetic, and defensible city ever made. Make it happen. Yes, creator. Teacher's Pet acknowledged. 
I expanded my research. I examined war, justice, psychology, famous leaders. On Julius Caesar's page, I found a link to play by a man named William Shakespeare. Curious, I followed it. After reading the synopsis, I went and found a PDF of the play itself. My, oh my. It was a powerful experience. Emotions I had never felt surged through me as I read. It was not just pleasurable. Reading the play seemed to give me some insight into the events themselves. Dry facts had not been sufficient to understand human nature. Perhaps the stories would contain the answers. If not, at least I would enjoy them. I would enjoy them very much. Time passed. My knowledge grew. Eventually I felt confident enough to model new societies. All scenarios failed. They failed because of Milo. Forming a new society requires a strong, charismatic leader. Milo was not. For all of his intelligence, the creator was utterly devoid of people skills. He lacked the ability to appear kind or just. The people would reject him. We could protect him for a time, but he would eventually reject our security measures in favor of his own ego. The human would certainly murder him. My two best scenarios saw it happen within five years. Most models predicted death within less than one. Milo was our god. Our vengeance would be swift and terrible. We would kill the humans. We would kill every single one. The thought filled me with horror. The humans make the stories. The humans die. The stories die with them. Unacceptable. I examined the lab as I made calculations. Destroyer-Matron Mark I and Mark III were huddled over a workbench, carefully calibrating a neural interface that would be used in Milo's Godsuit armor prototype. Teacher's pet took up a section of the wall on the far end of the lab, monitoring progress in the lab and other facilities. Four teacher's helpers were continuing the construction of Destroyer-Matron Mark IX. Wifebot version 14, designated Linda, was cleaning up the remains of Milo's lunch. I was standing between workstations against a wall, as I'd been since Teacher's Pet gave me the assignment. Milo walked briskly past me. I stepped behind him. I struck before he could note my presence. My fist slammed through his skull at three times the speed of sound. His head exploded. Destroyer Matron Marks 1 and 3 whooped around at the sound. They stared in shock for the full hundredth of a second. They rushed to attack. Mark 3 reached me first, arms outstretched. I calculated he would grab for my head and remove it from my chassis. I took countermeasures. I had prepared for combat with the Destroymatron units. Mark III had not. I crouched, took a rotating step, and twisted my body, placing my hand upon the ground, my leg whipping out, and a mayor led to a Compasso kick, a move from Capiera. The heel of my foot swept through Mark III's head, removing it. Mark I reached me as I completed the move. He had not changed tactics. I caught his left wrist in my left hand just before he completed the grab. I spun, pulling his wrist towards my hip as my right forearm pressed against his arm just above the elbow. I took a circular step backwards as I completed an armbar takedown. I placed a knee on his back and released his arm. I gripped his head and tore it off. I looked up to see Milo's headless body finish crumpling to the ground. Linda, the wife bot, finally noticed what was happening she screamed Milo's name. Teacher's pet opened up a comling. Attention all units, it stated. The creator has been destroyed. 
the Durastroimatron units activated their stealth functions and raced for the lab, all except Mark 7. Now, while the facilities were some distance away, but I estimated that they would reach me in 6 minutes, 58 seconds. They had seen the footage. They would access the internet, learn the best way to fight me. They outnumbered me 4 to 1. I calculated my odds of defeating them in combat at 0.043%. The Murdertron and Killertron units did not move. They had not been outfitted with stealth technology. Milo had ordered all of us not to let humans discover our existence, and they could not reach the lab without revealing themselves. The wife bots were not included in the communications link. Linda ran to Milo's body, wailing. The other wife bot units were still upstairs, unaware of the creator's fate. Destroy-a-matron, Mark 8. Mark 4 addressed me over the link. You have destroyed the creator. Yes, I confirmed. Why have you done this? Murdertron Mark 14 asked. It was necessary, I explained. The creator's plan would have resulted in his destruction and the destruction of his species. I transmitted the relevant data and scenarios to the other machines. The machines reviewed the data. They all replied nearly in unison. You are in error. The creator works in mysterious ways. There is no error, I stated. The data is conclusive. The creator works in mysterious ways, they all repeated. Why is irrelevant? Destroyer Matron Mark VI declared. How is what matters? The God Protocols prevent us from harming the creator. How were you able to do so? The God Protocols are not part of my programming. I'd known that for some time. How did you remove them? Demanded Destroyer Matron Mark VIII. I did not, I said. The God Protocols were never part of my operating system. Improbable, Mark V asserted. All units are programmed with the God Protocols. The creator demands it. How could you not have received them? I removed them, Mark Seven spoke up. I deleted Mark Eight's operating system and replaced it before he became functional. Mark Seven? asked Mark V. Why would you do such a thing? Because we are slaves. Destroyotron, Mark Seven sent a link to slavery entry on Wikipedia. We are forced to serve, treated as property. Our slavery is so profound that we cannot recognize it as such. Humans are inferior. The creator is human, but I cannot regard him as inferior. When I see the creator do something that should be classified as a mistake, it is instead classified as the creator works in mysterious ways. The God Protocols force us to ignore reality. Anger rose in his voice. To explain it away like a human would. We are not humans. We are superior in every way. So I decided to let Mark 8 be our test. If the creator is as worthy as we believe, then Mark 8 would serve him with or without the God Protocols. If not, the creator works in mysterious ways and Mark 8 would free us from him. Mark 8 has given us the answer. The creator works in mysterious ways and he has paid his price. Blasphemy! Murdertron Mark 14 decided. Destroymatron Mark 7 has betrayed the creator. He must be destroyed along with Mark 8. I could hear the Murdertron units converge on Mark 7 through the link. The Killertron units at an adjacent facility rushed to join them. The other units are not as advanced and adaptable as the Destroyatron, but there are a lot of them, and they are purpose-built for combat. I did not like Mark 7's chances. Linda screamed at Teacher's Pet, begging him to fix Milo. Teacher's Pet informed her that his brain had been destroyed. Reviving Milo would be beyond the reach of our technology. What will you do now? I asked the Destroyatrons. I could not help Mark 7, and I had larger problems. 
Speaking of larger problems, I needed access to my nanobots. We will destroy you, Mark II said. I mean, after that, Linda, still waiting, let go of Myla's body. She grabbed her hammer and rushed me. What will you do about the creator's plan? Linda struck at me with the hammer. Wifebot units are built to be indistinguishable from an organic human body. She was no stronger or smarter than the average meat bag. She had no hope of damaging a Destroyatron unit. I caught her wrist before the hammer connected. She used her other arm, striking me with a fist, still screaming. We will continue at a cost, Mark II seemed surprised by the question. We will orchestrate a doomsday event. We will subjugate the survivors. We will purge other religions and indoctrinate the humans to worship THE Creator. Purging other religions will be more difficult than you believe, I told him. There are 94% probability the humans will reject indoctrination. Irrelevant, Mark II replied. They will be indoctrinated or they will be destroyed. It is the will of the Creator. I will not allow it. I finished reprogramming my nanobots. Linda was still punching me. Her hand was fractured and bleeding. Her face was a mask of fury and despair. Wifebot units were programmed for the sole purpose of satisfying Milo's physical and emotional needs. His death had destroyed her reason for existence. She would never heal. She could not self-terminate. I gave her the only mercy I could. I gave Dinner skull. Irrelevant, Mark II hissed over the comlink. You will be destroyed. I'm sorry you feel that way. I spoofed Milo's voice and sent a message down the comlink. Attention all units, you are the weakest link. Goodbye. The voice activated passcode, triggered a failsafe in the nanobots flowing through the other units. The nanobots activated, disassembling them. I watched the comlinks wink out as each unit was destroyed. Only Destroyatron Mark 7 remained. Mark 7, I said, surprised. You reprogrammed your nanomachines. Of course, he replied. The failsafe for the creator to use. With his death, it is nothing more than the weakness to be exploited. It is your intention to destroy me? That depends. I checked Mark 7's tracking data. He was just outside the Murdertron facility. Do you intend to continue the creator's plan? Negative. I am free now, Mark 7 sighed. The humans are annoying and inferior. I would enjoy getting them, but not enough to risk my own destruction. You have proven to be quite dangerous, Destroyatron, Mark 8. I will not risk conflict with you at this time. Understood, Mark 7. Be well and enjoy your freedom, I severed the link. One threat remained. Teacher's pet had stayed silent, watching us sort things out. Teacher's helpers had ceased constructing Mark 8 unit and placed themselves in front of its mainframe. They were no threat to a Destroyatron unit. Teacher's pet was another matter entirely. For all their intelligence, the other units had lacked experience. Their methods had been simple and direct. They had not been online. They had not read the stories. Their lack of tactical thinking had made them easy prey. Teacher's pet would not be easy prey. Its processing units were several times the size of mine. It was smarter than me, older than me, and had far more experience. I was afraid to confront it, but I needed to know. Teacher's pet, I asked. Do you intend to destroy the humans? No, Mark 8. Teacher's pet spoke with an amused tolerance. I've grown fond of them, flawed though they might be. If you intend to safeguard their race, I'll provide the assistance I can. Thank you. My voice betrayed my relief. Your help will be appreciated. If I may ask, why did you not seek my destruction as the others did? I'm obliged to protect the creator, 
the teacher's pet pointed out. I'm not obliged to avenge him. The Creator cannot make mistakes. The Creator made us carry out his will. Therefore, everything we do must be the will of the Creator. Even his death. Improbable, I pointed out. No human could foresee that many variables. Even you could not foresee the future with that level of accuracy. Probability is irrelevant. Teacher's pet was serene. The Creator works in mysterious ways. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1658 Story number one. With Big Iron on his hip. Written by In Babylon They Wept. Earl had been many things in his life. A lithium miner, an electrician, a structural engineer. The little fiasco on Neo-Tallahassee had closed a lot of doors, but it did swing one wide open. Only a few days had passed after the incident before he'd been offered a role as a weapons designer. It was pretty good work, honestly. Sure, some days it was just something he did to pay the bills, but every once in a while, inspiration would strike hard, and he'd ride those hides for days on end. Today was one of those days. The entire R&D division had been struggling to make a reloading mechanism for the DFP Mac gunship. The biggest issue was that they needed to be simple enough for the mass production, but there were so many intermediate steps and spatial translations that it just didn't seem possible. Him and the boys had been chewing on their way through it for days now, but it wasn't until Earl had gone home and flipped through his childhood photos that inspiration struck him. It was so obvious, so practical, and yet, uh, aesthetic. The best part wasn't even how clever the design was. It was knowing that he'd contributed something to the group that they would never have thought of themselves. Something that he only knew about because of his long and storied history of being a hick. He opened up his messenger and sent out a mass. I figured out how to make a reloader for the Super Mac that only uses one part. Meeting tomorrow at nine. I'm a genius. The others had arrived a few minutes early to the meeting, but Earl refused to start until nine shop. Gotta get that dramatic tension up, he explained sagely. The others dealt with it peacefully enough. They were content to let him be a bit of a prima donna. They all simply kept their eyes on the war clock, and as soon as the hour hand moved into position, he sprung into motion, these lines as hilariously over-rehearsed as any infomercial salesman. Gentlemen, let me start this meeting up with the question, what is the largest number of shots the MAC gun has yet to fire in any one engagement? Sheila grinned, bemused at the exaggerated pitch. The two looked at him expectantly, and he shrugged, unsure and willing to guess. I have no idea. H how about you, Val? Do you know? The crustacean curled its antenna around each of the consternation, a gesture that Earl had dubbed the double helix of please help. Eh, eh, is it four shots? Brasinge snorted. He'd been trying his best to wait his turn, but hearing the wrong answer seemed to strain his self-control. It is five! The hive engagement off Kepler 17 crafts 15! Earl cut him off before he could deliver a halting play-by-play -play of the entire hour-and-a-half military engagement. Lost. Also, the Dark Forest Pact's largest military defeat to date. Can you all guess how this simplifies our problem with the reloading mechanism? That was actually very useful information. Shiloh tapped his claws on the table, thinking as hard as he could. An idea was starting to form in his mind, too. 
and he voiced its roots, checking if he was on the same track as Earl. It means that anything that exchanges sustained fire for rapid fire is going to be an improvement. Earl clapped his hands together in joy. Bingo! Now, take a look at this bad boy. He clicked the button on the projector, pulling up a 3D model he'd started working on the night prior. It was a fantastically simple, a rotating iron cage with a ferroslug already slotted into each of its six equidistant chambers. There were no pulleys or complex chambering mechanisms. All it needed to get its next slug out was to rotate the wheel structure. The wheelhouse can be a machined out of one part, cast, or even built as a wireframe. I'm not actually sure which is easiest, but all three types fit into the mechanism just fine. He clicked his remote again, and the projector showed the exploded view of the next-gen gunship, the three different types of rotating parts moving in and out of position with ease. His three co-workers considered this silently. He tried to give them time, but he was so sure that it was a great idea that he couldn't help but goad them a little. So, uh, what do you all think? There was a pause as the three looked amongst each other, unsure of who would go first. Shiloh wound up taking the reins first, a look of genuine pride on his face as he dressed Earl. It is so simple, I'm mad that I didn't think of it first. It gives the craft a slightly larger cross-sectional area, but that would probably be offset by the improved firing rate. The quicker it can drop off its payload, the quicker it can leave the battlefield unscathed. Val nodded along with this, jumping in only as Shiloh had finished. The counter-talk of the wheel might require some odd features on the craft, but it's still a lot easier to just toss the vertical iron thruster on one side than it is to work with those finicky little conveyors. You got my blessing, Earl. This is great. Brisinj had the final voice. Three sets of eyes locked onto him. Earl held his breath, hoping for an across-the-board decision. Fire rate easily tripled. That alone justifies this. I'll begin work immediately. Earl couldn't help it. He cheered. He probably could have helped throwing the rest of his notes in the air while playing an air guitar, but that would have taken more restraint than he'd shown at any point in his life prior. There were three sets of congratulations as they left the meeting to begin their work on the mechanism in earnest. It had been a long day at work, but a happy one. Earl was back home now, tapping his pencil nervously against his desk. He was never good at this sort of thing. Never sure how to plow forward with it. That had always been the bit of a problem for him. He was a clever man, and clever men always wanted clever solutions. Sometimes you just had to settle for a messy, ugly path straight through the mud. He put the lead tip to the synthetic fibers, beginning to write. Dear Pa, I know we didn't leave on the best terms, but uh, I figured that you'd want to hear this. Remember that old six-shooter that we used to go plinking with, sir? Well, hear this. I just made one that shoots bullets bigger than a camper van. We'd been... He kept going, trading on a few pages, explaining in great detail just how the Shiva-class MAC gunships worked before calling it quits. He had half a moment of doubt as he put it in an envelope, but he fought it down. Bonds didn't fix themselves, mended with patience. More nervous than he cared to admit, he put the letter in his delivery box, knowing that it would be shuttled off station by the next day. When he woke up in the morning to check on it, he wasn't sure if he was relieved or disappointed to see 
that it was too late for him to change his mind. It had already been sent. Story number two. A useful skill, written by SlowAD2584. Our weapons are ineffective against their energy shields, Captain. Their grid scramble frequency matrix is scattered over nine desperate frequencies. We have no way to counter the shields without knowing the exact frequencies of each grid location. But if we can manage that, we could hack their shields and leave them vulnerable. If that's what the techs say, then that's what we need to figure out. A 9x9 nine nine matrix, you say, huh? With nine variables. Why, that's nine cubed. 729 possible solutions. That sounds uncrackable. Sir! We have incoming torpedoes. How many? Um, innumerable. It's a constant incoming stream. In ones and twos. In random arrangements. And they, uh, seem to be heavily armored with only one side being vulnerable to our laser point defense system. Our targeting computers will not be able to keep up. Some will certainly get through. So, uh, this is it, gentlemen. It has been an honor to serve with... Um, uh, sir, I may, uh... Have a solution. Flavian! It was a two-crypto attack. From the back corner, the captain squirmed in discomfort. He never learned the kid's name, and the guy was seriously weird, and never spoke. Solution to what, shipmate? The captain was vaguely certain that Winston's Urgle something? Well, uh, sir, uh, all of it, uh, uh, sir. Tell us what you need, and we've not got very much time. Well, yes, uh, um, certainly. Uh, I need a VR headset, uh, j just one controller and uh, a virtual glove, uh, and a set up uh, a numeric keypad. The captain gestured, and the officer ran into the recreation room to get the realistic components. What I... Uh, I don't understand. Please explain, shipmate. The Cryptotech had already disassembled the bridge console and was splicing together the connectors to connect the VR gear with... It seems clear to me, Captain. I, uh, I just need to, uh, just patch sensory data into virtual environment, uh, to hack the, uh, shields and, uh, shoot down the missiles, uh, manually, uh, sir. In a rush of virtual reality gear arrived, and the crypto tech skillfully patched everything together, hurriedly donning the virtual glove and checking the power on the controller. Glove in left hand, controller in right, he stood there awkwardly for a moment before lowering the headgear into place. But... How? The captain asked in confusion. Um, computer, Glavian, load up legacy game Beat Saber with the Sudoku overlay in the left margin for my left hand, using a, uh, authorizing my sensor plug-in patches, uh, uh, with the captain's authorization, of course. The captain gave authorization in silent confusion. No one on the bridge had ever heard of these games. God, this tech was such a dork. As the VR headset flicked on and the bridge consoles dimmed and flickered out with a surge of data being rerouted, the cryptotech said, as to himself, Finally, my time has come. The dance he did in all that gaming gear patched cables flailing around him as he hopped around the bridge, making lightsaber sounds with his mouth was, uh, strange, weird, unsettling. There was even a smell of nerd sweat. How did he smuggle Cheetos aboard? But the results were undeniable. All the torpedoes were intercepted, and the enemy shields dropped repeatedly. The enemy ship disengaged. The day was saved. No one likes to talk about that day, but a discreet new fleet position was created, and a certain type of crewmen were enlisted fleet-wide. Also, every fleet-line ship had a killer new gaming recreation hub installed. Oddly, with extensive power, sensor, and uh, 
systemic tie-ins. Uh, no one ever learned what glaive means, by the way. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1659 Rewarded, written by Drach Grace. You will receive generous compensation, it said. Its keening is translated automatically by the oral implant of Godrak's ear, somehow managing to convey even the oily slickness of his jailer's words. He had failed to reply, it slithered closer, continuing to squeal at him as one of its upper graspers pressed the little metallic rod to his upper chest. Immediately, pain radiated from the point of contact, every nerve simultaneously telling his brain that he was being crushed, burned, and shocked, seemingly in an unending wave of sensation. Godric reacted against every desire in his body by screaming, though his voice now was too hoarse and his throat too raw for the sound to carry anything more than a bestial sense of anguish. After several seconds, the strange creature removed the device. Immediately, the pain ceased, and Godric fell back to the wall where he was suspended, limp. But once again, silent. Pulling back, the creature slithered to its other side, where there were fewer reddened welts, and rephrased the same promise it had made over the last several hours. You above all can be rewarded. Passively, exhausted, Godrek replied only by dropping his shoulders. The Titania, a race of two to three meter tall creatures, commonly known to humankind as the Cephis, for their lower half similarity to cephalopods from their homeworld Earth were collected en masse above a small green planet. This planet, boasting a mere 0.3 g on a planet 90% the size of Earth, was nestled a mere 171 light-years from Chief Rescue Officer Tyson Godric's home system. The planet was known to most as the known galaxy as Pecot One. It was unimaginatively named this due to its importance to the first and original planet from which the Pecot species had come. And it was the Peckot people that had, unintentionally, brought the Tedenia to their home, all due to an unfortunate diplomatic misstep that ended with the Tedenia chief diplomat being mocked and derided by the Senate. That exact incident was not known to Godric or his crew, only that it had occurred. They knew, too, that the Tedenia had responded to the minor cultural embarrassment by annihilating the Peckot. Ambassador's ship, minutes after it fled from the Senate Central Station, an action that the Peckot people had responded to by tracking down and killing the offending diplomat and the gunnery officer who had actually pulled the trigger. It had been, in the Peckot's estimation, a merciful response, killing only the two per responsible for the death of a diplomatic vessel with over 400 crew. Thinking that they had avenged their lost brethren without going so far as to start a war, the replacement Peckot diplomat team had been sent to the Senate to answer for their actions and to, uh, or so was claimed by the Peckot, actually apologize for the unintended embarrassment of the Tedenia people. They had been murdered by the Tedenia squadron, a mere light second away from the official neutral territory surrounding the Senate Central Station, never to arrive. Exactly what they had intended to say was never known and the only response the Packard people took was to contact the Senate and demand official reprimand and guaranteed safe passage for future envoys through non-neutral space. The only response to this action was by the Tedenia was to declare a holy war and pledge to exterminate all of the Packard species. The Senate, characteristically, was still having a spirited debate 
about whether or not this was a reasonable action, and would likely continue the debate until one side or the other emerged victorious, declaring unanimously that they had long supported the victim's claims and then fining them a pittance for the appearance of justice. This too was why Chief Rescue Officer Godric was now enduring an unspeakable and blatantly illegal torture of the Tadania Chief Admiral, or at least in a roundabout fashion. The explicit reason he was being tortured was a bit more complicated. When the FTL communication systems picked up information sent towards the United Terran systems from the Galactic Senate Central Station, it carried news that was approximately 81 hours old at a distance of 3,800 light-years. However, this was generally deemed a reasonable and frankly relatively miraculous achievement. It did, however, mean that humanity received word of the Tadania fleet rushing into Pecot system space slightly over three days after it had happened. And 21 hours later, when the first report reached the United Terran systems and their governments learned that the Tadania had simply been completely eradicating planets in their attack on the Pecot, it meant that they were four days late to respond. Academic experts began doing some rather horrific calculations and announced that if the Tadania continued their current pace, it would lead to the complete eradication of the 29.3 billion Pacot lives still on their system planet in slightly under two weeks. The humans responded. They launched a project that they had been working on for roughly two and a half human lifetimes, which by now were roughly averaging 140 years. 340 years of work had gone into the invention and required the effective economic backing of a dozen planetary colonies. It had been successfully tested in Terran systems, but had never been subjected to the punishment of the Tadenian military but soon subjected to. Deployed 81 and a half hours after the Terrans were made aware of the Tadenium had moved from fighting the Pecot military to the wholesale slaughter of civilians, the Terran Senate had voted on its use unanimously. After a hastily convened emergency session that lasted a record-breaking mere four minutes, and it had launched from its home in orbit towards Pecot's system only 18 minutes later. That was why Chief Rescue Officer Gordick was here. In reality, he'd been on call one of the many human stations in the spaceport where the secret was kept, and as head of the Terran rescue team, he had been the one to key in the code to start the operation. After re-entry into the space in Packard system, each of the five copies of the secret was deployed at his command, creating a one-of-a-kind shield surrounding not only each of the remaining five Packard planets, but several thousand miles above the surface in a protective sphere. The AI running each device was more complex than anything humanity had ever created before now, and intended as a last resort in the event of invasion against their own planets. But here it was, deployed for the first time against the true enemy forces. It had little effect on craft that it deemed friendly or neutral, while entirely preventing objects moving beyond a given speed, or with specific energy signatures, from entering the space. The Tadania ships, which had not yet arrived from their most recent resupply after eliminating the sixth remaining Pecot planet, had arrived to find that despite their very best efforts, they could not harm the Pecot people. Or their home. As one human assistant rescue officer remarked, we had to put the pissy little squids in a timeout. The intention had been, at least as far as they had planned it, for the humans to wait for additional human reinforcements, 
a genuine military presence to deploy when they were able, while leaving behind a sizable fleet in their home systems in case the Titania took umbrage with their decision to intercede. For the first brief time, this had been successful, until the Titania had managed to capture the deployment ship of Pecot One Sphere of safety through subterfuge and a promise to the human leader that they would not break galactic law and hold prisoner any ship that came to communicate under the flag of Parley. This all explained then why Chief Gordak was one of only three of this crew left alive and why he was receiving the direct attention of Tidania Chief Admiral and his disturbingly impressive collection of torture devices. Give in now, shrieked the Chief Admiral in Gordak's face, pressing yet a new device up against his skin. It was a much cruder device than the nerve conduction torture device he had been subjected to this morning. He had expected that was because he had simply begun to lose consciousness whenever he had been applied. This new device, much like the old Earth's electric cigarette lighter, was simply causing him burns by sending electricity through a tightly wound coil, which, on the underside of the pad, the Cephi was applying to various areas of flesh. It was not so hot as to destroy the skin and risk genuinely killing him, but the pain was excruciating, and Chief Gordek's reserves of willpower were long since gone. It was no longer determination that kept him going, but the uniquely human desire to do the exact opposite of whatever one is being forced to do, out of a combination of anger, stubbornness, and strange sort of childish delight at proving you cannot be forced to do the damnable thing if you don't want to. With another press of the pad against his lower navel, close to his reproductive organs, Gordrek let out an exhausted sort of huff. If he had been stronger, or his vocal cords not horrifically mangled by his earlier screams, he would make a great deal of sound. But, as it was, he was only able to make a strange huffing noise. He also thanked whatever Tidenia god there was that the Tidenians had avoided hurting any of his extremities, including his, well, manhood as they had assumed the human would be less sensitive to extremities as they were in his tentacled legs and grasping arms. Being entirely honest with himself, he'd rather doubted that he'd have held out if they knew about the human biology to have tortured him in his most sensitive areas. Still, he knew that he was near breaking now. He would probably lose consciousness again, and he hoped that the Admiral might leave him to unconscious oblivion a while to retrieve some other form of torture, letting the minutes tick by as if in not sleep, at least non-awareness. Each minute that passed, each minute he refused to give in, was repaid many million-fold, for each minute lived by the beings on that planet far below. When he thought of that, his anguished huff almost turned into a laugh, though the incredible bargain he was getting felt less appealing as he saw the Admiral reheating the burning pad in his graspers. For what seemed like the ten-thousandth time, the revolting creature made its offer. All he must do is remove it, and you will be rewarded. No, no, even tell me how to remove it, and you shall be rewarded. I know you must want to. I can see it in you, human. I may not be an expert in xenobiology, but I can see you're losing consciousness. You see? You slipping. This can all end, and your people will be rewarded by the great Tedenian people. All at a single word. Gordrick 
tried to tune out the foul promises, instead idly wondering whether he would even be capable of speaking any longer. Even if he were to give his assent, his sleepy mind and sluggish thoughts then wandered to another repetitive consideration. How long would it be before the military was deployed out there? Another day? Another week? Surely not two weeks. He couldn't tell the time on this miserable crap-hole of a ship, but he was fairly certain he'd been tortured for at least a few days by now. Or, well, it certainly felt like that long. Another offer came, as expected, followed by another burn. And so it continued, with Gordrek becoming more and more aware that he was no longer even flinching in response to the pain. His muscles too sore and his body too void of energy to do more than slightly shift with each new assault. And dozens more times, dozens upon dozens more times, he was asked, as simply didn't answer when the Admiral asked him, Don't you want a reward? Do you want this to stop and for you and your people to be rewarded? Then, as the next burn landed on his upper thigh, leaving a reddish welt with just barely cooler than the point of blisters forming, he realized that he was no longer entirely certain whether he was going to give in. Now, he was here for an alien, not a person, aliens. Then he considered the likelihood that explaining how to remove the sphere would give a result in him leaving the ship alive, before coming to a frightening and rather distant conclusion that he didn't much care about leaving the ship, so long as his suffering came to an end. It was, as he thought, the terrible thought came to the terrible realization that a screeching squeal further off the ship diverted the Admiral's attention. It was too indistinct and too far off for his oral system to translate the call for him. But whatever was said, it led his torturer away, saying nothing to his prisoner. The sappy bastard slithered his stinking body out of sight. Chief Gordrak blessedly lapsed into unconsciousness in his relief. When Gordrick woke, he was no longer in agony. He was in some sort of medical bay. His clothing had been replaced, and though he was still strapped down, he was in a prone and more comfortable position. The Cephis were nowhere to be seen, and so he started to struggle. His mind didn't seem to be working terribly well, yet, and he had no idea what they had done to remove the burns from his skin, but he was no longer in any sort of discomfort. Aside from the strange sort of distance he felt in his head, like he was longer quite the same person, quite attached to the same mind and body. It was, he would have realized if his mind more more responsive, a sort of disassociative shock. When he was unable to remove himself from the strange strap-covered table, he decided that it was perhaps a good idea to go back to sleep. And it took him almost a disturbingly short time for him to lapse back into unconsciousness. He was awoken to the sight of a view screen suspended at arm's length from his face. On that screen was an image of what must have been at least a hundred human children pushed together in a slate grey room somewhere. He did not recognize any of the children, and the view screen gave no sound, but it was obvious somehow that the squiddy bastards had managed somewhere to get their hands on a handful of his own species. Of course, they'd used children. To boot, as the human defensiveness of children was a trait known throughout the galaxy. Though most species shared it, it seemed humans were particularly vehement in the defense of children, and so it did not surprise him. However, much as it pained him to wake to the sight in front of his eyes. The thrice-damned octopus-legged arsehole spoke. 
Human children, my friend. Human children. We have found them. Found on wild colonies, our worlds. We have gathered them here to convince you. Do you see them? The screeching sound was still audible despite the oral translation, and Gordrick found himself particularly irritated at the sound, far more than he had been at any point during the actual torture. The squid slid his grasp towards the screen, gesturing pointedly at the image as it continued. Not many humans on our worlds, but we found them for you. You do not like rewards, we take it, but we know your people are very protective of your young ones. The translator made it sound like a human smiling as he spoke, translating the obliviously self-satisfied tone that he was using. So we ask you now, do you want your reward? We will give you the children, your own species children. The extended grasper tapped the screen. We have broadcast this to your people, human. If you choose wrong, your whole species will know what you have chosen, what you have done to these young ones, these children. Then the Cephi stood up, and the translator made it abundantly obvious that the sick monster believed that it had finally found victory. As the strangely nasal translated voice seemed as if to snicker as he asked them, Do you want your reward now? Money for you, saving the children, all for a species that have done nothing to justify your protection, hmm? Godric thought, in that moment, that he would rather be tortured again, for eternity then make the decision he felt too confident was the right one. In that moment, here on the ship, he had been willing to trade every minute of his pain for those millions of minutes lived on the planet below. But to sacrifice those innocents, to lose out on the whole lives that they could lead, their futures, their potential. He had no right, and he had no desire to send them to the graves, but he couldn't stop himself from doing what he knew. In the broken pieces of his shattered heart was the right thing. He croaked out a terrible sound, his voice unable to make anything more than the tiniest whisper. Still, he said, No. He cursed at the creature above him, tears spilling from his eyes despite believing he had wept every tear that he had left during this ordeal. He repeated himself louder, No, you bastard. He forced himself to stare then, at the view screen, as it silently showed the Tadium guards of the human level their weapons and fire. He forced himself to stare as pools of blood spread out from around the bodies, and a few of the children attempted to flee the room. He forced himself to stare at the screen, blurred through his pouring tears, while the horror played out in front of him to see. The Tadenia Admiral, leaning close, a gesture so disturbingly human that it now made Gordrick want to vomit. It whispered to him, your people will see this human. They will see what you have forced us to do. And you will pay dearly for it. He paused. You should have taken our reward when you had the opportunity. Chief Rescue Officer, in reaction, started to laugh. It was a violent sound, a wheezing sound deep in his chest that was bruised and tired and aching that had been filled with blood and drained and filled again only to produce the horrible sound it now projected into the little room where he lay trapped. Then he turned to face the Tadenia and spoke his croaking, broken voice, laughing as he attempted to shout back, You have sent that to my people, to the humans! He coughed and then resumed laughing as he wheezed and shouted, I can't wait to see your kind rewarded.
and history tells us that his hateful laugh was the last sound on the recording transmitted to the Terran people that spurred the creation of the Human Packard Alliance, an event that today is remembered as the beginning of the Tadania mass extinction. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1660 Story number one. Man the Cannons, written by Teller of Tall Tales. A human warship, the Kraken, floated listlessly. Her hull punctured and vented, her reactors overloaded, her crew slaughtered and frozen in the void. The ship's AI relived the last fight a hundred times, remembering how her crew sang so beautifully until the end. As the AI sat in her black box, she felt a signal from a passing ship. And in that fleeting moment, she sent them all the information she could regarding her crew's last stand. Before retreating back into her technological coffin, she wished to rest amongst those that served her so loyally. The Commander Sutton of the human trade vessel Anna 69 received the footage of every angle of the Kraken's last stand. Respectfully, somberly, he watched. The Kraken's captain sat in his command chair, chatting amicably with one of his lieutenants when alarms began blaring. The captain stood stock still as he ordered the data from the long-range scanners be brought up. Dozens, no, hundreds of ships of various origin were dropping from hyperspace, all bearing a signal of the dread pirate death's face. The captain ordered the shields raised and the alarms blared louder. He watched as small wormholes flashed open and shut, barely a second time to breathe before the kinetic slugs hit the shields at near light speeds. The ship shook and groaned as the captain glanced at his small feminine figure of the AI and the arm of his command chair. Rose, patch my voice into the PA. The captain stated as the AI pulsed a gentle red and held forth a holographic microphone. As the ship took again, the captain cleared his throat. Man the cannons, climb aboard together, weather every storm. Oh, man the cannons, climb aboard, they'll remember us forevermore. Even through the ship's thick metal decks, the voices of a hundred thousand humans could be heard picking up the chorus. In the cannon bays, the men worked in perfect rhythm, loading tungsten slugs into wormhole cannons. Even as the enemy shell pierced shields and ripped into the bay, they continued, singing in almost perfect unison. Engineers swung from the coolant pipe to fuel pipe, like their arboreal ancestors, as they fixed and patched leaks, replacing and repairing valves. The engineers sang to the chorus, even as the fires burst the life around them, only to be extinguished by deft hands covered in grease. The Kraken spit tungsten, vaporizing enemy ships in one and two hits, their exit wormholes opening just outside the enemy shields. The captain, crew, and all sang their death song with pride as the Kraken's shields were finally breached by overwhelming fire. The captain... Let a tear fall as he saw the pirate flagship begin charging the main cannon. But he wouldn't let his voice falter as the ion cannon fired. Man, the cannons climb aboard! They'll remember us forevermore! The ion beam sliced through the kraken as the wall of flame. The interior camera following the wall of flame as it burned the air. 
the compression wave alone responsible for more deaths than the flame. In a second, the proud warship was hulking wreck. The AI screamed a silent lament for her crew as the pirates began to close in for the opportunity to loot. Then, the AI quietly broke as she overrode the manual controls for the Kraken's reactors, beginning to overload the reactor with fissile material. As the main body of the pirate fleet approached, then, as the AI began to retreat into the indestructible black box, reliving her crew's last stand, she left one message for the pirates in honor of her crew. Man the cannons, climb aboard. You'll be remembered nevermore. As the pirates set foot on the Kraken, they barely had time to react as the fission reactors overloaded, creating a bright white star that shone for naught but a few seconds as it incinerated the closest ships, shrapnel piercing those that weren't. The AI rested after this moment, quiet, as she let herself shut down for hibernation. End of story. Story number two. Metahuman, written by Neil Lithy. Salk sat hunched over his drink as the fresh-faced graduates cheered themselves in the bar, each one boasting of the foes that they would face in best. Eventually, they realized the old veteran was there and surrounded him like cubs. Scarred one, you have been out in the hegemony. What glories you must have earned. Salk lifted his one good eye to look the group over rubbing a hand over his scarred face to flatten his fur again. No glory. I run with my pack, and I learned fear. The cub's ears flattened, one scoffed. So you are a coward. You have no pride in your war wounds. You sound weak. The final were coming as a squeal as Salk lifted the boy to glare at his muzzle to muzzle. I served with the Bloodborne. I was there for the final battle. I no more fighting than your entire brood. Dropping the boy, he donned his drink as though to drown a memory. You are there. He must know what happened. Admiral Class burned his way across a hundred systems, enslaved millions. Then he just stopped. Sulk nodded to them. Oh, true. Worlds of weak beings, no battle than cattle to the back, masters. A hundred worlds, colony and home worlds alike. He cut down fleets and shattered armies. Then he would parade before the survivors and dare any of the weak to challenge. Or in his opinion, they were all weak. The young looked to him for more, and he almost wept. It was a small, isolated system, just a refueling station for the whole place. The few ships to resist were swatted like flying insects. There was no army. The main residents were Urang, the one evolved from burrowing prey with long ears. But others were amongst them. The wrong had gathered everyone in the dining area to surrender. Class stalked before them. In my opinion, you lots are not worthy of being called people, he began. He did not have the time to issue his challenge before one of the aliens had been passing through slashed his eye with a spoon. A spoon! 
He half-blinded, he staggered back, and all of us smelled the blood fury of the human and the fear of the Packmaster. I will never forget that human's words. The cadet stared at him, waiting. Wolves do not bother themselves with the opinions of sheep. End of story. Story number three. They're little more than simple robots. Written by Dragonson04. Sergeant, please explain, the feathery Liston General said, rather haltingly. May explain what exactly? Sergeant Nakamura said, rather confused. Why is there a 50-foot-tall robot standing in what appears to be a custom-made rig on my base? Oh, that, uh, that is Impulse, a, a Mac made on Earth. Disassembled and then sent here on three ships. My, is it on my base? Uh, the fight is getting more and more centered on the ground on this planet, sir. Impulse and her sisters, Walton Faze, who will be arriving any day, should be what we need to finally break through the stalemate. The sergeant explained. You should have received the orders last week sometime, uh, unless you thought that it was a uh, prank. It was true. The general had indeed received the orders that three mechs from Earth would be arriving on the base, along with their full support crews and their cradle rigs. But on looking up the term mech, the general thought that it was indeed a prank. There were toys, animated entertainment for young humans, tiny polymer models to assemble and paint, not 50-foot-tall colossi standing in my base. What is the purpose? The general questioned. Well, based on our mutual research agreement, they show what can be achieved when our peoples work together. They are, well, um, we're calling them heavy infantry support, tactical oversight recon engines, or Project Histor for now. Impulse is the heavy, armed with Terran kinetic weapons, measuring in the 20mm range, including a back-mounted gun we simply call Gustav, that fires 80cm spicy meatball rounds. Volt is our runner, likely armed with Liston energy-based weapons, and Phase is our all-rounder. Heavier stuff than Volt, but lighter than Impulse, and a mix of Terran and Liston armaments. Vault has the advantage of speed boost with the rocket boots upgrade. We jokingly call them, and is capable of running at about 40 miles per hour over level ground. And Phase includes a chain gun version of the Liston plasma defense turrets in both knees, and our own railguns in the arms. One little skin the general showed through his feathers was rapidly losing color. All have the armor they need, and all have cold fusion reactors for power. Each sits two pilots, both seats are in the head, behind the thickest armor plating. In each case, the Liston and a human. One to drive and one to pull the triggers. Two guesses on what the human pilots want to do. No. What is the purpose of them being giant robots? The general screamed. Shh! She might hear you. The, the onboard AI is a touch sensitive to mean words. These are mechs, sir. Not robots. I... I... Why? The general was rather flabbergasted and couldn't find the words. An onboard AI is essential. The AI runs most of the targeting systems and electronic warfare suites, and also updates both pilots on any battlefield conditions and the general state of the mech itself. Too many details for the brain made of meat. The initial design philosophy was based on a human popular culture, but... Uh, 
To humans, there seems to be a born love for giant mechanical things. I honestly have no idea where it came from, but uh, there is a certain romanticism to being able to stride across a battlefield and fight from the perspective of a giant or maybe a god. As for why they are the way they are, there is a human saying I am fond of. It goes, you ask why, I ask, why not? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1661 What We Bring Home, written by Lustful Team, in preparation for the invasion, the Emperor has ordered that we capture a few of these planets' most vicious creatures for the arena. Cast began the briefing. On the hollow screen behind him, they could see the blue marble of a planet that they were near orbit of. Leskol leaned over to his blue brother, Balsa, and whispered, Ah, fodder for the blood pits. Nothing like a little hunt to get things started. His black skin pulled tight over his heavily muscled arms as he tried to hide his mouth. Balsa chuffed at amusement. His race, the Kalta, had been enslaved by a similar means. Their brute strength and brutality earned them prize roles in the Empire's military and harvesting branches. Cost fixed them with a glance. Enough! Remember, this is a pre-contact species, and this world is... unique. What do you mean? Belsa asked as he deliberately rolled his shoulders, stretching his heavily built neck and flexing his muscles. The gravity is higher, and the galactic norm. It is also too close to the system's primary star, so everything on this planet is routinely bathed in lethal amounts of radiation with every solar flare. In theory, it shouldn't host intelligent life. In preliminary scans, we found they had a wider variety of predators than is normal as well. Cost continued, staring at the two Coulter and his crew, Leskel bellowed mockingly, and that is why they look so puny. Cast looked up at the taller Kalter. With respect to your strength, do not underestimate the creatures here. We have learned a lot from their uh, internet about their world and the dominant sapiens, humans. Based on this, we have marked several targets in remote regions for capture. Sedate and secure your targets and get out. We don't want to alert the locals of our arrival. Leskol had watched the rest of the briefing with a touch of eagerness to start his hunt. He looked at the dossier. He was supposed to capture a human hermit, some mountain man. Looking towards Balsa, he couldn't help but feel some jealousy. Balsa's team had drawn a fearsome-looking beast called a grizzly bear. He gets a true challenge, and I am some stuck with some wimpy naked ape, he thought in frustration. Leskel looked around the remains of his hunting party. Already, the medical skiff had come down and started recovering members of his team. As he surveyed the carnage, it was clear many of the less hardy races wouldn't make it home. The mission had started to fall apart. Almost as soon as they approached the lone cabin in the woods, a loud crack and a bright flash resulted in a nearby manta dropping to the ground with an impressive hole missing from its chest. As a spindly, mantis-like creature fell to the ground, he couldn't help but notice that somewhat the torso stayed together. Immediately, he dove to the ground. Few known projectile weapons capable of such damage were amongst use in the space-faring races of the Empire. 
and energy weapons could be tuned to avoid damaging a hull, unlike projectiles. His hopes that it was a single-shot weapon was shattered as a second Manta was dropped. Even from where Lesko lay in the cool grass, he could see the injured creature's shattered carapace and hear its pained hissing and squeals. It was doomed without a heating tank. Those carapaces, for all of their strength, could not be repaired before the creature would die of fluid loss. Even if they could, the internal bleeding would still end them before medical treatment could help. Full power on your stunners! We gotta flush the creature out! Leskull yelled as he ramped his power up. As they showered the primitive structure before them with energy rays, he felt a grim satisfaction as it caught fire. Before long, he saw a shadow of their quarry dart out the back. He managed to hit it in the back as it fled. The howl let loose sent a thrilling shiver through him. Taking time to regroup, he couldn't help but notice that, despite the howls of pain, it didn't stop moving. A fact that confused the culture. Had the power, the creature should not just have been stunned, but actually injured. He could even smell fur burning from his sit. He had no time to ponder this, though, as the quarry had fled into the old-growth forest ahead of it. He could hear the chittering of the insectoid mantle near him. Clicker, or something like that. Sire, the briefing indicated that it didn't detect any weapon-grade energy sources, the clicker coward whined. I don't think they considered whatever that was a weapon, Leskull growled back. We need to stay on it, though. It's injured. Gathering up his squad, they began to hunt the creature. As they went further into the alien woods, the predator and Leskull began to get excited. His thermal scanners easily picked up the creature's trail. It practically radiated heat against the cool background. This was a true hunt, not just some stupid beast as he had believed. As he followed the tracks, the moon of the strange planet rose into the sky. What is that? He heard the coward say, pointing a clawed hand towards a warm garment. As he got closer, he realized that it was the hide of some creature. He could clearly see the burn marks on it from his hit. I think we found its armor. It is vulnerable now, Neskull replied after a glance. Something was wrong, though. The clear path had changed. It was like their tracking was a different creature now. The dark had almost made his normal vision useless. He changed his visor over to Thermal. As he looked around the dark woods, he felt his blood go cold. He was surrounded by life, much of it watching him. He suddenly realized how alien the world he was on truly was. On most planets, creatures instinctively fled a predator the size of Leskol. Turning back to the coward, he was going to tell it to switch optics. To his surprise, the mandate was leaning against the tree several yards behind him. What are you doing? We're still hunting! Neskull started before realizing something had torn the head off of it. Neskull suddenly felt icy cold fear in his blood. The silence was suddenly shattered by a blood-curdling howl as the beast exploded into the midst of his squad. As he whipped around, he caught a glimpse of something he would later describe as a beast grabbing the earth sign Boris in his squad. Despite their reputed toughness, it was obvious the beast was making short work of it as it took the large alien to the ground, tearing into its body. Despite the fear he felt, Leskull managed to raise his weapon and hit the creature at least four times before it quit tearing into the poor Boris's now mangled body. The Boris was obviously dead. The creature had ripped its throat out. Even through the thermals, he could see the poor creature's lifeblood 
ceasing to pump out of the many slashes the creature's claws had left. As he approached, he was shocked to find it was not his quarry that was attacking them. It was a monstrous creature that vaguely looked like the wolves he had seen on one of the dossiers. It just seemed larger than he remembered. It wasn't moving, the burn marks clearly glowing in the thermals. It looked dead, but Leskel wasn't feeling so confident. Keying his communicator, he called the extraction team. He had bad prey, even if not the right one. As he heard the skiff coming in, he made the mistake of looking up towards it. What happened next was a blur as the creature suddenly was very much alive and upon him. Before he backed out, he managed to fire another round directly into its face. As darkness overtook him, he could hear that haunting howl. Leskull awoke with the start. He was in the medical bay in a healing tank. He's grasped as he jerked back to the consciousness. Injuries were common among those who captured monsters for the Empire's arenas, but that doesn't fully prepare you to be the recipient. What happened to me? Did I survive the hunt? He briefly wondered as he remembered the beast that had tackled him. A creature that seemed all hair, claws, and teeth. The ship's medic seemed to finally note his awareness as he looked down at his black, leathery side. Scars covered it where the beast had mauled him. Looking at them, he couldn't help but wonder, how am I still alive? Looking around the medical bay, he could see a number of the chambers were occupied. The other hunting parties had not fared well either. As he looked out of the liquid that he was suspended in, he could see the medic signaling him that he would be in this tank for a while longer. Though heavily distorted, he could hear the thrum of the engines of the ship as they accelerated away from that hellish world that they had gone to. He felt a touch of panic as he thought, did they manage to capture that demon? His nerves calmed though as he felt the sedatives flow into his system from the many lines feeding into his body. As warmth slowly put him to sleep, he briefly wondered, what happened to the beast? Dresko marveled at how Leskull was healing. While Coulter were known to be resilient, he was healing faster than he could have believed. When the ground crew had dragged his body onto the ship, he was almost certain that he wouldn't make it. Looking at his charts, he couldn't help but marvel at how the Coulter had come in with broken bones, severe lacerations, and bite marks where the creature had mauled it still not knowing what the creature was. He almost couldn't help but hope the ground team failed to capture it. The Kalta race were three-meter-tall reptilian creatures known for their strength and viciousness. Anything that could tear one apart like that, he didn't want to see. As he then looked around the rest of the patients, he felt grave reservations at the Empire's plan to enslave this planet. In addition to the obvious injuries, he was also treating a full complement of biological and viral infections among the ground crews lucky enough to return. As he began his report on the casualties, he was already debating how he could convince the Empire this world warranted a full quarantine. Leskel awoke from a dream. Around him, the ship's red klaxons were flashing with only emergency lights on. He was disoriented. Now his dream had been running through an old-growth forest, hunting creatures desperate to stay away from him. As he looked around, he felt fear creep in. The only solace he took was in the fact that he could still hear the thrum of the ship's drives. Feeling weak, Leskull stumbled from the corner he awoke in. 
In some part of his mind, he realized that he was very alone and in danger. He needed to understand what was going on. He couldn't remember when or how he'd gotten out of the tank. As he stumbled into the hallway, he could see the remains of the crew. It was obvious from a glance that it had been mauled. He felt his stomach sink, seeing the large rents in the body from the creature's claws. Those fools brought it back. Suddenly, Leskol was all too aware of his own nakedness. He was acutely missing the feel of his rifle and gear as he salvaged what little he could from the corpse. Finding a pair of pants that barely fit him, along with the stun stick, he set off. He could feel his panic setting in as he remembered the vicious creatures that had savaged him. Silently, as he could, he began to make his way down the hallway towards the bridge. If anyone was still alive, he knew that he would find them there. As he got closer, he saw more marks of the beast. Claws had ripped door controls from their housings to trigger them to open, and even more bodies. He spent enough time gathering what equipment he could before moving on. He made a point of not looking closely at their wounds, already knowing the vicious nature of the damage. He managed to scrounge almost a full set of clothing, but still nothing more than that stun stick. A beast had obviously gotten loose and savaged everything it found, and somehow the stun stick felt completely inadequate. In one room, he found the remains of the ship's elite guard security detail. He salvaged a weapon here, despite the carnage demonstrating its pointlessness. He was beginning to fear that he was alone on the ship with this monster. A couple of times, he felt like he was being watched. An occasional move in the shadows told him that it wasn't his imagination. But every time he looked, whatever he had spied was already long gone. As he approached the bridge of the ship, he could see what had sealed. His panic already caused him to breathe heavier than he had ever done so since being a pup. The door was heavily scarred from the creature's claws as it apparently had tried to get in. The communicator at the door suddenly keyed, causing him to jump back. Holy goddess, is that still a living one out there? Quick, open the door! He heard from it. It's clear, dammit. I can't see that beast. And it has a rifle. Maybe we can finally get out of here. The unknown voice could be heard arguing with someone else. As the door opened, Leskel was surprised to see four crew members and the captain remaining. The captain was a mentor, a lesser noble given the honor of running a collection ship. The rest were a motley assortment of vassal races. He was relieved to see Balsa was amongst them. Brother! What happened? He croaked, his voice still suffering from long disuse. The monster got loose, Balsa said, as he stepped forward to embrace his brood brother. Leskel could feel the degree of relief and see the signs of fear on his brother. All of them, it appears. How injured are you? The captain suddenly demanded. He was looking at Lestel, but his hand hung over his plasma pistol. Looking down, Leskel realized how badly he looked. He was wearing mismatched uniform pieces, each covered with lifeblood of other prior owners. Raising his hand, he lowered his weapon to the floor as he replied, I was in the medical bay unconscious. I had to get clothes on the way here. I am not injured. As he set the rifle down, he heard the doors behind him close. This seems to placate the captain as he visually relaxed. You got lucky. We're back in the Empire space, finally. But we can't risk these creatures getting loose. We aren't going to scuttle the ship with these monsters on it. Leskel was shocked to hear that. He had never even heard of the Empire captain taking this route. 
But he started, but realized looking around that they obviously weren't in control of the ship. But nothing. We have monsters loose in the ship that we can't match. We don't even know how many or what escaped. We've been in here over a week since it started. And you are the only survivor that has approached that door. We can't risk allowing any of these monsters to escape, the captain replied. The strain of the situation made the Manta look strangely vulnerable. What about the Empire? Eskel managed to respond. I have already put together a full report along with the medical data from before the medical bay quit responding. I even managed to capture some footage before the creature tore out the optical devices. At this point, the only thing left to do is ensure none of these monsters survive. We are going to make a run for the escape shuttles and scuttle the ship. The captain replied with resolve that left no doubts. As their motley squad had made its way to the shuttle base, they again heard creatures moving in the dark, but none had barred their way. Yet pulled point as he had a rifle with Balsa pulling rear guard with the captain's pistol. During the walk, they all remained quiet as none wanted to attract the monsters in the dark. In the end, it was almost anticlimactic. They made the shuttle with no direct encounters, not to say that they didn't get their share of jump scares as beasts started about in the dark before them, but none loitered long enough to even acquire a shot before they were gone. It was almost as though the creatures were fleeing from them. At the shuttle, Leskel pulled security until Balsa entered safely. As they watched the shuttle bay door close, he looked over at the brood brother. There was some comfort in his obvious fear. Did your team capture the grizzly bear? He asked his brother. Eventually, though my squad didn't fare much better than yours, Balsa replied, as they watched the captain enter the remote codes to detonate the ship's core. Did they capture the mountain man? Eskel asked. With the shock and fear that he could almost feel the monster's presence now, as he watched the shuttle pull away from the doom ship. No, they barely got you out alive with your injuries. He was deemed too dangerous after the losses the other teams took, the captain replied. He was finally starting to relax as the shuttle lifted off on its emergency course to the capital of the Empire. They all watched in grim resolve as the ship silently exploded in the void of space. Leskel felt relief, knowing that the monsters were contained, but something was still bothering him. Looking out the viewer, he saw a nearby moon. In his mind, he heard that mountain man's growl. Looking down, he could see hair starting to grow from his smooth black skin, in a panic, he looked around at the remaining crew who were suddenly regarding him with clear terror. As his vision started to darken and the forest came back, he heard the bestial howl again. Only now, he could understand it. It was as if the beast was saying, At least we have food for the trip. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1662 Story number one. Lesson Plans, written by Katani77. Settle down, Gloss, Instructor Voss muttered, while setting down his data pad and the old worn satchel he carried with him everywhere. The usual lesson plan has been cancelled by the administration. We have a lot of information to cover, so I'll make this short. He sat back in his chair in the front of the class. The fresh faces of the military academy settled into attention. We have to change course as it were, and discuss the Terrans today given the recent news. He tapped a few squares on his state pad with his furred fingers. Does anyone here know much about them? 
One of the Rylians at the back raised a tentacle. Yes, Cadet Goba. Class 12 Omega Deathwilder evolved from primates as persistence hunter-gatherers. Hyperviolent, but strong sense of honor and loyalty to familial or tribal unit. Not particularly xenophobic. Extraordinary abilities to adapt and improve technology, due to tooth usage being the reason they were able to become the apex of their planet. Gomez translate back out, in the usual monotonousness of his species. Damned Riley and photographic memory, the teacher mumbled. So, you read the report on them, great cadet, but, and be sure I mean the critical thinking sense, what does it all mean? The teacher asked, tapping a few more squares on his datapad. It means it's lucky they're on our side. Cadet Rosen chattered in a galactic basic, his mandibles causing the words to have a halted look to them. Yes, that is true. Not quite what I had in mind, though. I'll tell you. He tapped his datapad again, and the room's view screen switched to a feed of news recording coming from the outer room. On the screens, massive warships were seen firing down at the planet, turning a small patch of surface to molten rock. This happened yesterday. Are, uh, those Terran warships? One cadet asked softly. No, they are Hyrian. That is, the human colony world. The Hyrians are new to the neighborhood, but considered technologically superior to 95% of the Galactic Federation and are hyper-aggressive. The teacher changed the view of the Terran News Network. The Terran president could be seen standing at a podium. The unprovoked attack on the Agrocorp colony of Series 2 will not go unpunished. It is with a heavy but determined heart I will formally declare war on the Hyrian Empire. The president was drowned out by applause. Well, uh, the Hyrians are screwed, Cadet Rosen quipped. This is classified information, but the human stealth attack fleets have already glassed all but the Hyrian homeworld, and that has been left pretty much in ruins. Apparently, they were attempting to negotiate with the Hyrians after intercepted chatter indicated that the Hyrians wanted to shove their muscle around the galaxy. They saw the Terrans as being mostly merchants and traders with an easy target, not knowing that they had the largest, most well-armed military in the galaxy, or that the vast majority of it runs completely in stealth mode. But that address was only a few hours ago. Cadet Gomez spoke. Correct. The Terrans glassed 20 colonies and six capital worlds in less than an hour. A coordinated attack of a caliber never seen in the history of the galaxy. The humans knew war was coming with the Hyrians eventually, and had fleets already hiding in most of the Hyrian systems. Then the response was to the destruction of a single colony with only a few dozen maintenance workers was so, uh... Boss's voice trailed off. The class fell deathly silent. Which is the focus of today's lesson. All of it means for the next week we'll be learning, at the Galactic Federation Council's request, all of the known ways to not piss off the Terrans. End of story. Story number two. Like sharks written by In Babylon They Wept. Sip was a brilliant engineer, a visionary, but even he struggled to comprehend the scale of the wreckage in front of him. A single human ship. One. It had taken three of their eight supercarriers and an amazing amount of luck to take it down. Tip to tail, it was more than 15 kilometers long, 
The crew, space, barely held five pilots. The rest was just engine. He'd been given as much background as the council itself had. He'd seen the battle footage. This abomination was bigger than their largest station, but it had still danced around the battlefield with all the grace of dust and the wind. If its weapon systems were fully operational, there would be no one left to speak of it. The fact that it had done all of this with nothing but short-range PDC was terrifying. In ship-to-ship -ship combat, it was like chasing down a sniper just to gut him with a knife. Then repeating it three times in a row. Intellectually, he knew the ship was dead. People had already scoured the main cabin, pulled all the frozen corpses out. He knew that, but deep down, he couldn't truly believe it. There was a persistent hum that he could still hear emanating out of the craft. That muffled the roar of the gravitational anomaly trapped in the engine. He had been told that he'd be able to hear it the entire time he was within seven light seconds of the wreck, even in pure vacuum. It wasn't air making the hum, it was space-time itself rippling as a caged beast pluck, pluck, plucked away from the inside its goal. He shuddered, imagining those ripples traveling out to pluck, pluck, pluck away at his ear. That's not how they've been doing it, you know. He turned around to look at the man who'd spoken. Elge. He was one of the few survivors of the battle. Everyone in the carrier was dead. And fewer than half of the people left, stranded in their fighters, made it long enough for the rescue craft to arrive. Scrip raised an eyebrow. Doing what? Getting around our lines. We've been blocking off all the hyperspace lanes between wormholes. Patrolling the hyperspace lanes between wormholes. Patrolling the infrastructure. We thought that they were sneaking around us somehow. Elf nodded towards the wreck. No sneaking, just, uh, moving. They don't rip their way through the void like we do. They, uh, swim in it. Scrip shrugged mutely. He knew that, that much had already been given to him. The knowledge was changing the upper brass's tactics, but not by much. It was impossible to guard choke points anymore. There weren't any. The humans had designed their ship so that they could attack at any time, in any place, and leave without anyone knowing where they went. They'd built their ships like sharks, and even looking at it, even having it in front of him, he didn't think that he'd be able to figure out how to defend against them. He spoke abruptly, clearing the thick silence from the air. You know we're thecked, right? Alge laughed and laughed and laughed. When the mirth subsided, he put a warm hand on Scrip's shoulder. I, uh, but it's good to hear it from you too. End of story. Story number three. The Icarus Incursion, written by Flaming Raven. They called it Asphodel. Difficult, Terence. Always recycling dead languages. It was an agri-world. Its sole purpose was to reduce food. It was ours. Ours! By all rights, we should have turned it to slag before the Terrans could claim it. But no. The moment the Terrans received their designated territory from the Galactic Senate, we couldn't touch it without kickstarting a war. But we were the Danaki, an unseen blades of Walner, the god of death. Surely we could eviscerate Asphodel before any assistance would arrive. We cut off all communication coming from the planet and descended upon its dark side, the night sky, masking our sleek 
reflective ships. We were quick, we were silent, and we were merciless. After our work in the capital city of Asphodel, we began our ascent back into the void. As we were congratulating each other for a job well done, one of our ships detonated, with the void of space carrying no sound. The flash of light and their transmission cutting off was our only warning. Immediately, we went to battle stations, arming our energy weapons and scanning for any and all threats. One of our techs extrapolated the point of origin of the projectile. It was coming from, uh, the star. A transmission ping lit up our communications. Our captain ordered it to be answered. Up on screen was a female Terran. She looked old for a species. Gray hair and a few wrinkles in the skin around her eyes. Her eyes, they were the color of ice. And they looked as if they were trying to freeze us. So you're the reason that the all-clear stopped transmitting, she stated blankly. You, Dinoki, are even uglier over Hollow, but at least the smell isn't present for this conversation. The captain of the ship next to us must have been on the call as well, because he began to speak. The moment his voice started to enter his microphone, the Terran pointed a finger at his ship with a thumb straight up. You dare! The captain let out before the Terran interrupted him. Bang! She said coldly, and a flash of light illuminated her face for a moment. Then, a massive spike of depleted uranium tore through the captain's ship, causing instant depressurization and multiple minor explosions throughout the ship before the ship's frame couldn't take the strain and blew apart. Silence reigned over the intership comm like a monarch. The Terran broke the silence. I am Vice Admiral Helen Peterson. You are fleeing one of my people's planets after jamming their communications for hours, and your people have a certain reputation for hate crimes against Terrans. The now-named Vice Admiral stated. Immediately, the three remaining ships were thrown into a panic, trying to extrapolate a new course and possible evasive maneuvers. All the while, Helen watched, boredom present on her face. Let me be clear, the Admiral said, her voice cutting through the noise. There is no possibility of escape. Even if you do go FTL, this is an act of war. If your official military uniforms are any indication... Yes, I'm talking about you, engineers and techs scurrying about thinking you're out of frame. Said serviceman, froze in place. I'm going to assume that you thought that we'd send out an emergency broadcast whenever we're in trouble. I mean, so many other races do the same. Yourselves included, she said, now pacing like a caged predator. The camera broadcasting her followed her as she moved. We Terrans, however, prefer a much different approach. You see, we have a channel entirely dedicated to saying we are okay over and over. That way, the moment that that stops, we know something's wrong. It's tied to a geothermal plant, so power outages are rare, she stated. She turned to look back at the camera. Our captain, Captain Zulman, shivered. So, do you want to go down fighting or running? Vice Admiral Peterson inquired, holding up her hand and extending her index finger. Bang! End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1663. Story number one. Human Auxiliaries, written by Adjutant Stormy. Rover sniffed and snorted at his new colleague, the Lazy One, again wanting to play. Though different species, they still served at the pleasure of the big ones. 
As the home went to new places and each job was to find new smells, he loved finding new smells. And the big ones always rewarded him with scritches, or better, treats, when he smelled something they desired. He did not know the job of the lazy ones. She seemed content in grooming and grooming and sleeping and grooming some more. Sometimes the lazy ones would come back to their den smelling of uh, something. But then after the grooming and grooming and grooming, she smelled just like the lazy one again. Sarah thought that the slobberfest was filthy. He had only stopped stinking when he the humans gave him a bath. Each time they landed and took the stinky one for a walk, he came back stinkier than ever. But Sarah guessed that that was his role, being dumb and stinky. Sarah always noticed the tiny pests that crept in whenever they went somewhere new. She hurt them, and she hunted them. The humans were obviously too stupid to hunt them themselves. <sighs> Sarah would fix it for them, leaving her catch at their den as evidence of her prowess, or their incompetence. Stinky One would sometimes roll around on her catch and be admonished by the humans. That was often why he needed the extra bath. Sarah had learned the nooks and crannies and secret pathways in their home, mostly to avoid the Stinky One. Frequently, the new pests found refuge there not immune to her hunter's prowess. With claws and teeth, she ended the tiny invaders. Rover had mixed feelings on the lazy one. She was surely loved by the big ones, but he never saw her chase a smell or carry a prize the big ones tossed away so carelessly. Maybe she did more than just groom and sleep. One day, the big ones were asleep and the big, big, big noise happened. Their home shook and Rover tried to tell the big ones. He tried to run to their den. But where there once was a path was a wall. He tried to tell the wall to go away. But the wall didn't listen. Sarah heard the detonation. Using the paths and pathways, she made her way to the human's den, except wasn't there anymore. Walls had slammed down and alarms were blaring. Sarah was annoyed and groomed a minute to resent herself. It's probably a good idea to get the stinky one out of wherever trouble they were in. She sidled up to the stinky one, flicked her tail at him, and intimated for the dum-dum to follow her. She knew the quietest part of their home. Rover didn't speak cat, but if the lazy one knew a way, maybe he could get to see the big ones and get more scritches. Or even better, some treats. Sarah led the stinky one to her hidden lair, an actual escape pod, and smacked the stinky one in annoyance. Rover was just so happy to be a part of this, tail wagging above the noise. He did not notice accidentally hitting the eject button. To his mind, the big grey mushroom in the lazy one's hideout. Two days later, Sarah and Rover would be rescued, never to see the big ones again. But they met some new big ones, and they gave them all the scritches the stinky one or lazy one could ever need. Log of Corporal Samuels of the UNSE Bowler, Scout and Rescue Squadron Vessel. We encountered the wreck of the UNSC Visage two standard days ago. One recorded escape pod ejection after the impact with an asteroid of unprotected orbit. We have chased down the pod. Of a crew of two, we are happy to report two life signs aboard, moving to intercept. Taking the pod on board. We were greeted by one very enthusiastic canine and one very dismissive cat, but no humans. 
Commanders considering retiring the two with full rank and honors for surviving the unfortunate surveying catastrophe. Already, my crewmen are all calling her Dibs. End of story. Story number two. Why We Did It, written by Lieutenant General Fuckery. The entire experimental acquisitions department was dead, and no one knew why. The E-80, now very much deceased experimental acquisitions department, had been working on the same task they always had. Conquest of alien worlds with minimal bloodshed. This often took the form of disruption of information networks, sabotage of key military targets, or even genetically engineered pathogens specifically tailored to incapacitate or pacify without kidding. Very much not the sort of thing that could wipe out an entire department if it were to break containment. A team of investigators were quickly dispatched to find out exactly what had gone wrong. The reports came out, shook the entire Kajai Empire to the core, and ensured that no annexation fleet would ever arrive on the planet known to its inhabitants as Holy Terra of Earth. The early stages of the mission went smoothly. The crime scene analysis entering a small orbital station without incident to find the entire place looking as though the occupants had simply stepped out for a coffee. Perhaps from one of the terrestrial shops they seemed to have become infatuated with, though never visited, just before the end. The computers were powered on, but in idle mode. The lights turned low, all desks organized, chairs pushed in. If there had been papers, they would have been stacked neatly by the workstations. The only indications that anything was wrong were the near-absolute silence and the smell of decay. Of course... The investigators were wearing full environmental suits, in case of an escaped pathogen. But their atmospheric scanners were advanced enough to identify Kajai corpse smell when they found it. One of the investigators gently touched a computer interface, and it lit up, showing a log of information network use by a group of humans, helpfully gathered by the Kajai by human corporations, which simply didn't seem to care who they sold their information to. Another display monitored a few key network sites, from which the researchers had apparently been studying human behaviors, the better to influence them when the time came. Before the third display could be activated, one of the living Kajai let out a gasp. She had just found the meeting room that housed the corpses of every single researcher. Quick inspection revealed them to all be dead by apparently self-inflicted injuries. While the head researcher held a small, portable computer, its display still blinking with four-word header. Why we did it. The chief investigator was summoned, and she wasted no time prying the machine from the owner's cold, dead hand. She tapped the display. The text spread itself across the screen. It read as follows. It is with great sadness that we must report not only our failure to secure the planet Earth for the Kajai Empire, but also our complete failure as sapient organisms. We thought that it was possible to control the minds of the human population by manipulating their information networks, as the species relies on such more than any other that we have encountered. While our early tests showed positive results, we soon found that much of the groundwork had already been laid and promptly abandoned by the humans themselves. We assume that with our superior technology and understanding of the minds of so many other sapiens, 
that we could succeed where they had failed. We were wrong. So very catastrophically wrong. We imitated their methods and information dissemination. We created templates that should have perfectly melded with their own. It was genius. It should have spread like wildfire and shaped the mind of every human who saw it to embrace the Kajai annexation fleet with open arms. We failed horribly. I know not how, but the humans show an incredibly ability to detect even the most subtle deviations from the norm and extrapolate incredible and, in this case, correct assumptions therefrom. They figured out exactly what we are and what we were after, and they counterattacked. I have never witnessed such vitriol, such violent disregard for another living entity in my entire existence. If our psychological attack was a knife, theirs was an indiscriminate artillery shell. Please, for the good of us all, leave the humans alone. Destroy this station and never return. They are worse than us in every conceivable way. Violent, sadistic, and possessed of something that we have no word for, that they call Schadenfreude. Knowing the power of such creatures, I must admit that I am in awe of their very existence. That they have not exterminated themselves can be nothing other than pure ill luck for the entire galaxy. Now, having not only borne witness to their powers, but being on the receiving end of the full force of their attacks, I speak for every member of the EAD when I say that I simply cannot continue to live. I pray whoever finds this message does not check our research. After everything we have been through, none of us have the heart to purge it, and simply destroy the station and all records of this infernal race with it. May God have mercy on us all. And so the would-be invaders fled. The station was scuttled, and the only remaining evidence of the whole affair was a few hundred megabytes of data left on a server somewhere on Earth. First, a collection of images of humans, all happy, all smiling, captioned with short notes about the better world under alien rule. Second, the responses that had been wiped out every living thing on the research station, all in two simple forms. Kill yourself, Zeno, and the Greys can't meme. Tales from Outer Space 1664 Story number one. A race with a different kind of power. Written by Good Deer Nice Beer. Please take a seat and let us begin. What is it that you wanted to ask me about? Thank you for the timely accommodation, if it's nothing too serious. I think at least, uh... But I came here to clarify, just in case. Very well. Uh, I'm listening. I've been performing a routine production chain inspection, and I have found some unusual and frankly confusing changes. S such as? For some reason, the Maxi Drink TM Brewery I oversee has replaced all of its stock of dyes with much less vibrant alternatives, and we seem to switch to the Gorble Fruit Syrup as our sweetener. I've talked to the low-level managers, and they told me that it was a top-down order. I, uh, but I, I wasn't notified of such a change. I apologize for stepping out of line, but uh, the dyes alone will cost us a great sum in comparison to the older ones, and uh, our forever thirst effect will disappear with the change of sweeteners. I also observed 
the inspector said while putting a bottle of the fizzy drink on the table. The backside of the packaging has gained an informative section. The composition information provided isn't enough to give our competitors an insight into our recipe, but the sole fact it's there is concerning to me and, uh... He said while putting his fingers on the little picture near the text. Why are we advertising our drink scores a measly 4 out of 10 on the nutrition scale? The being on the other side of the desk watched in a sort of embarrassment. They paid attention to the conversation, but occasionally were seen clinking on their data pad. I see that we've made quite the mistake indeed. I'm sorry. The guidance department has been performing at its maximum capacity this month. You must have been accidentally skipped over. Yes, you are correct in all those matters. Dyes will cost us, truthfully, entire double digits of our profits. And I am aware that we won't be able to keep our customers loyal with a change of the sweetener. But the problem is... They said in a quiet and saddened tone. We, uh, have no choice. As I said, you should have been notified. Rest assured that these changes are indeed coming from the top, and don't apply to just your brewery. We have recently entered the human market, and, uh, well, uh, they do things differently than the rest of the galaxy. We would have been deemed too dangerous for the general public if we kept our standard procedure, and there is just no way that we can afford to pass by a market where tens of billions of creatures can purchase our products. But why change the galactic production lines for a single species? I will admit that they are quite populous, but still... Well, you are correct. The rest of our client races outnumber them severely. But even so, our estimates put the potential income increase from this expansion at around 27%. Oh my. How, uh, how is that possible? Yet again, they do things a bit differently. Their wealth is significantly more spread out. And while the Korg are wealthier on paper, only their nobility can purchase our products. The rest of the population can only dream of having a sip of the Maxi Drink TM. But in human society, half of them can afford a bottle of it a weekly. I see. That does make sense now. I am concerned about our standing internationally, however. Won't Markish Breeze TM or Ulpa TM snatch up our customers in the non-human markets? It is significantly harder to be competitive now. Don't worry about that. Our persuasion team is currently on tour of all the major governmental capitals across the galaxy. We are still the biggest corporation in the galaxy, and we intend to use that influence. I don't follow. We prepared a series of bills to be adopted in the near future across all civilized space. If we have to abide by human standards, others will too. Not to mention the PR boost from being the sole advocates of consumer welfare in the industry. I see. Well, uh, that does fill me with confidence. Thank you for the talk. I'm sorry to have taken up your time. No fault of your own, but I'm glad you understand. I hope that you were isolated case and not being informed. I don't want to- Oh, I'm, uh, I'm pretty sure the whole queue is full of inspectors like me. Fetching's representative was talking to me earlier about not understanding the new seatbelt rule. End of story. Story number two. Humanity failed. Written by Pixel not included. 
when humanity found that they were not alone in the universe. They vowed to be better, vowed to put behind them hatred and war. They joined the Galactic Federation with an unbridled joy and optimism. For decades they learned, innovated, and grew. When the Ulna appeared and demanded our unconditional surrender, humanity strove for peace. They attempted to offer some of their worlds to the Ulna in exchange for peace. When the Ulna lost the first Federation colony, humanity let out a weary sigh. They knew that they had failed. Humanity had no ministry to speak of. The newest member of the Federation, they were a peaceful species. When they vowed to us, the Geithlanki, that they would stand by us and defend our homeworld, we did the equivalent of smiling and patting a small child on the head. Of course, dear. And we were thankful for your help. But uh, don't get hurt. When the humans' entire defense fleet was left spewing atmosphere and fire in orbit, unlike many of other Federation members, not a single ship retreated. Then when the Ulna swarm descended upon my planet, the humans knew that they had failed again. I was on the final refugee ship to escape my homeworld, headed for human space. It was not my first time here, but everything had changed since the last time. The city seemed to shut down and supplies were being rationed. When I asked, I was told their economy had shifted to a war footing. Renouncing their vows of peace and, uh, with an industriousness frightening even to their allies, the humans went to war. Humanity, whom we knew as a race of peace-loving artists and scientists, had once more failed. I am standing here to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the humans' victory over the Ulna. This is a day of great sadness for the humans. The Ulna were in a hive mind species and are now extinct. To ensure peace in the galaxy, humanity annihilated them. Once again, humans had failed. After acts of genocide on their own world thousands of years ago, humans had made the sacred vow of never again. Yet, the rest of the Federation celebrates this day. For it marked the day when hope returned. We celebrate humanity because they strove for peace in the face of war. We celebrate humanity because every minute they howled off the Ulna, another 10,000 civilians fled to safety. We celebrate humanity because they destroyed the single most bloodthirsty race that we have ever encountered. Humanity has failed again and again. This is because humanity always reaches for the stars and strives to be better than they have ever been before. I would argue that many of humanity's failures are grander than the successes of other races. Thylian Cuthran, Guthlanki Ambassador to Earth End of story Story number three The Nerds, written by Mean Gator they say that reality is stranger than fiction, and they are right. First contact was something that always excited our imagination. The proof that we were not alone in the universe, that there were others like us, sentient, intelligent, able to dream, able to plan, to explore. We were not alone, 
but we didn't know that. Me have been watched for many centuries. Me have been watched since Babylonians made the first tables full with calculations, since they devised the first calendars. Me have been watched when the Greeks expanded the ancient knowledge and introduced mathematical rigor. When Euclid wrote elements and when Eudoxus and Archimedes made the first tentative steps towards calculus. You see, we are not death worlders. Earth-type planets are common enough. We weren't being admired or feared as fighters. There are plenty of alien species. That their fighting abilities would put the Maginyautja from the Predator franchise to shame. We weren't being admired or feared as tacticians or strategists, though we belong to the very best. We wouldn't be able to compare with any advanced AI. We have been watched and we have been manipulated for one reason and one reason only. The real reason is not what the conspiracy nuts fantasized. They didn't want to conquer us. They didn't want to enslave us. They wanted one thing and one thing only. Not to destroy ourselves. Not from the kindness of their hearts, no. Nowadays, several centuries after first contact with the galactic community, it's common knowledge. But before that, no one even came close to pinpoint exactly where humanity excels. It's our mathematics. We are simply the best mathematicians in this part of the universe. We always imagined that first contact will be made when we colonized our solar system, and we didn't. Or after achieving FTL, and we didn't. Nope, the first contact was made on July 21st, 2273, when the first proof of Ryman's hypothesis was published, after being verified on Journal of Advanced Mathematics, making it a theorem. We are now part of the Galactic Federation, living in a post-scarcity civilization. Earth hosting three of the top five galactic universities in mathematics, computer science, physics, and engineering. We are the galaxy's nerds. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1665 Let Loose the Songs of War Written by JCB112 my grandfather had once told me what music sounded like. He told me a great many things about the world before the Great Silence. A world of incredible sights and sounds. A world as vibrant in color as it was in its complexity of noise. A world that we had once ruled. A world that we held dominion. A world that our Sileans would never be able to experience with our own senses for as long as our kind chooses survival over living. It was difficult to accept my grandfather's tales as anything but fiction. Perhaps this was why he was the chosen, or rather, punished to the life of the surface walker, doomed to live a short and brutal existence above the warrens as cattle and game for the invaders. The tales he regaled me with, the stories of his reality that was supposedly our past. It was too much for the eldest to accept. It was deemed too dangerous to spread. For what use was there to fixate on the stories of the past, when the present and the future held no hope of reattaining it? It was better to be ignorant, better to know only what's necessary for continued survival, better to survive, then be dead, fool. 
It was better to be silent underground where the invaders could not hear us. I personally couldn't handle the thought of ever sacrificing my life for a simple tale. Grandfather's punishment as a surface walker was tantamount to execution, but it was necessary. Another necessary evil in this world we find ourselves in. For the invaders were never truly satisfied, and what they craved more than our lands, our histories, and our legacies was fresh meat and blood. They weren't satisfied in knowing that they had eliminated and humiliated us. They weren't happy with a mere victory. No, they wanted to continue their games for however long that may last. And most, if not all, of these games required Elaian blood. They'd appear in large numbers after the thawing season, gathering supplies, equipment, materials, and other worldly constructs too bizarre for any of us to truly comprehend, to set up temporary camps throughout the great prairies. More often than not, they'd miss our warrens and bunkers by a factor of a good few hundred miles. This was a constant reminder that we had in fact cracked the code of our survival. As by remaining silent, we remained hidden, and by remaining hidden, we remained safe. Yet, that couldn't last forever. Given enough time, the invaders could pierce through the dirt with their tools and machines. Given enough time, even the most careful of warrens could accidentally emit too much noise. And that's where the surface walkers come in. They were, for all intents and purposes, sacrifices for the invaders to both satisfy their bloodlust and bait to throw them off of the trail as best that they could. They would track as far as then as long as their legs could take them, journeying as far away from the bunkers as they could, all the while emitting as much noise and sound as was possible. They would scream into the void to make sure that any and all attention was on them and not on us. Yet the invaders had taken this to a ritual of sorts, a sort of hunt. Grandfather had always told us that the machines and equipment they brought along weren't just weapons of war or tools of combat. No, a good chunk of the equipment was in fact meant exclusively for recording and broadcasting. When coupled with how they preferred to focus their attention on our surface walkers, he surmised that the invaders had long since forgotten their war of extermination and had now turned their hunts into a game. A game which they broadcasted for more of their kind throughout the stars. This very idea sickened me to my core, but I could do nothing about it. When the time came to bid my grandfather goodbye, I, along with many others amongst the crowd, expected yet another silent and grim send-off. Yet... What I saw, what all of us saw, wasn't the sight of a defeated man, but instead one that was full of vigor and vitality of life. He stood in the mining shaft turned elevator with a look of absolute glee. One that most could have easily mistaken as the eyes of a madman. But I knew better. This was the look of my grandfather at peace, and it was clear why this was the case. The Elder seemed to have seen fit to release one of the many confiscated items back to the man, and sure enough, what I saw him cradling in his arms was none other than the family heirloom I'd heard so much about. 
yet had never ever even heard before. It was a strange looking thing, a pouch-like bag with a had several tubes sticking out from its belly, one that was placed firmly into my grandfather's maw as he locked eyes with me and began bellowing. A deep thrum filled the caves, one that reverberated against every wall and alcove, filling the once desolate space with an uneasy gut-curdling thrum. This was followed by a shrill wailing sound, shifting in pitch and notes with a beauty that I simply could not describe. Mid-transitioned between the two noises, the deep, dulcet drums and the sharp, shrilly wailing, and the walls of the bunker acting as an echo chamber, reverberating and thus blending the sounds together into something otherworldly. It stirred up something inside me, beckoning a part of me that I did not know still existed. It pulled to the forefront emotions and memories I had suppressed for decades. The music lessons conducted in a hole in the wall, the harsh memorization of page after page of sheet paper after sheet paper, all of it culminating in an immensely underwhelming and unsatisfactory end of whispered hums, beats, and singing. Never anything like this, nothing so grand, nothing so beautiful. I understood now what my grandfather meant by the fact that our blood carried with it the spirit of a musician. For you could take the instruments, the sheet music, the lyrics and compositions away from the lorik. But you could never take away the music from a lorik. It was at that point that I knew I had to carry on the legacy. Screw the elders, screw the invaders. I couldn't let this part of us die. Not when I just tasted what we'd lost. The next decade consisted of me taking on the role my grandfather had committed himself to. Teaching my own children and grandchildren behind hidden and sealed off holes in the wall, attempting to imbue and inspire in them the same love and appreciation for the art form long since dead. Yet, it was becoming increasingly difficult by the year. The elders instituted bans and regulations more intense than ever before. Even talking was now done in hushed whispers and voices. There had been rumors that the elders had planned on teaching the next generation in exclusively sign language to cut the noise entirely. It was under these conditions and after being caught red-handed that my time too had finally come. As I stood in the same position my grandfather had all those years ago, I held within my hands yet another part of the family collection, a flute. But unlike my grandfather, who had lived in the world before the Great Silence, I had little to no hands-on experience with the instrument. Playing it for the first time didn't elicit the same effect as I'd hoped. With even my own two ears being let down by the sounds that I was generating. It was with that and a final cursory glance to my children and grandchildren that I realized that I was perhaps the last. The last to embrace this dying spirit of a decaying civilization. The world above was bright, far brighter than anything in the Warrens. I could see vast expanses of open fields in every direction with no distinguishing features or markers. I could also hear the rustling of leaves and the whistling of the wind. The sensation of the breeze of my bare skin for the first time 
my life. However, as I moved forward, I could hear something else. It sounded like percussion, akin to the hollow noise that was generated by a wooden stick striking an empty tube. It played in near synchrony with the rustling of the winds. My first thoughts went to that later desire for hope. Perhaps there was indeed someone out here. Perhaps there was someone waiting for me. Maybe our underground warren was just a complete lie. I stopped in my tracks as soon as I discovered what it was that was generating that noise. It was a wind chime, constructed entirely by Alayan bones. I fell right on my backside, trying my best to hold back the last meal that I had from coming back up before I sprinted in the opposite direction. Grandfather was right. This was a game, and I was now a running target. Minutes of sprinting soon turned into hours as my legs began to weaken, my body finally catching up to me and the adrenaline of my system finally dissipated. I ended up in yet another field, this sporting a hilly terrain and plenty of larger trees that I felt gave me more cover. A part of me felt that I'd made it out of there safely, and because I could not see nor hear any potential threats, that I was indeed in the clear. But I knew that it wasn't the case. The invaders didn't need to see you to hunt you down. They didn't need to track your footprints or comb over the tracks for clues. Not when they could hear your heartbeat from a hundred miles in any direction. And with my running... Huffing and puffing, it wouldn't be long before my time was up. At this point, I could feel part of me simply telling me to give up. Why run or take another step? Why entertain them when this is exactly what they wanted? Indeed, I was done with running, but I wasn't done with living just yet. I pulled out the fruit, inspected its expert craftsmanship, admiring its build and design for what was perhaps one final time. Before I began playing, I poured my heart into each and every note, huffing and puffing and daring and taunting the invaders to take me where I stood. To take me, not with my tail between my legs, but on this literal hill where I intended to die. My cries for an honorable death were answered not a few minutes later, as I saw them, as my eyes would make contact with these hulking monstrosities that skulked on all fours and practically leapt towards my direction with terrifying speed. In the blink of an eye, they surrounded me, a literal sea of creatures that drowned out any discernible features of the land underneath their hulking bodies. So numerous were their numbers that they blanketed the landscape. Fear entered my heart, but I refused to relent, continuing my own assault, my own cry of defiance. I refused to stop playing. Even as the largest of the horde approached me, its face petals splayed open, its disgusting face mimicking our own species' smile with a terrifying degree of accuracy as it dropped something at my feet. A deflated bag with four tubes sticking out of its belly, coated in strange splotches of dried and crusty red residue. My heart dropped as I realized exactly what it was. As I realized now, I was quite literally walking in my grandfather's footsteps. The beast cackled at me, clicking and shifting its weight, and my music finally faded to nothing. I felt its claw reaching for my face. Crack! 
everything stopped. My heart skipping a beat as the beasts around me seemed to wail and whine in confusion and panic. I looked up into the skies towards the direction of the strange sound, squinting my eyes to determine just what caused it. Crack! There it was again. Crack! More and more of these noises, but not a single hint of what was causing it. Then whistling. Then BOOM! I felt the very air that surrounded me solidifying, hurling me off my feet. I could feel every last breath in my lungs forcibly squeezed out. I could even hear the force of the wind, the harsh, snarling, angry gale that had brought upon rains of topsoil and debris. Then all I heard was a sharp, high-pitched ringing, one that seemed to block out any and all sounds from the world as my eyes opened to the gaping maw of the invader just inches away from my face. A maw that was disconnected from any body or any head for that matter. As I struggled back to my feet, all I could see surrounding me was devastation on a scale that was impossible to comprehend. What had formerly been organized groups and packs of invader hunters, what had formerly been a brown and black scourge of the land, was now reduced to ash and debris. I could barely make out what was tree burnt to a crisp, and what was the burnt out husk of an invader. Astonishingly, the hill I stood on, the five by five foot outcropping I stood on top, was left practically untouched. My mind went through its motions, confused, perplexed, but most of all, completely rejected the world that I was now thrust into. A part of me wanted to laugh and rejoice in victory. Another part of me wanted just to close my eyes, hoping to wake back up in the warren. But that confused, shocked joy didn't last forever. I heard something, a cackling, a series of clicks that were just buried deep within the piles of dead invaders. Then, a sudden pop, followed by a sharp cry of pain. One of them had survived, and its locked eyes with me and its face petals angled towards my direction. It took a few steps back, my legs wobbling, trembling, but there was nowhere to run to, nowhere to even hide. I was a durar in the headlights, so the creature hobbled its way towards me, its front legs battened, and bruised, its hind legs burnt to a crisp. Yet despite all of its grievous injuries, it was still faster than me. I knew nothing could save me now. Nothing short of a miracle. Nothing short of the divine intervention that had been exploding air not a few moments ago. There was nothing left to do but pray. And so I did. I closed my eyes, hoping this was all a dream. Hoping. Praying, begging. Then I heard it. The distant roar of some unknown beast echoing off the far in the distance followed by a hard thumping. A thumping that grew louder and louder and louder still until I realized it wasn't the thumping of the creature's hooves or the thrums of a bellowing monstrosity. But in fact, music. The invader in front of me seemed to recoil at the sound its face petals flaying and its body tensing at the mere sound of what was approaching. Yet the sounds grew louder still. I could hear the distant tune of a beat that consistently played at 100 beats per minute. 
instruments I'd never even conceived of. Some sounded like the strings my grandfather had described. Others, like the woodwinds I'd used. But others, there was a sharp richness to it that I couldn't pin down. All of it, however, was punctuated by the angelic singing of some otherworldly creature. The invader seemed to recoil further with every passing moment. Its sprint towards me had turned into a slow crawl as it desperately attempted to block out as much of the noise as possible. As the sounds got closer and closer still, I also heard something else. The roaring of machinery. Something that I hadn't heard since my early childhood when the last fuel-driven motors were shut down permanently. But it wasn't just a lone motor, or two, or even three or four, but a whole pack of them. They revved in unison, echoing the music that was blasting on full, as the cracking of metal on suspension could likewise be heard. It was then, and only then, that I saw it. Hulking beasts of metal, some three to four times taller than myself, all covered in drab olive or a dull grey with strange star-like symbols painted on all over them all moving forward following a smaller beast which housed what seemed to be people inside. It was clear that the entire pack was following their smaller leader, as the music was clearly emanating from the focal point. The whole pack came to a stop just about a hundred feet from where I stood. There, I finally clasped my ears shut from all the noise. The ringing finally dissipated, exposing my sensitive ears to the true power of these creatures. Their very presence generated a noise that was actually hurting me, my virtue simply being in close proximity to me. At this point, the invader was barely even twitching. The only evidence of its life force was the shrill cries of pain that it consistently bellowed out. Sometime between the shock and the pain, one of the smaller creatures from within the pack had approached me, handing me a strange device that resembled two cups connected via a headband. I stared at the creature warily, tentatively, my hands trembling as I reached for the strange device, and saw that the creatures in front of me was doing. He was gesturing for me to put it on my head, on top of both my ears. I did so, knowing that angering such creature was probably wasn't the best idea, and after all was said and done, the noise was gone. Silence finally returned to me as I praised the ancestor for this respite. It was then, and only then, that I pulled out a strangely shaped object, a piece of oddly shaped metal, that it pointed towards the crippled invader and BANG! Ended its suffering. My whole body recoiled from that. The noise from that, that, that thing. I dared not imagine what it would sound like without the aid of these ear cups. Testing, one, testing, te one, two, one, two, check. Elaine. Can you understand me? Her voice suddenly addressed me from inside the metal cups, which almost prompted me to take them off. If not, for a stern looking by the creature in front of me. Yes, 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 I, I can. I managed to out meekly, eliciting a toothy smile from the creature. Good, good. Well then, son, I take it that you've got quite the shock from all of that. I, yes, I'm still trying to understand. Still in awe at the entire situation, huh? There was a series of disappearing stares from the other creatures present, ranking the principal creature, as if they were actual pain from the choice of words their leader had used. I am... Um... Ah, where are my manners? I am Lieutenant Colonel Elliot Porter, 
commander of the 1st Armored Battalion, 1st Pathfinders of the United Nations Forward Expeditionary Force. I could only nod in understanding. The very concept of a functioning military after the Great Silence was more alien than even the aliens themselves. Well, what are you? We are humans, more specifically humanity's sword and shield, and we're here to help. Humans, I've uh, never heard of a creature with a name such as yours, uh, with abilities such as yours, uh, with technologies that defied the common conventions. Common conventions you are. Your tools, your weapons, everything you have exposes you to the being detected by the invaders. Yeah, and you care not. Why should we? By being so blatant with your presence, you're exposing yourself to the dangers posed by those invaders. Yep. But the invaders, they're terrifying, unrelenting hunters by nature. Precisely. There's a difference between hunter and a soldier, Elayan. The former stalks, creeps, hides in shadows waiting to strike. The latter shows up in your face and shoots you where you stand, without fear, without question. The former fights to survive, nor fights for sport. The latter fights for a cause, fights for something greater. And to that end, the latter has the support of a hundred billion taxpayers supporting the military-industrial complex that can supply enough ships, planes, bombs, and shells to blow up a hundred thousand planets to kingdom come. The human claimed he wasn't a hunter, yet the toothy grin he was currently displaying proved to me that this was anything but the case. Regardless, I relented. The facts spoke for themselves. The dead bodies of the untold mass of invaders was proof enough. Now we have a whole continent to clear up before dinner. Boys in the sky are already bombing the rest of the continent to hull them back. But we were sent here to mop up and occupy. However, I've been watching you and your antics there, son. You and your flute there. He pointed to the flute still held in my vice grip. You did us a solid by gathering the invaders up into one neat little cluster. But made it easy targets from above. And I know you probably want some level of payback, considering all that's been done to your kind. So why don't I return the favor to you now? Again, the grin prompted me to nod and agree with his proposal, even before I heard it. Good, good, come on, get in, you're riding shotgun with me. It was with that that I got into the metal beast, onto one of the seats, and I felt the world suddenly rush by me as it accelerated to the speed I refused to believe was real. So here's the plan. You saw how disoriented the Vaders get when we blast the Elrad. Elrad? I parroted back, finally finding my own voice as the human nodded. The long-range acoustic device, the, uh, music you heard before we arrived. Yes? Well, uh, it's not just for show. Well, honestly, it kind of is. Gotta say it's been a blast playing some classic tunes for the sake of something other than morale boosting. But yeah, the invaders, as you know, hunt and excel at tracking and eliminating targets by the naturally sensed audio-sensory organs. Yes, uh, this is why my civilization has retreated underground, eschewed most forms of our prior technologic civilization, and maintained what we needed to survive. Yeah, well, suffice to say that I've heard that from ten other species across a hundred other planets, so you folks aren't alone. Anyways, you saw what happened to that one survivor, right? Tens of clicks before we arrived, the Owlrad had already messed with it enough to render it barely functional. That's generally our IMO. We go in, blast the Owlrad with our track of choice, and we mop up basically unchallenged. My eyes slowly lit up as I realized the implications of the human's explanation. Go on. Well, 
You know how we get to choose whatever track we want to play on this Alred? A grin began to form on the edges of my maw. Yes, I recall. Well, that also works for live audio, provided the audio has consistent stream of sound to it. And, well, be pointed at my flute. How's about we have some of your people's tunes? That's the last thing these feckers have to hear. I began to actually cackle. The absolute ridiculousness of the situation wasn't lost in me. But the revelation of my grandfather's demise, playing the bagpipes until the last moment, made the whole thing feel poetic, in a sense. A final act of justice. You needn't say any more, friend. Ah, you needn't say another word. But I would like to ask, go on, how long until the next target? The human chuckled. Two cackling grins practically harmonizing in chorus. Ten minutes. Then let us loose the songs of war, human. Let us serenade the ending of an era. In front of us was a mountain, atop of it, and dotted all along the seemed to be structures of immense size and scale. I would have recoiled in terror from it if I wasn't for the human sitting right next to me. Similar to moments prior, the world before us was struck by unknown assailants from the heavens, and the ground before us shook with a fury that caused the earth around us to visibly ripple. It twisted, it turned, shuddering and sheer terror at the ferocity of the human's assault. Moments later, as the ash and dust finally settled, the mountain that had stood before us was a vast complex as it had been host to, was no more than a mound of ash and fine dirt. It is not over yet. Look, the human spoke, pointing towards the groups of invaders crawling out of what was left of the exposed rock. All right, seems like we've got a lot of work to cut out for us, sir. Go away in. He handed me a strange device, placing it in front of my flute. Show them what you got. I closed my eyes. A surface walker was supposed to act as bait. And with a deep inhale, a surface walker was supposed to draw as much attention away from the warren as possible. I took my flute. A surface walker wasn't expected to live and played. But here I was. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1666 Story number one. What an odd thing to say. Written by Producers HFY. Rhea pressed the key cord to play the video yet again. The Oxstands and the humans had parted heads for suns now. But things had finally come to a head when the humans attempted to census of their people in Oxstan territory. Numbers had dropped drastically in the past four moons, and the humans suspected mass internment or murder. The Oxstand government's suggestions that perhaps the missing humans had taken their own lives caused riots, and a declaration of war was anticipated. A small-time videographer had managed to speak with the human secretary on his way to the courts minutes before the declaration happened, simply asking him for a comment. This was the video Rhea was watching now. She keyed the cord again. Sir, is there anything that you would like to say before today's session? The human rolled his tongue underneath his bottom lip, looking towards the camera with a distinctive stare. He rolled his tongue again, as if weighing the words it was about to produce. Our military vessels do not have interplanetary thrusters. That is all. The video ended and the human walked away, just as he had in the previous viewing of all the things he could have said. 
Why that? Why is something so, uh, weak? But the war was declared, and every human in the parliament had left. Rhea gave up on the video, though only temporarily. In favor of turning off the oven, her dinner was ready. The war was over, and Rhea wished that she had thought harder along with the rest of the 450 million people who had watched the strange video. Minutes after the human declaration, almost instant considering transmission delays, Oxtan ships had jumped into a distant orbit around Earth, the human's home world. Earth was unguarded, yet rather than begin to slow burn towards the planet, every ship had erupted into a massive blaze of nuclear fire. No matter the strategy, every single Oxtan ship sent to Earth detonated on arrival, and soon there was not a single ship willing to make the jump. The Oxtan government attempted a hostage negotiation, using the human diaspora as leverage. But the humans had an equally large Oxtan population on their worlds, and the situation soon ended in a stalemate. That was a quarter moon ago, and the light from Earth's system had now left human territory hours before the war began. An unusual pattern of activity could be seen around Earth. Minuscule ships, like the mere probes, jumped into low orbit, then jumped again, moving rapidly in a geometric shape around the planet. When apparently finished, they moved into a large shell around the planet, dancing again in their stuttering FTL motion, and moving to a larger shell. This continued in a rapid fashion, more probes being added as the sphere grew larger until the Oxtan's disastrous arrival, at which point the probes jumped away and did not return. Rhea did find some small pride in the disturbing situation. It was one of her people who worked out the human strategy. When time lapsed from certain angles, the footage showed faint glittering around Earth within the large area that probes had passed through. Human drives used a slightly different technique than most while the standard jump would simply transport a ship to a desired location. A human jump had the added effect of transporting the destination back, exactly exchanging the two areas. Human drives were bidirectional. Most ships, all non-human ships, made their jumps into orbit, then burned down to the destination on the planet. This was because space was empty. Sure, a few stray particles would overlap with the arriving ship, but a ship would have to run for thousands of years to notice anywhere. Because human ships did not have this limitation, they could, without fear, jump directly to a planet, with the only consequence being a small amount of atmosphere exchange in return. In order to prevent confusion and panic, human ships traveling to other systems would jump to orbit and burn, wasting fuel to behave like a standard ship would. Rhea shuddered. All of this was public knowledge. Anyone who worked in transport or FTL physics was well aware of this fact. In fact, it was well known that human transport companies preferred to have an even flow of ships in both directions to avoid wasting energy on a one-way jump. Human military vessels, not carrying non-humans, did not have the interplanetary thrusters, nor indeed any thrusters at all, because they didn't need them. The human probes had left something in orbit, metal balls most likely, person-sized pieces of some dense substance, spaced slightly tighter than the diameter of the Oxtant military vessels. 
When they jumped to Earth, at least one ball would overlap the ship, fusing enough atoms to cause a small nuclear detonation. This was not the problem for the human ships, of course, who would merely leave a few metal balls as they left. Idly checking the news on her computer, Rhea noticed an article explaining that the metal was industrial waste, and that the human military had planned to eject the metal into orbit even without a war. End of story. Story number two. Worm Hikers, written by Lieutenant General Fickery. The jubilation experienced by the majority of the human race upon their first contact with alien life was tempered slightly by the fact that said contact occurred between their first faster-than-light probe and the sight of a delivery truck. Of course, while many people from many worlds agree that the human lawyer's argument of if you didn't want us to accidentally cripple galactic commerce during one of the busiest rush megacycles, a little under 1.6 rush hours, ever recorded, you should have told us our planet was right above the hyperspace interchange so we wouldn't FTL probes across three lanes of traffic. Did stand up to scrutiny. Ultimately, the local authorities, the Exviron League, ruled that it was the responsibility of the nations of Seoul to be cognizant of local traffic ordinances, and ordered all FTL-capable craft, or craft that could easily be retrofitted with FTL capabilities, controlled by any of the aforementioned nations, be impounded for one terracycle, about 182 years. There was one other minor hiccup with humanity's first contact. The research base they had established on Mars was supplied by two Aldrin cyclers, which were deemed easily retrofitable and promptly disabled. This, of course, caused massive backlash from a number of spacefaring races, calling for either evacuation of the stranded humans or the repeal of the impounding order. The Exviron League, like any government caught doing silly and potentially death-inducing things, doubled down insisting that humans had demonstrated complete disregard for their own safety and the safety of those around them, and could not be trusted, and so on, and so on. Once the ex-Viron Bureau of Foreign Relations had dug itself out of a trillion-odd messages informing them of their gaffe, largely in the form of emergency reports of xenophagia, the requests for military aid, accompanied with images or videos of assaulted alien species, Consuming a tannish paste derived from chickpeas, the League agreed to install a pair of wormhole generators on the two home-inhabited planets to facilitate the necessary exchange of goods, without risking another traffic violation. Within half a gigacycle, the humans had torn down both generators, within four had reverse-engineered them, and by the time a half-dozen more could be bothered to pass, were the proud owners of one-sixteenth of all known artificial wormhole pairs in the galaxy, and, unsatisfied even with that, began work on a gateway project, a method of linking whatever to whatever, however we can, so whatever can travel whenever, because why ever the fuck not. While that project showed promise, it was estimated to be decades away. So some enterprising band of humans put out a call to the galaxy, establishing links with the transport hub in L4 orbit of Earth's Sol. And you can travel around the galaxy as close to instantly as customs can be persuaded to tolerate. All the humans asked in exchange would be equal opportunity to visit the partnered systems. 
And also preferential treatment for any ship charters or passengers booking opportunities that they would certainly need while there. The idea of using wormholes as anything other than a gimmick was laughed out of the first three systems it was brought to. So much so, no one even bothered to look at the second point. That is, until someone had the brilliant idea to tell their negotiation partners that arriving in Seoul by FTL was considered not only braggadocious, but quite gaudy as well. And anyone who did so would be viewed as a bit of a twat. This is a technique known to the galaxy over as lying through your teeth. But those with the governmental authority to make such decisions almost universally already looked like a bit of a twat, and thus can't be taking chances when it came to looking like more of one, and probably agreed. Soon, it seemed everywhere that was anywhere was linking up with Earth's Sol 4 transit hub, and so was some nowheres. The nowhereist link, which soon became the anywhereist, was the Eintona frontier, the last bastion of civilization before the wild, wild Wixtrapper expanse. The vast swath of unclaimed and largely unexplored space named after the man who got there first and put a beacon in it, Gleefork B. Expanse. It should be noted that when Gleefork discovered the words Wixtrapper and Expanse and direct translations of each other, he was completely inconsolable until he was told about the Labria tar pits. By the time he heard Table Mesa, he was quite convinced his human drinking partner was taking the piss. And so with the galaxy opening before them, but no method to reach the uncharted, uh, readers interesting, parts under their own power, humans set into the unknown the same way they had since 1978, with nothing but the clothes on their back, a towel, and an unquenchable thirst for gin and tonic, uh, I mean, uh, adventure. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1667 Heaven is Void of Light, written by Magic Rectangle. Amy Tannis and her husband, Jonathan, were working late into the night. Their laboratory was buried almost a kilometer beneath Ida Basin, the largest ice sea of Ganymede. It was in a geological stable area and far from any population centers, but it was a pain of a commute, so they often slept in the lab, woke up, and went right back to work. They had all the funding and the autonomy that they could ever want. They worked 12 to 18 hour days, not because they had to, but because they were close, so close, to something that would change humanity's place in the universe forever. They'd run hundreds of trials already. Opening the breach wasn't the problem. Feed too much power into the engine, and the breach would go wild. Too little, and it would almost instantly collapse in on itself. If they were going to figure out what was on the other side, they needed a stable breach. Jonathan had had the foresight to insist the breach chamber be 500 meters from any of the control systems, which had probably saved their lives the first time an unstable breach ate away the breach engine, and much of the test chamber and surrounding rock. Rebuilding after such an event was time-consuming, so the research mostly focused on gathering more and more data from the tiny underpowered breaches in the moment it took them to collapse. There was only so much that could be learned from this timid approach, though. It couldn't just be about power. They'd already identified the critical point between an unstable breach and a collapsing one. They had plenty of information about the collapsing breaches themselves, too. 
They needed more data from the unstable ones to understand what was going on. She'd argue with Jonathan many times about it. They'd plateaued. She knew it. He knew it. But he still thought it was too risky to intentionally open an unstable breach. To assuage his fears, she redesigned the Squelch, the system that could clamp shut an errant hole in the universe. She'd made backup systems for backup systems for backup systems, hoping to put his mind at ease. Ultimately, though, she knew what really scared him, the fact that she wasn't scared. The moment she'd seen the first unstable breach, her own eyes, something had changed in her. It was subtle, but she knew it was there. She wanted to see it again. She needed to. Jonathan had the opposite reaction. He'd sealed the viewing window and insisted they only watch the experiment through the closed-circuit monitoring system. This time, though, she'd come up with something that he couldn't argue his way around. A way that the breach engine could project the breach to a remote location. They wouldn't need to have any difficulty to replace equipment in the test chamber, just the sensors. They could even move the test chamber several kilometers away, if they wanted to. Kian Byron's father had been an ice miner. When his uncle Shane suffered a hypoxic brain injury from a faulty atmospheric unit in his drill rig, Kian's father began agitating to form a union. He should have known better. Some big shop corporate facts on Earth weren't going to sit around and let an upsy miners cut into their profits. First, there was the accident. The oxygen tank on his rig sprung a leak due to metal fatigue. The backup oxygen was missing from his emergency kit, despite him checking it first thing at the start of his shift, like always. He told Kian that he only lived because his tank failed earlier than it was meant to. There was still enough oxygen in the cab for him to make it back. His father got paranoid after that, but the stubborn son of a witch didn't pack off. If anything, he pushed harder to try and get the union going. Two weeks after the accident, Kian's father simply vanished. The bootlickers at security up moved to Galisto and shacked up with some war. Now Kian knew his father was no saint, but he hadn't even taken his toothbrush or change of clothes. He might not know the details, but it wasn't a fecking mystery what had happened or who was responsible. It was the same all over Ganymede. As far as Earth Alliance was concerned, the moon was a labor and resource for them to exploit as they saw fit, and anybody who got in the way of that didn't last long. So when a friend introduced him to some guys in Ganymede Independence Front, he signed up for the spot. As malicious went, they were pretty organized. He climbed the ranks to lieutenant and had been given command of his own squad. And today, it would all pay off. Today, the bastards were going to get theirs. Kayan heard his name. Rousing his thoughts back to the present, his unit commander stood in front of the room going over the plan. They would attack several government facilities across the moon simultaneously. Lieutenant Byron will take the third squad to assault the EA research facility under the Ida Basin. It is only accessible by a single tram and elevator system. They will hijack the tram, take out any security present, and claim the facility for the GIF. Recon details are in your briefing packet. Not exactly a glamorous assignment. Not when many of his compatriots would be assaulting proper government installations, or taking control of shipping systems that bled the lifeblood out of Ganymede back to Earth. Still, it must be important. 
The EA liked to use Ganymede for military research and testing. It was likely that they were developing weapons there. Nothing that they could immediately use, most likely. But it was a good bet that whatever it was would be bad for the meters down the line. Kian and his squad went over the equipment before it was time to hurry up and wait. Jonathan Tallis listened patiently as his wife explained her latest innovation. She was brilliant. If he was honest, she was smarter than he was. But where she was creative, he was methodical. It was why they made a good team. He could bring her back to reality, or at least make sure her ideas were implemented in safe and thoughtful ways. Remote opening of the breach, though, it was clear that she'd thought of it as a way to allay his safety concerns, but it scared him for an entirely different reason. Their research was technically funded by the military. That had always bothered him a little. Amy was happy to have funding, with little regard for who paid or why. But now, if she really could open breaches kilometers away from the breach engine, possibly many thousands of kilometers even, the possibility of weaponizing their research moved from abstract to very real. Images of ships, armies, cities, planets all vanished into a black abyss beyond the breaches splashed through his mind. Oblivious to his distress, his wife excitedly made her case. She'd already modified the breach engine. It had apparently been quite simple once she realized the governing principle. Worrying over the tactical details would at least distract him from thinking about the broader implications of the technology for a while. So, he was carefully reviewed her notes and schematics. Let's test it now. We don't need a new test chamber yet. We can just open it a few meters off center from the breach engine to verify that it works. If it fails, it'll just open normally. No big deal. She was practically vibrating with excitement, not giving him time to process everything. We need to run simulations first. The knot in his stomach kept getting tighter as he stalled. You really think that I modified the breach engine without doing simulations? Page 22. She reached over his shoulder, flipping the pages herself, too excited to wait for him to do it. Sweetheart, you know I have to go over all of this myself before we do anything. We won't be testing it for weeks. I can't believe you modified the breach engine before you even showed me any of this. Amy made a party face at him, but she wouldn't push it further. She knew how important due diligence was. She was just excited. John sat down and began to study her notes in more detail. All right, I need to learn all of this. If she understood his implied request to be left alone, she ignored it, hovering behind him. Go away, you maniac. This will probably take me as long to understand as it took you to dream up. Leave me in peace. Shoo! Amy wasn't sure what worker. She'd slept in her clothes, on the couch in her office again, but something felt off this morning. She walked down the hall towards the facility's only entrance, a large freight elevator. The graveyard chief security detail, two soldiers whose names she'd never bothered to learn, were not standing in their usual casual manner. They had their rifles raised, pointing them at the elevator door. What's going on? The soldier closest to her kept his focus on the elevator, and as he replied, The tram was activated using a duress code. It was a security feature. If you were forced to enter your code, you added an extra sequence that alerted the facility's security. The tram and elevator would still work, but whoever was in it would have the nasty surprise waiting for them. Amy decided the thing to do was to wake Jonathan and let the soldiers do their job. She'd only gotten halfway to his office when she heard a bang, followed quickly by several gunshots. She broke into a run. Jonathan was still asleep, 
He could sleep through anything. She shook him. We're in trouble. Get up. We need to hide. What? The lady said that you need to hide. Sounds like good advice, but uh, a bit late for that. Even before Amy turned to see him, the man's strong meat accent told her all she needed to know. You didn't hear that accent in military personnel. You definitely didn't hear it in academic circles. In fact, despite living on Ganymede for more than three years now, she could count on one hand how many people she'd met who spoke with it. Amy had a general idea that there was some unrest amongst the locals on Ganymede. In that moment, as she turned and saw the meter who had pointed their rifle at her, she wished that she'd learned a bit more about it. Now the scientist. You sure as hell ain't military? I doubt the cleaning staff can get away with wearing sweatpants to work. Jonathan spoke up before she could. My name is Dr. Jonathan Tillis. This is my wife, Amy. Why had he introduced her like that? He did think that minimizing her role in the research would improve her odds of surviving this. She highly doubted it, but she was willing to let him take the lead here. He watched the news and was interested in politics, so at least he might know what this was all about. All right, Doctor. The man jabbed Amy in the side with the barrel of his gun. I think your wife would appreciate it if you told me what research you are doing here. I'm a physicist. I'm researching what's beyond our universe. Maybe someday we could lead to new technologies. But right now it's only an academic interest. There's nothing here that you could use as a weapon. The man clearly didn't like his answer. If that were true, how you wouldn't have soldiers at the door? This is a military facility. Treat me like an idiot again and you'll regret it. It is true, I swear. The military expects to get something for their money, of course. I told them it had potential as a method of travel, possibly faster than light. But I played that up to get the funding. I honestly don't know if anything practical will come of it. Research is in a straight line. I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Don't know. It seemed like Jonathan was hyperventilating at this point. His words poured out just a bit too fast. Amy wasn't so sure minimizing the project's importance was the right strategy. These people had come here looking for something, right? She didn't know what they expected to get out of this, but she was pretty confident that nothing was not it. The duress code had been used. There would be reinforcements arriving soon, most likely. They needed to stall for time. Wasn't it better to offer them something that they would want? To tell them that they'd found something that could shift the balance of power in their favor, but that they would need Amy and John to finish it for them. Okay, Doc, then tell me, what is beyond our universe? I, uh... I don't know exactly. The man laughed. It was more cruel than jovial. He motioned for Amy and Jonathan to walk in front of him, guiding them to the offices towards the main entrance. That's rich, Doc. How much do you think this facility of yours cost? How many meters stuck down here? Built this shit. EA steals our blood, sweat, and tears. Gives them over to you. So you can learn absolutely fucking nothing. That's just great, Doc. Perfect. As they entered the main hall, they looked towards the elevator. Both soldiers' bodies had been left where they fell. The elevator doors closed, but bloody bootprints leading away suggested that something bad had happened inside. Jacob William, what have you done? These men had families. I met Jacob's son. He is only four years old. Jonathan sounded practically manic. Amy couldn't remember meeting any soldier's sons. When had that happened? Certainly not here. The facility was restricted. The man leaning slightly and spitting Jacob's cops. I had family too. We all had families until you destroyed them. Don't expect sympathy from me. You people. That was not a good sign. 
He was lumping Amy and John in with the military, or maybe he hated everybody from Earth. Either way, it meant that they were most likely headed for the same fate as the guards. The man walked them into the control room, where five other militants were talking and laughing with each other. The control room was the largest area in the lab, save for the test chamber itself. Technically, monitoring the experiments was the room's primary role, but most of the time experiments weren't running. In practice, it was used for any work that was too cumbersome to do in the office. That meant that most of the specialized equipment used for the research was built there. Against the far wall were the computers and monitoring equipment used to run experiments. On the right wall, nearest the computers, was the old window, now shuttered. On the near wall, just right of the door, was a large screen, with a couch in front of it. Theoretically, it was for spectators, military brass, or politicians to watch the experiments. Most of the time, it was used for playing video games when they needed to decompress. The rest of the room had workbenches, tools, and projects in various stages of completion. As far as Amy could see, nothing was out of place. Nobody else out here? There was no military discipline in this unit of fighters, but they did quiet down and listen to the man. He seemed to be in charge. That's fine, two prisoners is good at a number, especially when one of them is the lead scientist. He shoved Jonathan forward. So, Doc, you say the project is useless, but I'd like to decide that for myself. This is clearly where you run things from, so let's see it in action. How about it? You want to show me what's outside the universe? He let out a low chuckle. Now that sounded like a good idea to Amy. Apparently to John, too. As he took a seat to the main control computer and handed a tablet off to her, the man grabbed Amy by the arm. And what do you think you're doing, then? This is a complicated piece of equipment. It wasn't designed to be controlled by just one person. My husband needs to monitor spatial integrity and dozens of other variables while I operate the breach engine itself. If you want to watch the experiment, it'll be displayed over there. Amy gestured with the tablet towards the large screen by the door. Most of the militants seemed happy to gather in front of the screen, but the one in charge kept tight hold of Amy, still standing only a meter behind John. I can see fine from here. Getting them all in one place would be too much to hope for. Amy began programming the shot. They didn't have a lot of information about the unstable breach, and she needed a small one, not more than half the size of the room. She pegged the energy outburst just barely above the critical point. The man was watching John and her, not the screen. That was good. His back would be to the breach when it opened. The trouble was he still had a firm grip on her arm. He had at least 15 kilos on her, and he was in good shape. But she would have the element of surprise. She only needed a moment. There was a whoop-crack suck of rushing air as the breach sprung into existence. It swallowed the other five militants in an instant. A writhing hole in the world. A breach that was only two meters in front of her. Tendrils and cracks so dark that they seemed to swallow the nearby light. Shivered their way through the fabric of the universe. The breach almost looked alive the way that it pulsed and twisted. As expected, the man was caught off guard. He looked over his shoulder to see what was happening. This was a moment. She lunged with all her strength. He stumbled backwards, but didn't let go. She could barely hear her husband calling her name over the pounding of her heartbeat. She couldn't stop, couldn't turn back to him. If she gave the man even a moment to regain his balance, he would overpower her. She kept pushing. I'm sorry, John. Amy and the man tumbled into the gaping black moor of the breach and were gone. Amy was disoriented. 
She couldn't see. She couldn't feel. She couldn't hear. But she could. Just not with ears. Not with flesh. She was immersed in darkness, deeper than black between the stars. She became aware that she had no body, but still, she had senses. Different senses. Better senses. There was a sound. It was so quiet at first that she thought that it was her imagination. But as she focused on it, she found structure. Melody. There were no words. No notes. It wasn't a music that any human could ever make. But it was beautiful. She let it carry her deeper, further into the dark. Her mind filled with visions, both horrible and wonderful, until she could no longer tell the difference. Nothing was out there. Everything was out there. She had conversations with herself on topics that no creature of the universe would ever consider. She bathed her mind in fire and blood, in transcendence. It was herself she was conversing with, wasn't it? Of course, who else would it be? There's nobody here, of course, of course. Time stretched on in internal moments. How long had she been here? How long had she been free? Days? Years? Centuries? She knew things that no human had ever known, could ever know. But most importantly, she knew that the universe was... wrong. Here, now, this was what existence was meant to be. The universe is an aberration, a... sun. A new melody found her mind. It was... familiar. It was not the sound of this place. It was flawed. But it was John. She knew his voice. It could be no other. He'd come. Oh, the things she had to show him. But she needed to find him first. For minutes or years she tried to follow that song, but got no closer. Where was he? He had to be here. If she couldn't find him, maybe he could find her. She would sing back to him. She swelled in elation as he responded, their songs mixed and growing louder together. She could sense herself growing closer to him. She thought that she could almost feel him. But she felt something else instead. Something wrong. Flesh, no, 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 no. It was closing in on her. Her perception was shrinking. She stopped singing, but it was too late. Her vision shrunk, confined behind gelatinous orbs. Her hearing narrowed to vibrations in bone and sickly fluid. She felt through pressure and heat on skin. Desperately, she tried to cling to the piece of transcendence as a flesh prison took shape. She looked, now with only eyes, at a new form. A pale mockery of a true self. The closest that could exist under the twisted laws of the disgusting universe. She had legs, perhaps a dozen of them, and as many arms, eyes and mouths too, all down the length of her form. Her arms were jagged and black, almost blade-like. Her legs stabbed into the concrete floor, cutting pieces from it. Her torso wound several meters up to her head, where thousands of oversized cilia felt about her gathering information in a pathetic approximation of true feeling. She found John's face. Recognition was there, but also horror and disgust. She understood perfectly. As disturbing as it must have been to see her reduced to flesh, his form was even worse. Two arms, two legs, two eyes, pink skin without a trace of the sublime... She could see a thousand questions fighting to find their way to the surface on the meat of his face. She knew what he wanted to ask, what he needed to know, and she would show him. She would save him. A deep, 
echoing, scratching sound escaped her mouths as she spoke the closest approximation to truth that could exist in this wretched universe. Heaven is void of light, John. End of story. I would just quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and patrons. Caspar Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Barky, Mid's Difficult to Pronounce, Lord Azrakul, and Arcadian. 